Greetings and good afternoon, everyone. This is Cheryl, and I am so pleased to be here to welcome you to Tara and Rama's Saturday afternoon program, The True Planetary and Galactic History, Herstory, and True History, Herstory of Nasara. I hope everyone is having a very wonderful Saturday, this 11th day of March. And as we approach... Um, the celebration of St. Patrick's Day, I thought we would be bringing in the green. So we're going to call upon here today, as we begin, we are going to invite in all of the fairies, all of the leprechauns, all of the nature spirits, all of the elementals to work and play with us and bring in the green ray, the emerald green ray, the emerald green ray of truth and the green of health and the green of harmony, the green of nature and the green of abundance. (laughs) So hold that intention with me as we begin and take this time to go into your heart center. And going into the heart center, the heart being that um, center of the green ray chakra, And let's call in the full emergence and integration with our soul, our higher self, our monad, our mighty I am presence, and all of the multidimensional aspects of our being through to our God presence, our goddess presence. And as we call in and work with the green ray of of truth, again, that is the main quality, the truth, the truth of our being, the truth of our health, the green of harmony, and again, the green of nature and abundance. So we call all of that in to our pillar of light. As we see, sense, and feel our pillar of light, fully connected to source and fully connected to Mother Earth, to her crystalline heart, feeling the nurturing color of green, feeling all the frequencies and gifts both coming from Mother Earth and coming from source. Green is such an abundant energy. Let that abundance expand your heart. Allow yourself to experience full gratitude for this healing energy. <clears throat> and we are want to invite in everyone with us. So we say the following invocation. I am my I am presence. As my I am presence, I am one with the I am presence of all humanity. I am one with every man, woman, and child. I am one with all my family members and loved ones. I am one with all that is. And feel the expansion that takes place. Expanding your heart center and connecting heart to heart. 
high heart to high heart, cosmic heart to cosmic heart with every man, woman, and child. Feel the connection that we have with everyone, the oneness, the unity consciousness. So we invite in for one and all to enjoy the benefits of all that we do. Everyone's soul extensions, planetary and galactic, our ancestors, our, our genetic lineage, our ancestral lineage, all the generations past, all the generations forward, our spiritual lineage, our soul families and soul pods. And we welcome for one and all, all of our guides and teachers, our healing teams, our beloved guardian angel, our beloved twin flame, our ascension council, our mission council. We welcome the assistance of all the kingdoms, the plant kingdom, especially the four-leaf clovers, and the tree kingdom and the mineral kingdom and the animal kingdom all the green gemstones working with us here. And we welcome all of the nature kingdoms, the fairies, the leprechauns, the elementals, every aspect of the nature kingdoms. And all of the magical kingdoms as well the whales, the dolphins, and the unicorns, and all the magical kingdoms. We welcome all the realms of the angels, the angels and archangels through to the cherubim and seraphim, especially the angels of the green ray. We welcome Archangel Raphael, Mother Mary. We welcome Hilarion, the master of the Green Ray, and we welcome all those that work with this ray and all those in the Ascended Master realms, the Brotherhood of Light, the Sisterhood of the Rays and Rose, the Order of Melchizedek, the Radiant Ones, all of the Enlightened Masters, all Divine Mother Emissaries, Divine Father Emissaries, all of the Planetary and Cosmic Hierarchy of Light. And we welcome all of our friends from the Galactic Federation of Light and their healing teams, especially those that we work so closely with from Arcturus, from Pleiades, from Sirius, from Andromeda, from Chiron, and from Venus, and all cosmic galactic universal healers that can be of service. And we welcome as well the entire company of heaven, asking our Mother, Father, God to overlight all that we do and magnify, magnify, magnify it 999 times, 999 billion times in alignment with divine will and divine law, as we call this forth for one and all. And we call forth all the rays, all the flames, all the universal laws and ascension waves including the emerald ray and flame and and the flame of limitless healing and transmutation, which is the emerald with the violet radiance. And all different healing rays, as we call forth, <clears throat> an amazing healing for this planet. 
for all of life, for the uh, every aspect of, of nature, every aspect of the earth realm, and every person upon it. And we ask that with every energy and frequency, every prayer and invocation, every blessing, every grace, every dispensation, every activation, we ask that it be received through every cell, chakra, meridian, layer of our auric field, multidimensionally, for each and every one, on a conscious, subconscious, superconscious level as well, all in divine order, individually and collectively the maximum that we can receive ever expanding to perfection. Take a nice deep breath and just let yourself absorb as we ask to easily and effortlessly digest and assimilate, ground and anchor, integrate and embody all that we receive with the greatest of ease and grace and joy and peace and bliss and ecstasy and serenity and tranquility. Balance and equilibrium without resistance on any level, without discomfort on any level, without fear on any level, in love and light and laughter. We call forth everyone in our circle of support to receive this from the very first name that created it to every man, woman, and child, every family member and loved one, every pet, every animal, those here and those in the other realms. And for each and every group and organization, business and corporation, every institution, every educational institution, every nation, every military, every every government, the legislative aspect of each government and all the laws, all based on truth, on harmony on health, on respecting nature, on creating abundance, laws that are in total alignment with this green ray energy. And the executive aspect of each government, every president, every prime minister, every leader on national, state, and local levels, all of the department, the cabinet, members and department heads, everyone who makes decisions for each nation, and the judicial aspect of each government, each nation, all the judges, again, national, state, and local, all court cases and decisions. And all of the climate change, Alaska was having some earthquakes with some, they were concerned about volcanoes erupting. We bring harmony and peace and health to every aspect of nature, every aspect of our weather and our climate. Balance, another quality of the green ray, balance in the water that is provided to this earth. All the heavy rains coming in to uh, 
California on the flooding and any any place else on the planet that we know we hold in our circle of support and a harmony and balance amongst all people and the revelation of truth and infinite abundance for every man, woman, and child and every other situation. Let us hold that perfection, hold that image of heaven on earth for us all as we work with the uh, divine green ray which also activates the divine blueprint for the planet, the divine blueprint for each of us, for our health, our divine mission and purpose. And so we invite in Gaia to receive this as well. Well, let's call in all of the energy around the March madness and all the events during March, the full moon, the new moon coming up and and so on. All of the energies of of March and the spring equinox, the equinox, wherever you are in the world, we bring in that energy to work with us in our collective cup of consciousness for the transformation of the planet, for the complete healing, for the wholeness and perfection, for the divine harmony amongst all people and all kingdoms. And for that divine abundance of heaven on earth. As we invite in Gaia to receive all that we receive in every molecule of life, every molecule of soil, molecule of water, molecule of air, molecule of fire through her chakras and meridians and layers of her orc field multidimensionally, through every ley line and saw line, to the grid system, the love grids, the light grids, the unity grids, all of the multidimensional grid system, through every portal and vortex and monument and sacred site, every place of power, every stargate, every city of light. As we continue up this amazing spiral of evolution, along with Gaia, as she takes her rightful place as freedom star. So envisioning that emerald green and the emerald green with the violet radiance, we do the following invocation to the flame of healing. Beloved, I am presence, beloved angels of the healing flame. Beloved Mother Mary and Archangel Raphael, beloved Hilarion and all the beings serving on the ray of healing. I now come before thy flame to request healing in God's name. I stand with my God presence to be liberated and healed from all physical burdens through thy healing light and love. I also ask to be healed from all etheric scars and mental and emotional traumas from this life and from the past. Flame of healing of purest green. Bless my form and make me whole. Pour comfort into my soul and enlightenment into my mind. I am God's perfection manifest in body, mind, and soul. I am God's healing light flowing to make me whole. 
I am the master presence charging all my bodies with love. Beloved God, Goddess presence as I transform my consciousness, let heaven's perfection manifest in my daily life. Send thy ray of healing upon my soul. I am Christ's presence charging me with thy radiant healing light until I become the full manifestation of that light. So be it and so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. Take a nice deep breath. Again, as we accept and receive, let us be fully receptive to this energy. As we call in a new order of healing for ourselves and for humanity. And allow ourselves to be that bridge between heaven and earth, the anchor for the new golden age, the open door that no one can shut because we're asking to be that open door in this prayer. Beloved presence of God, Goddess, I am through the divinity blazing in every heart. I now invoke the legions of light associated with the flame of healing through the power of infinite transmutation. So see it with its, its violet radiance. This emerald green flame with the violet radiance is the most powerful healing frequency available in the fifth dimension. It transcends everything less than purity and vibrant health and is the force of healing for the new earth. Legions of light blaze forth the most intensified activity of this healing flame that cosmic law will allow. Project this sacred fire into the core of purity in every electron of precious life energy evolving on earth. Instantly transmute every frequency of vibration in any facet of life that conflicts with the immaculate concept of humanity's solar light bodies and the infinite perfection of the new earth. Increase this activity of healing light daily and hourly with every breath I take. Allow me to be the open door for the flame of healing through the power of infinite transmutation. Allow me to be a force of healing for all life I come in contact with during my earthly sojourn. Magnetize into my sphere of influence every person, place, condition, or thing that I can assist in any way with God's healing light. Give me the divine opportunities to love all life free on this sweet earth. I am open. I am willing. I am receptive. I am grateful. I am God's healing flame in action on earth. And so it is. As God's most holy name, I am. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. Take a nice deep breath as we call in the emerald aspect of abundance. Breathe and receive. Again, experiencing that emerald ray all around you. 
creating that perfection in every aspect of life, creating your health, perfect harmony, the truth of your divine nature, expanding your connection with nature and bringing in the energy of abundance. Breathe and receive. In the name of my beloved I Am Presence and my beloved Holy Christ Self, I call to the Lords of Manifestation, Angels of Prosperity, Fortuna Goddess of Supply, and the Lord of Gold to assist me now in mastering all outer conditions in my life in God's perfect way, including my true abundance. Charge, charge, charge into my life and use this day all of the blessings that are mine to receive. Infuse me with ascended master wisdom and purity that I may never again experience lack or limitation. Blaze your heart flame through my four-body system and expand without limit a great flow of divine abundance. Saturate me with enough violet flame and emerald healing light to keep my life in perfect balance and harmony. I demand God's invincible protection and wisdom in all my financial endeavors. I demand to become a magnet of attraction, drawing to me all the wealth that I require to fulfill my divine plan on earth to make my ascension and to assist all humanity to do likewise. I give thanks that this is done according to God's most holy will. I accept my abundance now with love and gratitude. So be it, beloved I am. Beloved I am. Beloved I am. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. Take a nice deep breath. We're going to do some more affirmations for abundance and prosperity. So feel yourself receiving abundantly. Feel that emerald ray. And please feel free to affirm after me. I am the divine presence manifesting all I need in my life. I am God's abundance flowing through me and the use of all things that require for my service to life. I am the healing presence and power of God's infinite love and light. I am the acceleration of the Elohim where I am. I am the spirit of consecration, blessing everything that I wish to bring into manifestation with the love and light of God. Take a nice deep breath, breathe that in. And we give thanks for this, we give thanks for this, we give thanks for this. 
And we accept not only the abundance, but the healing energy. By saying three times, I am the healing presence and power of God's infinite love and light. I am the healing presence and power of God's infinite love and light. I am the healing presence and power of God's infinite love and light. And just see it permeate every aspect of life as we focus again on our abundance. This is given as a an affirmation that can be used in your daily life. Please join me in saying thank you, God, for all the abundance that comes into my life as a free gift of your love. I am the presence blessing and consecrating this money with the love and light of God so that wherever it goes, It brings radiant health, illumination, love, and unlimited abundance to the person receiving it. Manifest, manifest, manifest. Thank you. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Can take a nice deep breath as we send out that green ray energy to everyone across the planet, sending out these gifts of health and harmony and truth and and divine nature and abundance. We're going to focus our energy right now on the environment, on the planet. So see it. Send it to Mother Earth. Send it to all the elementals. Send it to the earth, the water, the fire. the air, every aspect of earth. We ask for the highest cleansing and purification that we can receive with this emerald green ray and light, plus the violet radiance of transmutation. If we ask to bring harmony and balance to nature, to every aspect of the planet, We call forth now and invoke a thorough transmutation of all the destructive thought forms contributing to the appearance of environmental degradation and pollution, be it in the water or the air, in the soil, and even in the climate, the weather. 
across the planet. They're holding the entire planet in this energy. Through the clarity of our intention, cleanse the water, the soil, the air, the plants, and all the wildlife across this planet. Cleanse them all of all forms of toxicity, including the elementals. Saturate every living thing across the planet with a great healing wave of divine love. Bring in that emerald green ray with the violet transmutation. And again, we welcome all the rays, flames, universal laws, and ascension waves to work with this planet, every aspect of nature, everyone upon her. Restore harmony and homostasis in every area of the planet. Inspire the people of this world, all of humanity, to truly act as empowered stewards of the earth. And we ask that everywhere across the earth, this entire planet be surrounded in a permeable membrane of universal light that purifies, protects, and uplifts everyone and everything within it for the highest good of all. By and through the rehabilitating power of divine will, it is now done. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. So we're going to continue sending healing energy to the planet and holding that vision of heaven on earth through the following decrees. So as I say this, hold the vision. Join me heart to heart and mentally seeing this happen. In saying this, in decreeing this, as we call forth for global peace and unity, healing, divine truth and abundance for all life. Divine love is spreading exponentially throughout all countries bringing joy and goodwill to all. Global peace arises as more people awaken to the truth of our oneness. The light of universal will is inspiring right human relations in all nations and all governments. I now join with all other peace builders in radiating equanimity to every country to support a smoother transition into global unity. The hearts and minds of all people 
are shifting into greater harmony in every region, every community across the planet. I am seeing, feeling, and knowing love as the ultimate truth on earth. Through the light of grace, every atomic particle of precious life energy is being raised and redeemed into the highest expression of right divine order. Humanity is swiftly birthing a new way of life grounded in total adherence to spiritual principles. I am blazing the codes of love and unity outwardly to all expressions of life. The light of forgiveness is flowing through all groups, governments, militaries, and citizens on earth. The abundant resources of our sacred planet are being shared equally amongst every resident, group, leader, and nation. Light, love, and the power of will are restoring the divine plan on earth. All unnecessary suffering is ceasing now. Ecological harmony is rapidly unfolding in the biosphere. The prevailing attitude of goodwill is spreading like wildfire from nation to nation. And let us affirm victory is ours in love governing this planet. Victory is ours in love governing this planet. Victory is ours in love governing this planet. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. So let us hold this vision this week. Hold it for this next month. Get to Earth Day on April 22nd. Through the equinox, through to um, again the Earth Day. As we give thanks for all of the healing that we've received. Just let us integrate it. We call forth Gaia to assist us in integrated personally and collectively. And Archangel Sandalphon as well. And again, we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. So I'm being told that we would really benefit from using the green ray this week, abundantly, abundantly using it, they said, abundantly using the emerald green ray for all of these intentions and for every other aspect of life as we create heaven on earth. So may the luck of the Irish be with you as we approach uh, the celebration of St. Patrick's Day. Wear your green, wear your emerald. 
And thank you, thank you, thank you for your divine service. I thank you for your service. And I invite you for further service every Sunday and Monday evening for our Ascension Meditation and Activation Calls where we meet on the teleconference line. We meet at 8.45 p.m. Eastern Time, 5.45 p.m. Pacific Time. Now keep in mind, we've got a time change tomorrow morning. Most of us do. So check your clocks. We're springing forward which means that, uh, you know, kind of shifts the uh, the uh, attention. We have to shift our attention to make sure that we're on at the, on time for the call. And, uh, and for everything else in life, all the rest of our schedules. So just ask to expand the time of your sleep tonight to make up for that hour difference. And... Um, we will gather again 8:45 p.m. Eastern, 5:45 p.m. Pacific time. We have about 25 minutes of greetings. We have Taran Rama bring us a brief update, and at 9:30 Eastern, 6:30 Pacific time, we get into our meditations, our visualizations, our decrees, our prayers, our invocations all of our magical work, all of the work that we do to bring heaven to earth and anchor it for one and all. We want you to be a part of that. It is really an amazing experience, and I hope you'll join us, especially if you're the first timer. Let us know where you're calling from. So the main, the number that we've been giving out lately is um, area code Four eight zero six six zero two 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 four. Again, four eight zero six six zero two 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 four. As I said, I like the two 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 in the middle of that um, number because it represents both ascension and resurrection. The access code is always the same, no matter what number you use. It's nine four six. Seven four four one pound nine four six seven four four one pound. I have a list of numbers throughout the U.S. I have international numbers. Um, you can get on online. There's even an app for freeconference.com, and um, we'd love to have you join us and be a part of our family of light that is working so amazingly to bring heaven to earth. We can certainly use your love and light because it expands exponentially with each person that joins us. So once again, thank you, thank you, thank you for your service today. We want to thank Tar and Rama for their divine service all these many years. And we want to thank Rainbow for her service as well. As I pass the stocking stick with the emerald green and the violet radiance and every single color of the rainbow, because the love crowns have that bringing that rainbow energy and all the fairy and gemstone energy that comes with it, all of the magical, magical realms 
and their energies are joining us as I pass the talking stick to you, Rainbird. Infinite blessings to everybody. Have a glorious week. Well, thank you. I'll take that talking stick. And thank you, Cheryl, for your divine service as well. We're so grateful for the way you start our day on Saturdays. So lots of gratitude. So I'm here to do the housekeeping as we are a listener-supported radio program. It's each of us that makes it happen. And so uh, each week we need to pay BBS Radio for the, their fees. And this week we need $300 by the 14th. And we already have a little bit in there, so it's just $183.50 by by Tuesday, as we can assist in staying caught up on that bill with BBS, that's that's just perfect. Uh, So we're grateful for your contributions to this matter. And here's how we make a contribution to BBS Radio, um, to our account there. You want to go into your heart space, see what is yours to give, and then go to bbsradio.com. And then look up for the menu for Radio Station 2, which which is where this program is located. And you'll see the listing for the true history, history, and the Saranite Galactic Origins with Taran Rama at the 1 o'clock hour, I mean 1.30 hour Pacific time. And as you click on that icon there, then that'll take you directly to our account with BBS, so make, you can make a donation in any amount, and thank you. Thank you for paying attention to that, this matter, and making it happen that way. Sending that green ray along. <laughs> and then also, we have two programs on Radio Station 1. They're on Thursday night, uh, a night at the round table with the panel, and on Friday night, the hard news with Tara and Rama on Friday night. And that both of those are at the six o'clock hour. So you can look at those, click on those icons and, and make that payment there as well. So thank you, thank you, thank you for taking that action. We're so grateful for all that BBS Radio provides for us and this way of gathering each week. So lots of gratitude for their services. And lots of gratitude for you and and for all the ways you show up in your life. And we're also assisting Tara and Rama with their needs. And on Monday, they have to pay a $150 bill. Well, it's two bills, but they add up to $150. Those two are due on Monday. And they have two or one due on Wednesday that's $151. So as we can make sure that, that happens in a good way for Tara and Rama, that would be wonderful. Here's how I make a contribution. To, well, wait a minute. There's still more. I'll go through the rest of it. They also need, require $200 for their uh, living expenses, basics, food and gas, etc. And then, of course, also they are um, catching up with the, what they need pay their mechanic for the repair work they did last month. So as we can be sending something for that, that helps. I think it's $300 that's owed there still. 
so there you go. Here's how we make a contribution to Tara and Rama. You want to go to the web address, access the Rainbow Roundtable PayPal account. So the <laughs> the, the web address is rainbowroundtable.net. And there on the home page, you'll see that menu grid. Click on it, and you'll see the donate link near the bottom of that list. And that links you to the Rainbow Roundtable account with PayPal. The other way to do it, to access the friends option, is to just go to paypal.com and enter in uh, for the person you're gifting to Rama's email address at PayPal. And it is as follows, Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 999949 at hotmail.com. Koran, 9999 at hotmail.com. And then as you do that, you enter the amount you're gifting, and that's how you uh, do it that way. It goes a little bit further with that option, but either way is perfect. We're so grateful for your contribution, and we're so grateful to Tar and Lama. So let's send that green ray right to their pockets this week. And they know where it all goes. (laughs) So lots of gratitude for your generosity and paying it forward like that and working with your abundance in that way by paying it forward. So um, have you been saying, yeah, I think we've got it all. Oh, yeah, as you were sending something, please let Rama know, send him a message at this email, Koran999 at Comcast.net. And let him know what you sent and when you sent it so he can make sure he's on board in a good way <laughs> and then getting these bills paid on time. They, so we see that there's money due on on the 13th or Monday uh, for bills, two bills, money for on the 14th for paying BBS radio in a timely way, and money due on the 15th for bills that are due that time. $151 is one bill that. So there you go. There it all is. And so 13 thank yous and honey in the heart. Wait, 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 wait. I forgot to tell you the mailing address as you need it. It is Rob D. Berkowitz, R-A-M-D Berkowitz, B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z. Post Office Box 280280. And that's in Santa Cruz, New Mexico. Eight seven five six seven. I'll say it again: Santa Cruz, New Mexico. Eight seven five six seven. So there you go. That's all the information. So thank you so much for your generosity. Thirteen thank yous and honey in the heart. And I'm passing this talking stick, and it's green. <laughs> so it's full of that green ray. And leprechauns and all of the little people, the Manahoonies and the, all the <clears throat> the hobbits and dwarves and and others in the magical realm, the unicorns and the dragons and lots of high beings, Raphael and Hilarion and Mother Mary and Saint Patrick and the. So the green ray is coming and the violet rays are with it and all the rainbow rays are coming along too and lots of gemstone healing energy and that sword of truth, Excalibur, 
Greetings, Tara and Rama. Here comes his talking stick. He's on his way. Greetings. Whoops. <laughs> Hello. Whoops. Yeah, the echo. Greetings, everyone. Hopes. Thanks, friends. Thanks. You're breaking up a little bit, Tar. Can you get closer or something? Oh. I'll try that. Okay. Is this better? Yes, that's better. Yeah, the echo went away. I think there was an echo for a while, and that's why it was hard to hear me. All right. So, uh, thank you so much, Caroline and Rainbird. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Carol, Cheryl and Rainbird. And... um May all of our families and loved ones and friends all be in good good spirits and well on this day. And um, we send good vibrations to all sticky situations that might be going on around this planet <laughs> at this time. You want to say something about sticky situations, Rama? Uh, yeah, I can just uh, say that um, I talked for a moment with Chun Li. She's that white knight over in uh, right now helping the populated in Fin Del Nor with this situation in Turkey and Syria. And this mm. earthquake story is a back page story. They're not talking about it on any news, really. Yet they are still um, helping people recover folks who went over the rainbow. The bodies are still there, blazed by the fire. It's a lot more than any news agency is really talking about because it is about Earth Mother and I gotta say there are stories out there about the dark side doing this and at the same time there are shifts in Mother Earth's field that have to do with the sun and the alignments that are going on right now that are huge and Chun Li is saying that even though the Western media is talking about this escalation of a drumbeat for war with China, President Xi has been meeting and he's been meeting for many moons with the Pleiadians and the Syrians and the Lyrians and there will be no nuclear war. But they want to scare the F out of everyone. That is the big drama that we got to get past because all they have left is one card, fear. False events <laughs> appearing real, like false flags, uh, fake alien invasions and 
Dr. Greer is going to talk about this with um, a lady we played before who interviewed Nassim Haramin. And Chun-Li is just saying they're they're playing with all that they have, which is that energy that produces loose, the fear, etheric substance they feed on, and war is over, war is canceled, that's what I gotta say, even though they're playing with it. And this whole fiasco with um, former President Trump is huge. It's not just about him and his cronies. It goes around the planet where all the organized crime is being taken down. And it has to do with the vibrations of love, kindness, compassion coming in. Like we have just heard Cheryl talk about and Rainbird with the Mayan calendar and so many pieces to this story that I could just say when you're in the presence of these ascended masters and commanders, it's real. And these guys know it. And blaze the violet fire, because I'm not going to say any ill words. It's goddess knows what to do. I pass the talking stick. Okay, uh, I thought maybe I'd read um, a right up front um, Aurora Ray's uh, report for today. It pretty much says it, like what Rama was outlining here. It's called The Light is Winning. <laughs> That's what I keep saying. <laughs> Dear ones, the Galactic Federation is not just a legal framework for trading goods between planets. Rather, it's an ethical, moral, and spiritual one as well. We are the overseers and protectors of peace, liberty, and the evolution of consciousness among the vast number of galactic civilizations. In the near future, your civilization will likely evolve into a multi-planetary entity. Members of the Galactic Federation have come together to create a collective of planets that are working toward the common good. This means that in order to survive and thrive as a species, humans will need to come together in greater unity than ever before. The purpose of our Federation is to protect and ensure the rights of all people, regardless of their origin or station within it. People on earth are living in hard times, struggling with disease, poverty, and war. 
We believe in justice, peace, and all those things we believe humanity can achieve through interplanetary cooperation. To spread love and light throughout the universe, we want to save you from the dark forces that intend to keep you in fear and in submission. We want to protect you from those who fear your growth and who want to keep you subdued and controlled. They feed off of your fear energy. And the only way they can continue doing so is as you stay in fear. The reason the dark forces have been so successful is that they play on people's emotions Mm -hmm. and they use fear as a weapon of control. They want everybody to feel fear all the time. This is because as people are afraid, they won't think clearly and they will be more willing to put up with being controlled by the dark forces. The surface population of Earth has been programmed to giving their powers away. People are living in the infamous comfort zone, which leads them to believe that authoritarian control is a good thing and that those in power will quote-unquote do the job for them. It is against It is against their investment for dark forces to allow you to become intelligent. People who are intelligent are unable to be exploited. They cannot be oppressed. Mm -hmm. They cannot be forced to live an unconscious life as they are intelligent. They will express an opinion about who they are. They would prefer to live in liberty. Wisdom is inextricably linked to freedom. They are inextricably linked and dark forces oppose people's freedom. They don't like it as people use their own wisdom because it makes them risky, risky to the dark forces and their establishment, risky to the haves. Risky to oppression. Risky to exploitation of all kinds. A wise man, in fact, is alive and aflame. Why should you be afraid? You haven't got anything. You came in without anything. (laughs) And will leave by choice without it. Or not. I'm just adding a few things because... We're in a period of time where we will we will follow the yellow brick road and follow our dream and including as you wish not having to die. And I'm gonna state that's very clear. It's in it's in our our midst right now. Want to say something to that, Rama? Just that, in, like Aurora Ray is talking about, that what is about to happen is so, <laughs> the best 
version I could describe is um, Star Trek First Contact. Watch the movie. It's on YouTube. <laughs> That's all I got to say. They, uh, Steven Spielberg did a wonderful job. No, that was Gene Roddenberry. Oh, Gene Roddenberry. That's yes. right. Yes. Okay. But well, they're good Steven buddies. Steven Spielberg, you know, had industrial light and magic do the special effects. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. George Lucas, Steven Spielberg. Yes. They're good buddies, and they mm-hmm. they uh, work together in many ways. <clears throat> Fear is nothing except an illusion created by the manipulation of your minds. Nothing ever comes as a result of fear. Fear is powerless in the face of love, which gives birth to life and creates worlds. People on earth, we are here to help you overcome your fears. The dark forces use these fears against you to pit neighbor against neighbor, nation against nation, people of differing beliefs against each other. Nothing was ever created by dark forces. They are unable to create anything because they are opposed to love and peace. However, they have the ability to destroy your entire life, surround you like a dark cloud and exploit all of your vitality. They would not allow you to enter the beautiful fifth dimensional experience as it was up to them. Gladly, they have no say in this. Once you have completed your inner journey, discovered your true self, and connected with the fifth dimension, no dark force can overpower you. It is so lovely to move within. More importantly, live more deeply. It is your life. Do not put it at risk for any stupidity that the dark forces have taught you. It is your life. Live it to the fullest. Do not put it on the line for anyone The dark forces have been manipulating your thoughts, your feelings, your actions for a very long time. You have been led to believe that it is a normal state of things. We want you to be fully aware that it is not normal because their invisible manipulation suppresses your natural progress. These dark forces want you to always be in a sleep state. They want you to live your life on autopilot. They don't want you to really live, yet these dark forces cannot control you unless you allow them to. You must be willing to say no to the ordinary and step into the extraordinary. Allow your mind to embrace a new dawn of Understanding, understanding, overstanding. A higher vibrating reality where the human right is to swim in a sea of consciousness. Our life forces 
are here to assist you in your ascension. The light is winning. The dark forces who are resistant to the light will not stay in this world for too long. They do not deserve to exist in such a wonderful world which God has created for you. We love you dearly. We are here with you. We are your family of light. Aho, Aurora Ray, ambassador of the Galactic Federation. And Rama, mm. you on Friday, was it? You were in town and you saw a whole no. bunch of uh, starships? Yes, and yesterday, yeah, I, actually, I saw a ship decloak in front of me. Actually, two. <laughs> and I could see ships from the window here, which is just a half an hour north, uh, in the distance by the mountains as the crow they, flies. As the crow flies where Robert travels to Santa Fe. So, and that's not unusual so much around here. No. And I think that's because the city of Holy Faith, Santa Fe, uh, is, has been attracting people in pursuit of higher consciousness. Yes. That's why Georgia O'Keefe came here. <laughs> Along with a few other folks. Oh my. Stories upon stories. Yeah. So. We're going to begin with Dr. Greer, right, Rama? Yeah, this is, uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce her name, Doncia Patrick or Doncia? Danica. Danica. Well, one second, before we go there, I just want to really quick say that an Indonesian volcano called Merapi erupted today. Yes, this is part of what I keep talking about that Earth changes are going on, and there is a cyclone, a tropical cyclone named Freddy that has been traveling around near Mozambique for 33, 34 days. And on the Weather Channel, they're talking about this. How does a cyclone stay active, alive for 33, 34 days unless somebody's maybe playing with the Weather machine? Who knows? Hmm. Hmm. Okay, so really quick. Um, Britain's Defense Intelligence Agency is saying Russian forces took control of most of Bakhmut in Ukraine. Mm. And we're just going to say that the Russian forces are not the Russian forces. It's just another aspect of the deep state. So we're just letting you know of the game that's being played now. This eastern area has since become, has seen some, excuse me, of the longest and bloodiest fighting of the war so far. Ukraine's forces say Russia's Russians lost more than 500 troops in one day in that conflict. Mm. As our our forces 
on both sides. No, it's not our forces on both sides, but it's the leadership on both sides that's ours. So we're... This is something uh, Chun-Li brought up today. You know, we're aiding and abetting Ukraine to attack Russia, yet we complain about China helping Russia in Ukraine. And Chun-Li brought that up, and, you know, there's this double standard. It's all about the money. That's, you know, not so cool. It's time for peace. Yes. Where everybody has enough of everything they need, want, and desire. To ascend! War is canceled. And Indonesia's Mount Merapi, as I was saying, erupted today. It spewed gas clouds and lava and forced authorities to halt the tourism and the mining activities as well. No casualties reported. Let's keep it there. All right. Now, let's do this. Um, Welcome back to the Pretty Intense Podcast. I have back on the show the ever-so-popular Dr. Stephen Greer, one of the world's foremost authorities on the subject of UFOs, extraterrestrial intelligence and technologies, and initiating peaceful contact with interstellar civilizations. Dr. Greer has written five books and produced four feature documentaries on the subject of extraterrestrials, including Unacknowledged. His new film coming out later this year, around June, I think, Mm. The Lost Reality, will really pull back. Lost Century. Well, it says The Lost lost Reality. I know. Maybe that was a mistake. I got that construed. Okay. Will really pull back the curtain on technologies that exist, that we are not using and why. Our last interview with Dr. Greer was so popular, we knew you would enjoy seeing him again. UFO sightings are being reported more and more, particularly in the last few weeks. We go into what Dr. Greer believes is happening, what exactly we are seeing, and whose technologies they are. As you love this interview and want to learn more, Dr. Greer will be appearing June 10th and 11th at the D.C. Conference and National Press Club event. Uh, So... uh, don't miss this out of this world episode. Let's get started. Here okay. we go. Hour and thirty four minutes, right, Rama? Yeah. Okay. Um. Welcome to the Pretty Intense Podcast. I have back on the show the ever so popular Dr. Stephen Greer. Uh Stephen was an ER doctor that has turned into a researcher of all things UFO extraterrestrial. He has amazing films of which I've watched unacknowledged. I watched many years ago, uh, close encounters of the fifth kind came after that, seen that as well. And he has another one coming out called the lost century about basically like everything that we have not known or has been hidden from us and technologies that we should have in our reality that we don't. Um, but of course this episode, if anybody's, 
paid attention to my podcast, you maybe have come across his first episode, his first interview with me a few years ago. Again, very popular. And we talked about, of course, extraterrestrials, the government and programs. This was just a deeper dive into that. And it was all very much spawned from, you know, everything that's gone on recently with the balloons being shot down and perhaps crafts and what's going on. So Stephen is a wealth of knowledge. He's been at this for many, many decades. And he just has a mission to, well, it's the last question I ask him. You'll have to watch. You'll have to see what is the, what is Steven's mission? Because he really puts himself out there and he puts himself in potential danger. He has a real passion for it and he'll be at the National Press Club again, of which he hasn't been there for quite some time. And it was a big deal the first time. And he says he has even more whistleblowers this year. So, um, very exciting. So please enjoy the episode. Uh, click subscribe, um, hit the like button, let me know in the comments what you think. Um, it's always fascinating to hear other stories about perhaps what have you seen or if there are people that have had interactions with the government, like come forward, he will protect you and you can, um, you know, get your story out there and let's get, let's all get a little enlightened. <laughs> Enjoy the episode. We meet again. Where are you right now? I am in Washington, D.C. If I look that way, I'll see the White House and the Washington Monument. So um, I'm here at my uh, place in Washington. So you have a place there or you're working there right now? I have a home here and a home out near the University of Virginia near uh, in the Blue Ridge Mountains, a farm out there. But um, I come here about you know a third of the time for meetings with the work we're doing um, that, are, you know, that we can talk about. And it's a lot of exciting things that have happened since we uh, last spoke. Oh, I know. <laughs> That's why I thought it was such a good time, especially with everything that's been happening. So, you know, obviously lately, like balloons, are they spies? <laughs> are they weather balloons? Are they, are they anything? Were there craft? Like what on earth has been going on the last few weeks? So really what's been going on, it started with the Chinese balloon. It was obviously a spy balloon. We shot it down in the discussion uh, or not. Then there were the three other objects and events um, that appeared in the subsequent weeks after that. Those were most likely uh, just civilian drones, balloons, or perhaps something we had that was classified. They were not extraterrestrial vehicles, uh, et cetera, and so on. Now, the part of it that's very suspicious is that all of that happened within about a week of me escorting the first top secret witness into D.C. to provide testimony about what he knows about this issue um, through the new law that was passed and signed just before Christmas of 2022 that allows top secret people to come forward and speak about this issue, even though they have non-disclosure agreements and top secret clearances. So this is something we've been working on and advocating for for a long time. It's now enshrined in law. And there's a mechanism for these people to come forward. And one of the narratives that people need to remember is that people such as the co-chair of the uh, Senate Intelligence Committee, Marco Rubio, has been gaslit by a number of counterintelligence and, and disinformation people who have been telling him all the UFOs and UAPs are maybe they're from China. So all of a sudden, we're providing clear evidence that these are real some are extraterrestrial, some are man-made, very classified, illegal 
uh, anti-gravity propulsion systems that have been funded through deep black funds uh, hmm. and companies like my uncle's company. My, my uncle uh, helped design the lunar module. His company is Northrop Grumman, huge aerospace company. So I think that part of that whole uh, operation was a sort of a psyop, psychological warfare op. And of course, the media lapped it up. There were no experts that got on that provided any uh, insight into this. And uh, the, you know, hysteria in the public, hysteria in, in the media, I think was a very calculated move. Uh, one of the things we've worried about for years, Danica, is that at, at a certain time when all this begins to come out, which is beginning to, um, they could stay some sort of threat from outer space false flag operation. And it sure as heck looked like a warm-up for that uh, in the past month. I mean, what is the potential? I feel like, I mean, I obviously don't run in the same circles that you do to that mm-hmm. to that depth. I'm just like high-level mm-hmm. curiosity. But definitely from like a spiritual community perspective, there's definitely been a lot of people that have talked about the fact that a false flag is probably what we're preparing for. And what would, so mm-hmm. why would they be doing a false flag? Mm-hmm. And what would the role of that be? When I heard there was those green lights, I think over Hawaii, I mm-hmm. was like, "Oh man, drones could do that at night so easily." Um, so yeah, to talk about the talk about the potential of a false flag and what they would do and why. Well, this this takes us back to the fifties. So I have a CIA document that I got after I briefed uh, the director of the CIA on this issue in uh, December of 1993. So we're going back almost 30 years. And I got a cache, a box of documents from the agency. And one of them was describing the psychological warfare value of the UFO issue. Uh, and it was signed by the director of the CIA at the time, Walter Bedell Smith, and it was dated 1953, before even I was born, never mind you. So um, I was born in 55. So interestingly, what we see with this is a, uh, a 70 plus year long term strategy on this issue. And of course, as you know, the guy who invented the rocket for Adolf Hitler, Werner von Braun, on his deathbed told his senior assistant, Carol Rosen, who's on my team, who's now in her late 70s, that uh, in fact, uh, this entire threat of an alien invasion was always in the cards starting in the 50s that they began to hoax things and, and position this whole issue into the lunatic fringe of abductions and mutilations and War of the Worlds and the movie Independence Day and all this crap, excuse me, language. But and of course, this was all, you know, sort of scripted out of CIA covert central programs as a as an operation. So and in reality, I tell people that what we're beginning to see ramped up. And it began after our documentary, which I know you've seen unacknowledged, yeah. hit about 760 million views worldwide. Wow. And when it hit that number, up in that three quarters of a billion range, they pulled the trigger on a, a counterintelligence operation uh, headed up by Luis Elizondo and a few other people who were masters of disinformation at the Pentagon. And they roped in this young guy that I had briefed. And, and mentored for a while, Tom DeLong. And Tom DeLong was the Blink-182 guy, you know. Yeah. And he got he got brought in there as a front man. And this whole thing came out, the, the TTSA group, to the Stars Academy. And they started saying, yes, these are real. But 
they're a threat to the national security and we really don't know what they are. Well, both of those are big lies. We do know what they are and they're not a threat to the national security ex- except the ones that are ours. Now here's the punchline. Okay. The ones that are the UFOs that are man-made and that's about 70, 80% of the ones people see okay. are in fact a threat to the national security because they're a, they're sort of a covert program that can be used in a false flag, just what we're talking about. And they have been. It can be used to stage, you know, fake abductions and mutilations and all kinds of scary stuff. Now, to what end? I mean, you asked this question. They want to be able to unite the world around a sort of totalitarian militaristic group, yeah. which, you know, you can't do that by just fighting a few Al-Qaeda people or one country against another. The ultimate way to do that issue, as Ronald Reagan said when he gave his talk to the United Nations, wouldn't our job of creating uh, unity and uniting the world be easier if we had a common alien threat to fight? I'm quoting. I've seen yeah. I've seen him say that. Wouldn't we come yep. together if we knew that there was another entity mm-hmm. out there? Mm-hmm. How how much would we wouldn't we unite in that? Exactly. But instead of coming together in peace and common humanity, and enlightenment and higher consciousness and everything else, we'd come together around fear and militarism. This is like the one world government that is like possibly yeah. coming down the pipeline. Or oh, probably. that already exists. I mean, yeah. the group that is running this is a transnational, meaning it's not just in the United States. It, it crosses geopolitical boundaries. So when I go up and meet with top secret people here in Washington, which I've been doing a great deal of lately. The first thing I tell them is look at a map of the world, erase all the geopolitical lines. They don't exist for the group we're dealing with. Mm-hmm. It's transnational, not international. Okay. And they operate with alacrity all over the world. Uh, and they have enormous amounts of funding. We estimate that just out of the U.S. covert programs over the decades, it's around eight to ten trillion dollars have been taken and spent on these programs. Uh, so it, it's a huge issue and a big problem on many levels, uh, because not least of which is not only is it the future of how we view ourselves in the universe and, and whether we become a civilization on, on an extinction level path of endless war. But remember that the technologies and go back and look at the CNN footage of our Navy uh, F-18 Hornets chasing that what they call the Tic Tac off the coast of California, right. that white Tic Tac looking thing. Well, by the way, that was made by the Lockheed Skunk Works. I know people who've been present when it's been loaded on C-130 cargo planes. It's ours. It's anti-gravity. What does it mean? It's an electromagnetic field propulsion. And if that were acknowledged, it would be the end of oil, gas, coal, nuclear power, solar, wind, geothermal, all of it. So uh, now people need to understand what a big statement that is. It means that we have about 100 years where we haven't needed to destroy the biosphere or had half the world in poverty. But the power around the petrodollar system from after World War II, Bretton Woods, the power around all those commodities and all the corporate structures, your public utilities, all of that is something we don't need, frankly. Actually, we're going to have a movie, a full-length feature film coming out soon called The Lost Century, How to to Regain It. Uh, The subtitle is How to Regain It. And we just finished it. We hope it comes out June, July. 
this year. And it's going to be a two-hour feature film. It's going to pull the curtain back on all of this to the public. So it seems like, this might be a silly question, but it seems like there's so many people that are potentially getting quite old that are part of this control group. Does that bode well for us that the powers will be transitioning that or or will it not or 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 do we need to worry about someone like a Elon Musk or you know who is it that it is that we need to worry about and do you think that the transition is happening into something else because it's been going on for essentially like a generation it's been going on for uh, about four generations so uh in reality it's gone through multiple levels of evolution the big question in my mind, since now there's a pathway for the disclosure of all this to begin to happen in earnest, officially. Now, my project called the Disclosure Project, which started as Project Starlight in the 90s when we were doing briefings for the Clinton administration and members of Congress quietly. And I'm a, you know, emergency doctor and I would <laughs> fly up from my hospital in North Carolina and do these meetings in Washington. It was a crazy life, you know, with four little children. I have four daughters. One of the things that I, I discovered in that process is that the president of the United States at the time was not briefed on this. Neither was his CIA director. Members of the Senate Intelligence Committee and other and chairman of key committees like the government, House Oversight Committee that oversees the government. He came to a briefing I did. He said, I have never been able to get an answer on this. This is deep black. And these are people who are have top secret clearances in the U.S. government. I then ended up briefing the head of intelligence for the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Admiral Tom Wilson, J2. It's called J2. And he puts, you know, he's in charge of the intelligence briefings for the whole Joint Chiefs of Staff. And it was at the Pentagon. And he clearly said, you know, he was not only not allowed into the projects, he knew they existed, but he was threatened for asking about them. He was threatened with demotion and, and worse. So I think one of the problems is there's an unconstitutional criminal operation. There's no other, there's no way to put lipstick on that pig, uh, that has uh, gotten out of control since the fifties. I think, I think Eisenhower on his watch, no fault of his own, had, was outmaneuvered and the, uh, this covert group escaped constitutional oversight by the president. So is there just one main group? Uh, if there, you know, we are with, uh, let's call them, uh, ancillary support and Chris is very compartmentalized. I know people who've worked on very high level projects and they won't know what the person in the next cubicle is working on. It's TSSCI, top secret special compartmented information. And that's all done all the time. But this one is one that's deep black instead of black. Now, for example, I've met with people who manage the black budget of the United States, but they were denied access to the UFO, UAP, extraterrestrial issue, but they knew it was going on. You know, the mainstream media doesn't want to touch this. It's the third rail of, of uh, politics and, and what have you, but also the economy. The children of Earth are living on a planet that is headed towards sort of an extinction level event environmentally and also in terms of war when it's completely unnecessary. So I let, I, as an emergency doctor, I always joke, I know an emergency when I damn well see one, and this is an emergency, and we need to move on. We need to get this resolved and bring all this information and technologies out 
And by the way, we need to have enlightened people making contact with these civilizations and not a bunch of sociopaths and, and criminals. What is it that the that this group wants to put into effect that they're going to use the mechanism of fear for? Because as you said, if there's a false flag, it's to bring mm-hmm. people together, but not in unity and love and mm-hmm. hope and joining right. hands. It's a, a fear-based coming together. So sure. you know, with, with the mechanism of fear, what is mm-hmm. it that they want to implement? It's about power and global power at a large scale. I mean, everyone knows as a matter of public record now, even mainstream media, PBS, uh, CBS 60 Minutes have reported that uh, uh, the vice president, Dick Cheney, fabricated um, false information about Saddam Hussein having weapons of mass destruction in Iraq that justified us going in to Iraq and invading Iraq after 9-11. Yeah. It turns out that Colin Powell, who had been chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and at that time was Secretary of State, was completely gaslit by the intelligence operation in the West Wing by Dick Cheney, not by W, not by George W. Bush. And he was sent up to the United Nations holding up vials of yellow cake uranium, saying this is what Saddam Hussein has, he's a threat to our national security. It's all come out now that was all fabricated out of thin air. And so we have trillions of dollars spent, hundreds of thousands of people dead over a concocted. So you don't have to go back to ancient history to see how this happened. So I tell people, unfortunately, people don't follow these things very well. I mean, it's not like it's sort of hidden in plain sight. There'll be a little bit of news reporting and it vanishes. And the next thing anyone cares about is, you know, Kim Kardashian's uh, bra size or whatever it is, is, you know, important. Uh, excuse me for my sarcasm, but um, yeah, they want to know how she lost weight. That's totally what they want to know these days. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, you know, deep underneath this, it's really a story of uh, power, but also what the power that's behind uh, new science and technologies. Imagine if you had a device that would fit on that table where you are that would run your house or even a small pack that would run your car, never have to be plugged into the grid. So all Tesla cars, for example, which are fake, a real Tesla would not have to be plugged in. You know, if you're plugging it into the grid, it's 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 not a real Tesla. Tesla actually had a technology where he had an electric car running without it being plugged in, pulling energy out of the electromagnetic field around it. So I think that this is the sort of thing where you go, well, you know, J.P. Morgan told Tesla, if we can't put a meter on it, we don't want it to come out. That's right. Well, this, what was true in the 20s is true 100 years later in 2023. So the more things change, the more they stay the same. And so I think that, you know, we're talking about something that would liberate the planet from poverty and pollution and all this. But it would also th- th- this centralized power that has evolved from the big industrial yeah. interests in the 1800s and 1900s that would dissipate. Because in every village, every town, every individual would be self-sufficient. And these are called, just so people have a scientific name, quantum vacuum or, or zero-point energy uh, systems. And they're electromagnetic field systems. I'm not going to put everyone to sleep with the physics of it, but we know what the physics uh, is. And, in fact, uh, Dr. Uh, Casimir proved the zero-point field in, 19, in the 1950s. So, you know, I mean, about the time, you know, I was born and, you know, I think that this is why people this is why this next documentary 
is going to actually document from the early 1900s to now, what do we have in these covert programs? Who's kept them secret and why? Uh, and that's what's going to be in the lost century. And um, I hope you can come to the premiere when we get the date fixed. Yeah, that would be, I'm sure it'd be just as awesome as every other film that you've made. What are you most afraid of right now? I don't have personal fear, although I've certainly been threatened. You know, with what you do, there's always a risk for the sort of uh, things that you talk about and expose. But but within the realm of shifts within the world, what is it that you are the most afraid will come through or come to fruition? I think my biggest fear is the extent to which the public and the media can be manipulated like we saw in the last month or on a much higher scale. Similar to what happened, I know this controversial during COVID, where now even the World Health Organization has said the lockdowns were counterproductive, et cetera, and so on. And as a doctor, every doctor I know knew that in March of 2020. I don't know a single, well, except some idiot bureaucrats in the government. But but honestly, every clinical smart doctor I know knew that. Um, they know science. They know clinical medicine. But so you see how easy it is to to pull the trigger on something, get all the media lined up around a narrative, gaslight the entire population, but with huge consequences. You know, it's estimated that about 10 times as many people globally died from the lockdowns, from disease and lack of access to health care and, and famine than who died from the virus. So you have to ask the question. Uh, you know, how, how easy it is to sort of manipulate people unless, as Eisenhower said, there is an informed and awake citizenry, which would be us, us, you know, ordinary people. I'm not in government. I mean, I know everyone, a lot of people, but I'm not in that. I'm not elected. I'm not appointed. I'm a private citizen. However, that is so, I'm really worried that a man who came to me in the mid nineties, um, who had been on an interagency deep black project group. He says, he says, I was on a committee in 1974. So almost 50 years ago where we could push a button. The skies would be filled with all kinds of these man-made UFOs. They could attack or do certain actions. Wow. And it, and it, and it would be, you know, it would create such fear. And he said, because the president and the Congress don't know we have these assets they would be stampeded into all kinds of responses. And so would the public and the press. So when he, and I, if he was the only man I had met with who had been in a top secret operation like that, I would have discounted it. But I've met many of them who know about this agenda. And so that is my biggest concern is that if the, if the public and the media aren't aware of all this and the president and the National Security Council are, and most of the Congress, virtually all of them, then they could all be deceived in this kind of operation. So I think that's my biggest concern. And when I was on a, I was on a four week trip until recently and all this nonsense broke, you were, and I were texting back and forth. And I said, yeah, this is what we predicted. Most people who look at my materials from the nineties went, wow, you know, Dr. Greer was saying that this is the kind of direction they're going to move in in the future. So my concern is that as we move forward with dispositive disclosure on this. And now the Congress has gotten behind a pathway to do that, that they could actually push that button. Mm. Um, and, and that's a very big concern of mine. 
sounds like there's a sector of people that are uninformed. And so a lot of that. Everybody. Yeah. So (laughs) what are the questions that you get when you do these presidential briefings and everybody at the top of their top of their group? what, 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 What kind of questions are they asking you? Like the ones you're asking, they don't know anything. I mean, interestingly, I mean, it, it was I remember meeting years ago back in the early 2000s with a member of the Senate Intelligence Committee, who ironically was from the state of Nevada, which is where Area 51, Nellis Air Force Base is. And uh, it's very funny how that meeting happened. I was put on a, one of those little golf courts, uh, golf carts at McCarran Airport in Las Vegas. Yes. And I was we were, I was moved in clandestinely to what looked like a janitor's closet, and it ended up being a, a place where VIPs could meet. And the senator and his chief of staff were in there, and we have this very extensive meeting about this. And you know, he says, "Look, you know, this is my home state. I'm on the Senate Intelligence Committee. I have a I've heard these things, but I have never been briefed on it or read into it." So now you take that experience that I've had here and all over the world with senior government officials, and they're really, I feel very compassionate for them because everyone thinks, oh, you're the president, you're this general, you're this cabinet member. Most of them don't know anything. The ones who have known things, like Vice President Cheney, he was on this covert deep black committee since 70s and 80s, um, way back. And they're embedded in various places in government. But their job is to actually turn to their colleagues. Let's say you're a corrupt senator or congressman who knows about this. Because you're part of a club, it's like doctors believe each other, lawyers believe each other, NASCAR racers. Um, But here's what happens. They turn to their peerage, let's call it, and say, oh, none of this is true. If it were true, I would know about it, Not, you know. I've been involved in all kinds of projects, and this is what they're trained to do. There's actually a facility on my way out to Charlottesville, Virginia, where Thomas Jefferson's house is. You go by a town called Culpeper, Virginia, and out in the country there, there's a place simply called The Farm. And this is where they take people to learn how to very professionally and convincingly lie, deceive. They could pass polygraphs, but I know people who've gone through The Farm. And um, it's a very effective training program, but diabolical in many ways. Uh, not for normal, let's call it spycraft, but for folks doing this, where they're actually involved in a criminal and illegal operation that nobody is allowing the key people. Now, remember in the Constitution, if, if you do things that, you know, the reason I'm saying these pro- programs are unconstitutional and, and, and criminal is that I can prove in a court of law from all the people I briefed that, and it's not just our country, United Kingdom, Australia, Canada, that if you're at that level, let's say you're the head of the Defense Intelligence Agency, Danica, which is like the CIA for the for the military, the CIA civilian Defense Intelligence Agency for the whole military. And I have briefed the director, the head guy at the DIA, he wasn't given the told, told where the washroom was on this issue. And so I was actually brought in to brief him at his conference room. And he went over, this is really kind of comical. He went over to his bookshelf and he grabs a little, uh, like you'd get at a toy store, a little ET doll. And he says, 
This is all I've ever got from my inquiries through channels at the Defense Intelligence Agency. Someone just was making fun of me. So I'm going, yes, I'm not surprised that's happened because I, prior to you, briefed all these other senior officials who have been also denied access. When In 93, when I met with the director of the CIA and learned that he and the president had been denied access, that's when I knew we were in big trouble. So if they don't know anything, and if they're not part of this deep black covert group, are they so bad? Is the government so bad? Are they a different level of it, maybe? Like a, mm-hmm. just a one step below? Can we trust the government? Oh, well, I, don't, I think even the founding fathers would say you never just trust the government. That's why we're <laughs> supposed to have the fourth estate, the media and the public and elections. But the problem is, is if that if you can't blame people for what they don't know or don't even know the questions to ask. So getting back to your point, many of the things that people are, when I meet with these sort of folks, that what they're asking is, to be honest with you, they know less than someone who has looked at the documentary unacknowledged, which you can still see for free on Amazon Prime or Hulu or, or Tubi or whatever, because they're so busy with a million other pressing issues that this issue, until it gets put on their radar, and and, and they, people, someone says, you need to take a look at this. Yeah. But these people are very busy. I mean, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's very hard to get them to focus on something that has been deliberately relegated to the realm of coups and conspiracy theory. It's going to rise to the top of the rise to the top of the uh, to do list, though, with everything that's been going on lately, it seems. It is. It's beginning to get there. And uh, now the problem is about a year ago, I'll say this. I need to be careful what I'm saying here. In February of 2022, I was contacted by an extremely senior person who had been tasked with looking into this. And this was someone who should have had an all access pass on everything black budget and classified. Uh, He's at that level. And he said, uh, you know, I know that we're being deceived and that we now realize that they have been chasing their tails for a couple of years um, since the first bill was passed, mandating that the government and the Pentagon report to Congress on this. But they've never gotten anything meaningful. So this guy turned to me, he says, can you help us? I said, oh, yeah. What do you want? So we're in this secure facility. Um you know, a SCIF is a secure compartment and information facility. Uh, it's you know, classified and you, you give up your cell phone and it's electronically, so all this stuff. Um, and I gave him everything. So I'm still, what I'm doing right now, I have handed off a, about a four or five terabyte hard drive that is a massive intelligence collection that we have. And I, in it, I named every facility, every corporation, where the gates are, where the deep underground bases are, et cetera. And based on that in the last year, they've been able to hit pay dirt. They've been able to get in. Um, but it's dangerous. I mean, it's, it's very dangerous. I mean, there, you know, <laughs> we got put on the, the watch group list, which is the kill list. Were um, the uh, men in black just about to show up? Are the men in black real? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, they're just operatives. I mean, they're just sort of, and some of them are sort of these weird um kind of uh, quasi-drone operatives. Uh, you know, people need to remember that, you know, most, like the, the one of the man, men I just debriefed uh, last spring was at Nellis on a, on a team retrieving 
both extraterrestrial and man-made UFOs that, that will be in the ET ones that we electromagnetically directional energy weapons hit down. Uh, but the man-made ones. Are we doing that all the time? Not. Are we doing that all the time? Well, we've documented 119 cases where these objects have been targeted and downed. And that is going to be revealed. It is in the hard drive. Now, here's some news for your folks. You're invited to come on June 10th and 11th in Washington, D.C. We're going to hold a conference at the JW Marriott between the White House and the Congress about all of this. And then on the 12th of June, Monday, we're having a massive national press club event where this, all of this is going to be unveiled and we're going to turn it over to the media and to the Congress and say, go get them. And we are not, the only thing I'm redacting are the personal names of top secret guys and women who want to be kept secret and their cell numbers and emails and stuff. What but I have a number of them now at the national press club, because I know you had that coming out party with everybody you know, yes. what year was that? That was in 2001. So this right. will be Disclosure Project 2.0. Okay. So we, so we have about 10 times more whistleblowers <laughs> and evidence than we did in 2001. And uh, it's something that's important that we do this. And I'd like to have a lot of folks like you there with your podcast covering it. Yeah. What? Um, and by the way, I still need that NASCAR trip. Oh, yes, of course. I've, I've never been in one. I grew up poor in the South. We couldn't afford to go to a race. I've always wanted to be in one of those cars going around a track. So, girl, we got to. I'll be. Well, first off, I'll ride. come and I'll be your personal escort. If the if shit goes down, I'll get you out of it. Um, we got some Navy SEALs that are going to be there protecting us. And yeah, I would imagine. What mm-hmm. do you say to people? Because one of the things that you hear so commonly mm-hmm. from you know, people that like someone like I'm coming to mind, like Neil deGrasse Tyson, which I, he's a very mm-hmm. smart guy. But one of the things that he says are, is that where is the evidence? Like, where <laughs> is the evidence? And all I'm thinking is I'm like, I don't know. It's everywhere. Like, it's like the walls of the pyramids. It's in the video footage that you find. And so what do you say and what would be the most critical pieces of evidence that you would say that you would counter that argument to well that's a canard and and you i always say to people you're either completely ignorant of the subject and haven't studied it or you are deliberately lying now i don't know the man that you mentioned Uh, i do know that someone who is similar to him his predecessor carl sagan was on the payroll of the cia to gaslight people on this that i know for a fact his two closest friends are on my team So, and one of them had been best man at his wedding. So, you know, whether or not that gentleman, I don't know. But all I would say is there's a book called Disclosure that is 500 and some pages of government documents, cases, radar cases of these objects, top secret military witnesses and their transcripts that anyone who wants it can go and download it right this instant. There's a follow-up book called Unacknowledged that went with the documentary Unacknowledged. We have put online all manner of content. But if someone isn't going, you, you know, you, you can lead someone to water. You can't make them drink. Uh, but I think in some cases, this is willful blindness. And what I have found is, like, I was debating one of these kind of characters at Purdue University who was a skeptic from NASA. 
And it was the aerospace engineering department for masters and PhD people and, and, and their uh, professors. And what was interesting is this guy is a professional debunker, disinformation guy. Uh, I think he's retired now. His name's James Oberg. Uh, and he was out of NASA, Houston, I believe. And, um, so we're going to do this debate in front of this huge auditorium and we're having lunch beforehand, sort of in the faculty area. He looks around when no one could hear him and says to me, you're finding the truth. Don't give up. Don't ever give up. He gets up then on stage and he and the moderator are totally against me at debunking everything I have and attacks me, calls me everything from a mind control expert, getting all these top secret guys to lie to a fabricator of top secret documents, even though they have their official declassification stamps on it, basically called me every ad hominem vicious name you can think in front of 800 people. Now, it didn't fool anyone, but, you know, he, he was paid to do that. That is his job. Um, and, you know, so when people are irrationally closed-minded, I, I'm a skeptic. The only reason I found out that, you know, the whole UFO zeitgeist of alien abductions and mutilations, I found out I ended up meeting with people who had been in these deep black projects who were staging those events. I'm very skeptical about most of what's out there. If you just Google this subject, it's just an avalanche of nonsense. Uh, but I tell people, yes, we have endless numbers of cases. And you, how many do you need? I mean, you know, I have multiple of what I'm about to describe. A case where, for example, in uh, the 80s, there was a Japan Airlines 747 heavy cargo jet going from Paris to Tokyo. And a huge extraterrestrial vehicle, the size of multiple, like bigger than a battleship, appeared and was on the, the captain of the Japan Airlines 747. It was on his radar. It was on ground radar civilian, and it was on military radar. Radar. Military jets were scrambled. A whole report came out of this. The head guy at the FAA here in Washington uh, had received all the radar tapes and all the digital data from that. And he ended up, it, he, there was a meeting where the CIA came in and says, we're taking everything. This is never going to be talked about. And they tried to cover it up. But if you look at my YouTube channel, you'll look up John Callahan. And when he left the FAA, he had kept the originals of that event, radar. I have them in my archive. So here's the problem. How many cases do you need like that where there are multiple corroborating data on this object, which was moving nonlinearly, meaning it would be at two o'clock and in one radar sweep would be 100 miles away instantly, almost like teleporting across the skies. Now, that sort of evidence, if I had one case like that, it'd be, but we have dozens I think there are uh, several hundred of these sort of radar and pilot cases. So who goes in to collect? Because there's obviously been bodies, crafts. Who collects them? Is this part of the deep black group or is this yeah. the government or it, who, who is going and making sure that nobody sees this stuff? Well, it's a deep black group that's hybrid government private, let's call it. Um, and so a, a man, if one of our disclosure project witnesses who passed away a couple of years ago, 
Sergeant Clifford Stone in the 60s was on one of these teams. The cover for the team was an NBC team, which is nuclear, biological, and chemical. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they sometimes these guys start out doing conventional cleanups and retrievals, and then they graduate to other things like this. So there's a man that just surfaced in the last few months who was in the 2000s more recently on one of these teams. And it was run by a Delta Force group out of the northern range of the Nellis uh, range where, where Nellis Air Force Base is. And, of course, further south is the so-called Area 51 facility. But they were way north. And they would have there was a helicopter base and the helo base would deploy to areas to retrieve objects. Now, when he first was recruited, it was to recruit to, to retrieve like a, when there's an accident with a helicopter or an Osprey or a military jet, because there are components on that that are classified, you know, technologies and whatnot. So and then suddenly he got moved into another level where he was then first retrieving the man-made ARVs, alien reproduction vehicles, which we're going to show a dozen of them in this film. And at the press club, we're going to, we're going to actually have drawings. We have pictures. They're all going to be on the, on the, on the screen. People are going to go WTF. So this guy would, would began to get read into doing that for a few of these. Then the thing that made him want to leave the operation was they had electronically stunned. Uh, I think it was about. A hundred foot diameter. I have to look at my notes. Uh, extraterrestrial vehicle, which came down out way out in the northern Nevada test range, and they were deployed to retrieve it. And some things did not go well. Uh, but basically, they were not able to acquire that device. Um, the ET technologies were pretty much able to put sort of everyone in sort of stasis. It's hard to describe. A sort of frozen. Um, but he did get to see two of the ETs, a male and a female. And we have drawings. So we're going to show all the drawings. We're going to show what the crap was. And then when he was trying to escape from that program, the covert deep black project attempted to threaten him with death, but also they tried to abduct him. And he fought off this little gray alien and he kicked it. And what looked like skin opened up, and there were all these integrated circuits and wires. It was a sort of a, a robotic, Robot. yeah, but very sophisticated. We looked, and but they move rather uh, robotically. But ninety nine point nine percent of the people said, "Oh, it's a gray alien, or it's a whatever." And and those are made by I know the yeah, people because- who make make those. I know guys who've designed them and worked on them. So I mean, are some of the extraterrestrials robots? I mean, it seems like. If we like, I mean, look what's happening in our world right now and look at the look at AI and look at the robot situation. And you mm-hmm. know, I just watched a video of a robot playing basketball and shooting mm-hmm. a basket basket. Right. And um, so it would make mm-hmm. perfect sense if you wanted to go explore corners of the mm-hmm. universe or galaxy, at least that mm-hmm. you would go mm-hmm. send a you'd go send a robot. You wouldn't send a biological human. Is that what we're coming into communication with most of the time or are we with biological extraterrestrials there are both but usually they're biological uh, but they do have that asset let's call that technology but remember the entire spacecraft of an extraterrestrial spacecraft is sort of on a nano bio machine level where it's on a nanomolecular level it's sort of connected to the 
biological and conscious, let's say, thought aspect of their consciousness. By the way, that's the foundation of the other documentary. Yeah. I think when we first met, uh, Close Encounters of the Fifth Time, where people can learn to make contact because, you know, you and I are talking on this thing that's at the speed of light. But if you're from the Andromeda galaxy, like that ET that came to us in Joshua Tree, by the way, we're going to be out there in April if you want to come, mm-hmm. um, National Park. Uh, and that being was from the Andromeda. So that's two and a half million light years it's out of our galaxy. So at the speed of light, even if they could travel at the speed of light and communicated in two and a half million years to say, hello, dear, how are you this morning? And another two and a half million years to answer back from their base, their star system. So we know that their technologies are bypassing linear space and well, we, the we don't really light. understand quantum entanglement really yet. So, yeah, you know, maybe once we do, we do. they do. Yes, we do. We do? What is Covert it? program. Yeah, so the way to look at it is that the ultimate entangled aspect is the consciousness field. But right. that has, you have to kind of redo the whole cosmology, which I've done. It's actually up on our YouTube channel. But this gets to a deep dive of stuff. But Good. from the uh, the sort of undifferentiated conscious field, how does all of that, which is infinite and, and omnipresent, how from that do we get, you know, this glass of water? Well, that's known. I mean, that's something that in the Vedas was described. Science is now done. Okay, we have a caller, so we're going to call on you. Ah, I heard uh, Stephen Greer talking, Dr. Stephen Greer. Is that true? Yes. Well, it's been a while, my friend. Yes, it's many years. Many, Martin Horst from ET First Contact Radio at your service. Yes. (laughs) How can we be of service to you today? Well, uh, I just want to share some experiences with you, if I may. Sure. Well, you know, uh, the Netherlands has become a hell. It's really very difficult to live here. I just want to start by a little story. When I uh, discovered something in uh, 2011, it's a long time ago, I traveled to Antwerp where I lived. And what happened is that just, you know, I was just talking to you back in 2011. I interviewed you uh, that year a couple of times. Uh, so I was walking around in that city, and um, I saw a red spot on my arm from a laser. And um, they were pointing at me with a sniper. So I run like hell. And uh, that's just an example. Uh, another example is that uh, I had to close my, close my radio station a couple of months ago. The threats have been enormous. Mm-hmm. Um, arrests, you know, uh, journalists are being attacked. Um, I've been detained uh, for no reason for the so-called uh, making the Hitler greeting. It was it's so difficult and dangerous here now. <clears throat> and just, you know, by disclosing stuff, I had to close my Facebook, my YouTube channel. Oh my. And getting death threats all the time, death threats and that kind of stuff, you know. It's uh, very, really, really extremely, extremely dangerous in Europe. Martin, you know what's going on is that there's so many more people that are having 
uh, uh, galactic experiences that they're, uh-huh. they're, they're clamping down. They don't want that to come out. Mm-hmm. It's pretty. I just uh, found an interesting, I just found an interesting book. I have it here. Uh, the translation of M. Doriel, the Emerald Tablet of Thoth, the Atlantean. Right. We all know that book. Yes, the Emerald Tablets, 15 of them. The Secret of Secrets. But you have to be very, very careful with those, uh, you know. I, by the way, I speak Hebrew fluently. Shalom. Uh, oh. Uh, <laughs> about all I don't yes, know. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, um, I'm doing my thing here and uh, trying to survive. And I'm greeting you all from here. And, um, you know... Uh, I'm following the politics uh, on the foot in the whole world. Um, they banned Russia today everywhere, so that's difficult. Uh, but I have, you know, ways to bypass. And uh, But any, anyway, um, maybe uh, Dr. Dr. Stephen Greer, he was explaining something about deep space and dimensions and uh, the Vedics uh, and the Akasha records, I guess. So um, maybe uh, I won't take too much of your time and... Uh, let anybody jump in who wants. Uh, passing the talking stick now. Oh, thank you, Martin. Thank you, Martin. Um, Rama, you want to say anything? I could just say that, yeah, journalists around the world are, in a sense, you know, being targeted because whether the 13 families like it or not, the truth is coming out. And it's not about how how much money you have. It's about love. You can't put a price on yes. that. Yes. I would just say that lay low right now because yeah. they are out for blood. Oh, yeah. And, uh, oh, yeah. Well, we're really grateful and we're going to send good vibrations your way. And blaze the violet Thank fire. You. Blaze the fire, Saint Germain, violet flame. That song, <laughs> I kept. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank we you. We better Martin. go back to this. Okay, we're gonna go and continue now. See what, what's to finish here with Dr. Greer. Thank you, Martin. Namaste. Mm-hmm. Namaste. An experimentation with consciousness and thought that proves that it can interface with a quantum uh, random number generators, for example, like Dr. John at Princeton, who who I knew before he passed away. So I think there's a great deal of evidence and research on this. Now, what we what we don't quite have, I know Elon Musk is trying to get there with Neuralink, is a reliable way where I can just think to this computer and it it does what my thought is. All right. People are doing things with brain waves and all that stuff, but that's at the speed of light. I'm talking about the quanta of thought, the yeah. speed of thought. And the extraterrestrial civilizations, they have both the innate ability, mm-hmm. let's call it telepathy and remote viewing, like the CIA remote viewing program, where it's just consciousness connecting. But they also, interestingly, have what I call CAT and TAC. Is they have technologies that connect with consciousness. Okay, so you can have something where your consciousness is augmented by a technology, but also 
Where like your augment conscious the, augment the cup, augment the glass, augment the craft. Mm-hmm. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yes. And actually make things happen through thought, but mm-hmm. also your ability to do so can be enhanced through some of these technologies. Because it's um, your it's they, your perception of the situation. It's your viewing of it. It's you right. paying attention to it with your consciousness that creates it. Because mm-hmm. now non-locality has been proven that like the, nothing is here unless you observe it, like an atom and object. Right. So right. that is what it's oper- is operating at that level. Mm-hmm. Well, and even the father of modern quantum mechanics and particle wave theory, Erwin Schrödinger said in I think 1908, the total number of minds in the universe is one. It's a singularity. So I tell AI people, the actual singularity you're looking for, you have it already. You're conscious and you're awake. You just have to study the science of consciousness. But see, when you're dealing with civilizations that are interstellar, there's no way that they could go from one star system to another using linear speed of light communication or travel. It's too far. So now you're dealing with technologies that are what are called trans-dimensional physics. Mm-hmm. And that has been studied uh, for decades in classified projects. I've been studying it pretty much my whole life. Well, since I was uh, 17 when I died, I had a near-death experience, and I went, wow, you know, there's something more in the cosmos. So I started studying consciousness and meditation before I was a doctor, became a meditation teacher, and was this itinerant meditation teacher going around the world But um, in my misspent youth. But... It was fun. What a great, what a great skill to have from an early mm-hmm. age. Probably yes. played pretty well into your, into your practice as a doctor as well. <laughs> oh, it did. I, t- I can tell a lot of great stories. I think every doctor should go through a meditation training program so that they have not only the science they need, but the heart and the consciousness. Um, because I had, like, I had a, a boy come in. Um, well, boy, young man, 26, and he, uh, he came in with all the symptoms of the flu. And it was flu season. And so the nurse put him in a regular medical room. I was busy with a lot of it. He was pretty sick. So I went in and saw him. He had two kid, two little kids and his wife. I looked at him and I could see. It's like remote. You know, I could feel and see. You know how dogs can pick up things. It's sort of like a giant dog if dogs weigh 230 pounds. And, and I literally saw that he had a brain tumor. Oh. And he didn't have any, all of his symptoms were the flu, fever, chills, uh, nausea, vomiting, da, 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 da. And I said, I, I, you know, I just, again, I just saw it. And I told, turned to the nurse, I said, I want a stat CT scan of the head. And she, he, she just got, she was North Carolina. Well, honey, he's only got the flu. I loved it. I said, just do it. That was my mantra. Just do it. You know, so back then we didn't have every, you know, Bean counter bureaucrat in the government insurance companies looking over your shoulder 24 seven. You just order it and get it. Yeah. Cause this was back in the nineties. And so he goes back and they call back with an emergency callback. He's herniating his brain stem. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? The tumor, it was an astrocytoma, like a pancake over the top of his brain, but it had gotten big enough with the swelling. It was pushing. The brain stem down through the opening at the base of the skull and it was hitting the, all the parts of the, that part of the brain that caused fever, nausea, all the symptoms of the flu. But he didn't have the flu at all. In 12 hours, if I sent him home with some flu medicine, he would have died in 12 hours. So I tell people, I mean, it's kind of a bizarre story, but 
that sort of thing happens a lot once you right. um, become, you know, a, a, aware of the fact that it's a consciousness whereby you and I and all humans and all ETs have it is an infinite field. And so this is actually a very exciting area of science and should have been. Uh, yeah. but, 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 you know, but that's also something that the intelligence let's, community doesn't want people to know. Right. Let's talk about that because, you know, I feel like, I feel like even this, there's just a general sort of thought or belief mm-hmm. that there's technologies being withheld for healing purposes. Oh, definitely. So, you know, coming from not only, of course, what you're doing right now, but your medical background and all of the people that you know, mm-hmm. what, I mean, what is it? Uh, I want to talk about the future, right? Like what could come along with healing? What could come along with energy and anti-gravity, all that kind of stuff? But let's start with healing. Mm-hmm. Are there healing modalities for cancer and very and 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 tumors and, um, you know, medical conditions that are life threatening? A hundred percent. Yes. And in fact, I was at a classified medical research facility in El Paso years ago on the border of Mexico. I think the actual facility might have tunneled down and was under under Mexico. Um, and they had technologies that were these very advanced transdimensional physics electromagnetic systems where they could repair a severed spinal column if, if say, someone's paralyzed from the, you know, and they had technologies where if you had a missing limb, you know, people have phantom pain. But if you study, it sounds very metaphysical, but there is what the mystics would call the astral body or body of light. Well, that energy field is still there. It's very subtle. Yeah. But they had technologies that could attach to that and then regrow the limb that was missing. So, I mean, as a doctor, I went in there and I went, wow. I mean, you know, because I'm using the best I have access to as a doctor at the time, which is, you know, kind of caveman era stuff when I think about it. Scalpels. But, um, scalpels and this, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and chest tubes and, you know, but it works. I mean, you know, you can say, hey, lives, I thank but, God for medical, like modern medicine right now. Like even yeah, as it is, yeah, it saves a right. lot of lives. But we could be so much further along. This right. is the point. So then, then you just extrapolate this across, uh, every other discipline, you know, um, one of the whole last part of the lost century, and actually there's a website for it, the lostcenturyfilm.com, because we crowdfund all of our, our, our films. We don't allow a corporation or a media company to fund it because I don't trust them. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? He, he who has the gold rules, you know, they're always going to want to take out stuff. I go, nope, I have final cut over this. <laughs> um, I have total control over what it goes out. Mm-hmm. But what happens is that, it, 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 you'll see in this last segment, the last part of that film is a whole, we, we, we spent a lot of money doing motion graphics showing what the world would look like after all this begins to come out in 50 years, 100 years, 200 years, 1,000 years, on and on. Because I predict that within about 20 years of the disclosure of these sciences, we would have no poverty in the world and no pollution. The world would be restored to a pristine state. Uh, and because most of the expense of everything is the energy associated with digging it up out of the ground, manufacturing it, shipping it. Think of that at every stage of that supply chain and 
what have you. It's all energy intensive. And where's the energy coming from? Oil, gas, coal, about, you know, 90%. We have a little bit of renewable, but it's almost trivial um, at this stage. And it, it's never going to be significant uh, until we bring out these high-tech classified technologies. But unfortunately, we estimate that there's over $800, $900 trillion in assets in these old dinosaur-era smokestack commodities and unfortunately, that's a lot of power and a lot of powerful interests. So we're, we're kind of stuck. You know, we either have to find a way to bring these technologies out and try to give as soft a landing as possible to everyone working in oil, gas, coal, public utilities. Cause you're not going to need a power company or transmission lines because every single home and business and your car will have its own electromagnetic power plant. And this is not an urban myth. By the way, this we will prove we have. You'll get it from the ground. The ground will be your. Uh, you're getting it from the fabric of space time. So think of it this way. If Tesla even was more with the ground, right? Tesla was from the ground. Magnetic, yes. Some of his. Now he, back then, he didn't quite know. He knew the effect with a very high voltage system. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of Faraday in the late 1800s, others, I'm not sure they quite understood the physics of it because it hadn't been elucidated. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is understood now, frankly. And, and I think that when the public understands what's at stake here, I think whether you're a good old boy like the guys I grew up with in North Carolina with a pickup truck or you're, you know, a policy wonk concerned about energy supply or the environment or what have you, you're going to say, well, may, if this is true, and it is, then we need to at least put some effort into an R&D effort. One of the, one of the punchlines of the film is not only showing the future, but showing the pathway to get there. How do we get from here to there? I think we need, here's what I think. I think we need to have an open source energy research lab. Now, you know, you need 50 to $100 million in seed money. But, I mean, in Silicon Valley, they put a billion dollars in every kind of lame brain idea every week. Um, <laughs> They really do. I mean, it's, you know, they're called unicorns. It's, you know, oh, somebody, yeah, you know, a, a new video to show your kitty cat playing the piano or some other frivolity. But I know, like commentary, but I think that really it would not be that difficult. I think in, within about two years of standing up an open source lab, open source means no patents, no intellectual property. And I would have the lab live streamed with blockchain backup so that every breakthrough we need a whole lot of people with no egos then well you have to have people who care about humanity and the earth and and gaia than about the almighty dollar um and you know i think that's possible there there are philanthropic people out there Um, i gave up my medical career to do this what's the role of you had mentioned it earlier and i had just thought of it because one of the questions i had was about the moon what's the role of nasa you know, if we like lost the technology, speaking about technology and, mm-hmm. you know, open sourcing and letting everyone contribute, it's like, what's the role of NASA right now? If you if you were to take every agency and part of the government, there would be a very small, highly compartmented, deep black aspect of it. So that does exist in NASA. All of them. Now, that means 99 plus percent of everyone that works for NASA has no knowledge of it. Uh, my uncle was Northrop Grumman that had the contract to build a lunar module that landed on the moon the first time with Neil Armstrong. 
And uh, as a little boy, that was a cool thing to be involved with. But um, the, the reality is he was not read in to this level at all because he was dealing with jet thrusters and rockets and all that. Um, so I think that, you know, the best way to describe it is I have a very good friend who used to work for a JPL, Jet Propulsion Labs in California. And he, he, Dr. Richard Haynes and, uh, he worked with me in the nineties on a lot of this. And he said, yeah, NASA, we call it white collar welfare. These are two, we know we're not doing anything. I mean, those of us who understand this subject, you know, we're making nice salaries and we're doing make believe whatever. And we're we have putting, the uniforms and the helmets, uh, but what? Yeah, and we're, and we're putting, you know, I told someone that Elon, the SpaceX with Elon Musk, yeah. I said rockets were really cool in the 40s and 50s. But right now it's like, really? Come on, dude. Um, but I mean, he doesn't want to touch this because I think he, he thinks, you know, he'd be assassinated or something. Why, why, why did we lose the technology to go to the moon? We didn't lose the technology. It just the ones that were these anti-grav devices. Um, they never wanted the public to know the traditional rocket systems um, and going there and that put the kibosh on that after the landing, because when we landed, there were other assets there. What was there? If you look, if you read the unacknowledged book that goes with the documentary, you'll see there's a testimony from a great guy named Carl Wolf. He was out here at Langley Air Force Base at a national security agency, highly compartment and operation where he saw in 1968 the early digital downloads of what was called the lunar orbiter that was going around the moon, mapping the moon so we'd know where to land in 1969. And in... And some of those images were ancient structures, uh, and also there were some newer ones, structures. Now, this is 1968. Is this on the dark side of the moon? Is this the side that we don't ever see? It was in the area between where the, 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 where the light that we see and the dark, that area. Uh, as the moon, of course, the moon spins, but it's just the way it's with us, we always see that one side. But my point is, is that... Uh, when the sun's shining on it, anyway, it's just the motion of the moon and the earth and the sun. It was known that it was likely we were going to have something like that happen. So when we landed at the landing site, the Tranquility Sea, the crater above it was quote-unquote crowded with these UFOs sitting there. And I know this for a fact. Buzz Aldrin knows it. Neil Armstrong knew it. I tried to get Neil to come, Neil Armstrong to come forward. But he told his one his one of his best friends was worked with me and he says yes, but he's been told if he ever talks about that, he, his wife, his kids, and his grandchildren will be killed. They'll wipe them out. Yeah. So I said, Look, I'm not gonna force the issue, but I know what happened when we landed, I know what was there, you know, how it got covered up, how the signals were intercepted and things erased from the footage before the public would see it through a relay based out of Australia. At any rate, the the point I'm making is that, yes, I mean, so I think at a certain point it was decided maybe we shouldn't be going back. So they, they after a few more events, they sort of wound down that moon project. Uh, initially, we were going to build a, 
uh, a base up there and do all kinds of stuff. Now, keep in mind, it wasn't just extraterrestrial assets. There were man-made assets. Already on the moon? From before? From, yes. from the ancient times? No, from this covert group. So remember, let me give your folk, your listeners a date. October 1954 was the date we mastered what's called gravity control, these electromagnetic field systems. So uh, one of the things we're going to show in the lost century and at the National Press Club, the National Press Club event in June may happen before the film's out. I, I, the distributor's still trying to fix a date. But we're going to show that whole film at the, the two-day conference before the press club. Uh, on that Sunday evening. Uh, it's going to be the Washington, D.C. premiere of this. But in it, people are going to see the testimony and the drawings and the and the uh, artist rendition of this air show at Norton Air Force Base in 1988, where uh, we have someone who was in there, who, and we have the transcript of what he just saw and described that he gave, mm. that were three of these man-made, uh, circular UFOs. I think one was about 25, 30 feet, one was 50, and one was 100 feet. And they were just floating above in a hangar in a classified man-made. area. Man-made, uh, human-made. 100% man-made. And those how, were how did, kind they, how of, did they know they were man-made? Oh, it was clear. They were being shown as deep black classified aircraft. I mean, that's what it was. Um, and so... And it was really a pitch to, to, to certain people uh, to get more money for the project. But the man who saw this, the interior, the components were from the Mercury era, meaning late 50s, early 60s. And it, they, it had markings on it where it clearly, and they were told it had been all throughout the solar system. So we're talking late 1950s, early 1960s. We had electrogravitic anti-grav objects that had gone out of the Earth and around the solar system. If that technology existed in the 50s, which seems like when everything started to happen with interactions with extraterrestrials and perhaps crafts and reverse engineering things, did they do it that quick? Or was it, or is it, how long did it take them to create those? Okay, again. My name is Jim Rickards. I'm a former advisor to the CIA, Department of Defense, and the White House. In a moment, you'll have my own evidence that very few people have seen. You'll see how I believe two acts of democratic stupidity are about to combine. Okay, again, let's unpack that for a minute. We unpacked this in the lost century, this movie coming out. If you go all the way back to the late, mid to late 20s with uh, T. Townsend Brown and the Ikowski Frost experiment in England and Germany, there were very high voltage experiments where when you put very high voltage um, frequencies around certain crystalline materials or certain um, circuits, the darn thing would lift. And th- this was well documented actually in a physics journals back then in the late 20s. This is why I call this the lost century. It's a whole century of exotic, really cool science. And um, that was being worked on and studied eventually uh, what was called the B-field, B-I-E-F-I-E-L-D, B-field Brown effect from T. Townsend Brown and this other scientist became a real area of, of research. Now, that went forward and then Adolf Hitler, his secret program, we had the atomic bomb. He was working on these electrogravitic man-made sort of anti-gravity craft 
that would, you know, kick the, 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 the stuffing out of our, you know, um, Army Air Force during World War II. But he did not perfect that before the war ended. And so uh, Senator John Warner, who is the Republican senator who passed away last year, his son, uh, John Warner IV, I met with and we've interviewed him. And he talks about how his grandfather, his mother's father, Paul Mellon, one of the few billionaires in the world at the end of World War II, went over to Germany, got this disc. Now, there was the so-called Nazi bell. This is an actual disc. It was anti-gravity. And uh, Alan Dulles, who helped found the CIA, and, and Paul Mellon, and uh, George S. Patton went over there, secured it, brought it back to the United States at the end of World War II in 1945. Um, and then we had Operation Paperclip, where we brought over the most brilliant Nazi scientists like Werner von Braun, Hermann Oberth, others. Now, so the research that had been done, 20s, 30s, 40s, then got greatly boosted, let's say, by the downing and study of the extraterrestrial vehicles of the 1940s and 50s. So you had two big rivers combined in terms of scientific research, very black, very classified, that then resulted in this breakthrough where they actually were able to control accurately what they call gravity control and one of these electromagnetic devices. What Hitler had was unstable. And actually, the early ones that you see from the late 40s and 50s, in some of the old movies, you'll see this UFO and it looks like it's fluttering like this. That's a, that's a man-made one where they hadn't gotten the control of it mastered. It, it was unstable. Yeah, it wasn't a stable uh, flight system at that point. Okay. But where they got good gravity control was October 54. By the late 50s, we had the man-made ones. Unfortunately, they've also been used in simulating ET events with abductions and other things. So the, the public, not knowing what I just told all of you guys, are going to see something like this and go, oh, the aliens. Did. I said, yeah, right. That's a, that's one of my uncle's company's classified objects or a Lockheed Skunk Works object or a Raytheon triangle. Hmm. Okay, so now we're to the 60s. The three crafts are on the moon. And we. Well, no, what, I'm just saying these other crafts gone all through the solar. What, which yeah. ones were up on the moon? Yeah. I don't have enough information to know whether those were ours or extraterrestrial. Oh. It's quite possible when we landed on the moon, there were ETs who were there because they were concerned that the Apollo mission was a proxy for the Cold War and the Soviet and American competition. And I think there's a policy out there amongst these advanced civilizations that you don't go out into space unless it's in a peaceful, unified purpose. You don't do it for conquest and military purpose. I think it's a major directive from a, from these civilizations, which by the way, there are many, many of them. It's not just one. And so I think there is a policy not to let a primitive, um, violent, Civilizations such as ours too far out there. So I cannot tell you. That's us I right not, I personally have not seen the footage. I know people who have seen the footage of those objects that were at, of when we landed. Um, but I don't know from the description. I can't tell you if it was one of our man-made ones or an extraterrestrial. There are certain things you can tell. An extraterrestrial vehicle is seamless. 
even the light from it is unusual because it's so pure. A man-made one, if you're close enough to it, it's going to have seams, it's going to have rivets, it's going to have parts. The interstellar ones do not because of how they're manufactured, which we're also going to show in the movie. We're going to show actually how they bring from a trans-dimensional field of, of energy into 3D. It's like trans-dimensional 3D printing, but the whole craft is this integrated, seamless object. And so are their suits. Their suits uh, don't have buttons and zippers. They materialize on and off. I know, you know, how that's done, and they're very interesting technologies. So if you know what to look for, sure. you're not going to be fooled. But this is such a granular level of information. Um, and so for most people who would encounter a man-made UFO with critters that look like aliens, they're going to get tricked. You know? Yeah, sure, because we haven't seen any of it. Why are extraterrestrials interested in us? Well, I think there are two things. Uh, one, they see the great promise of humanity, but they also see that we're in a really big problem. Right now. <laughs> yeah. So if you look at the modern era, and this is not talked about often, and I want to emphasize this. If you look at the modern era of the UFO issue, it all started really in the 40s, and particularly when we detonated the first atomic bomb. Why? Not only was that like a big red flag going up over the planet saying, well, these gorillas are getting a little out crazy here. We're not even. Defeating a criminal who tried to attack you was surprisingly simple. You just need to follow the Romanian Rambo's two golden rules of self-defense. If you're not familiar with Matei, known in combative circles, Get there. We're 98% identical to gorillas and chimpanzees. Some of us more than others, speaking for myself. What I've learned is that everyone knows what an electromagnetic pulse is from an atomic bomb or nuclear bomb. What people don't hear about is that there is another uh, electromagnetic burst that goes faster than the speed of light. It's called longitudinal or scalar. And that actually tears the fabric of the universe. And it's not just localized to Earth. It actually disrupts communication and, let's say, trans-dimensional travel Mm -hmm. systems that are interstellar. So when those went off, it was a huge concern. Mm -hmm. And this is why all through... The 40s, 50s, 60s, there was surveillance by these ETs over all of our missile sites, nuclear weapons story. And it wasn't because they're hostile. Now, the way the media has begun to spun this and the UFO kooks is that it's an alien invasion of our nuclear silos. I'm going, get over yourselves. If they wanted to hit a button and terminate all life on this planet, they could do it instantly with what they have technologically. It was because our sciences have been misused for war. And when you cross the nuclear threshold, never mind interstellar transdimensional physics, which are even more potentially dangerous, if you haven't become socially and spiritually a peaceful planet living together in peace, you are an existential threat to yourself and to others. Now, I always use that term because as an emergency doctor, if someone comes in 
escorted by the police or family who are as dangerous to themselves or others, you can commit them because they're they're legally committable and insane or what have you. I think humanity right now is is viewed, unfortunately, collectively a bit insane that we've allowed all these things to happen. And until we become what Michikaku calls uh, a level one civilization where we're peaceful, not damaging the environment, a level one, well, we're a level zero. So a level one would be that. Now I've mapped out what a level 10 is. It's actually on my YouTube channel. Uh, it's oh, really, really great. Oh yeah, it goes all the way up to level ten. Okay, well, what's level two? <laughs> level. We can go through them. So level two, one. Let's describe it. Yeah. You you have these technologies out. You're not cannibalizing your environment, and poverty has been eliminated, and you're really peaceful because you don't have anything to fight over. Level two is when that's become stable enough that that is a permanent peace. It's not something that's going to come and go like we have these periods of peace and then war. It's a absolute permanent peace. And then a level three, then, you know, you're at that, the net, when you get to that point, you're cleared for interstellar. At that point, you can go out there. Um, and it keeps going up from there based on the level of consciousness of the planet in its aggregate. So um, meaning the development of higher states of consciousness, which I link back to the ancient Sanskrit Vedas and the cosmology that I learned when I was a young boy or young man. So, uh, but I think that's where all these civilizations are at least a level, most likely four to 10. If you get on the, I mean, we don't have time to go through all that, but they're very advanced. Um, and they're certainly not violent because if they were hostile and were intrinsically that unevolved, they would never have been allowed out of their solar system. Uh-huh. It's, it's a it's a, it's an absolute requirement. They were so is there really that, a galactic federation? Well, I, I mean, mean that's something you hear about <laughs> from you know spiritual people and psych people with psychic natures and you know you well, don't understand Akashic records and things like that and they'll mm-hmm. talk about the galactic mm-hmm. federations. There's an organization that's interstellar, galactic. Remember that the galaxy is the Milky Way, and it's only one of hundreds of billions of galaxies. Yes. So it's an incorrect term. Um, for example, this ET ambassador that we took a photo of that appeared at Joshua Tree a few years ago. He was from Andromeda. So it's intergalactic because he was, that's a two and a half million light years from here is the closest galaxy to our Milky Way. And our Milky Way has whatever it is a hundred billion star systems. Uh, and it's estimated upwards of a billion Earth-like planets just in our own Milky Way. But there are billions and billions of these galaxies. Um, and so I think that you have to really look at this in a more cosmic way to get your mind around the vastness of what we're dealing with. Now, not all the civilizations that exist in the cosmos would be tasked dealing with a civilization at our level, a level zero civilization that has not learned to be, you know, civilized. Because we're not. I mean, you know, there's a come to my emergency department on a Saturday night. I'll prove it to you. Um, so, you know, so that there, there's an evolutionary pathway, as I see it. And we're sort of emerging. We're sort of half a step out of the jungle. We're trying to emerge out of that. But the hallmark of it is we're peaceful. We're not killing each other. Wars have ended. We're not ruthlessly suppressing these technologies that could uh, eliminate poverty and hunger and 
uh, heal the planet as well as individuals. All that has gotten resolved. And that's, that's where we've been stuck for a hundred years. See, that should have happened about a hundred years ago before even my parents were, were born virtually. So, um, so I think that this is why I tell people the only way you make a transition this big is bringing people together with knowledge and, but also with enlightenment, but also a vision of where should we be going and how do we get there? So we try to map that out at the end, the, the last chapter of this, this documentary film, The Lost Century. But, um, of course, you know, it's a lot of work to do. And unfortunately, all of this should have been resolved before I was born. <laughs> you know, so it's sort of like we're all kind of stuck, um, trying to resolve something that's had this momentum in these deep black projects, uh, and, and how to unravel it. But the first step is at least educate. Everybody is freaking out about this. All right. This is called the ice hack. Now this has been on the news a couple of times. Educate each other. But yeah, explain also, that. Go ahead, go ahead and like, if you could outline perhaps from your perspective or maybe it's in the film, um, or in the presentation or what's going to happen in DC, but what are those next few steps to getting to that point? I think we need to have an open disclosure project. Right now what's happening with the Congress, the people coming in there and the ones I'm identifying are going into a skip and they're Testimony is classified. It needs to pivot to an open, uh, transparent process, which I'm hoping that we'll get there. Um, in the meanwhile, my group or the Disclosure Project, we're disclosing everything we can uh, because uh, I have top secret documents that haven't been declassified. And I think about six dozen of these witnesses who are military and corporate that we're putting out there because they say can go ahead and do it. Uh, and they can't prosecute us because we declared those projects uh, criminal enterprise in 1997. So, and that's never been rebuked. It's never been uh, corrected. We wrote a letter to all the agencies and said, here's our assessment. We're going forward. But now there's an official pathway, which a lot of like the gentleman I, I about a month ago uh, brought here, Washington, he had very high clearances and he didn't want to say anything until there was a clear pathway sanctioned by the government for him to testify. Now we have that. That's a new, that's just in the past two months. So then the other thing I'm asking for, we need courageous men and women who have been in these covert programs to come forward as whistleblowers. Have them contact me if they bring it to you, but you can just contact me at info at SeriousDisclosure.com, S-I-R-I-U-S Disclosure.com, which is my website. Because if they contact me, I'll keep their information confidential. Very good at doing that as a medical doctor. And if they're willing, and if I think that their information warrants it, we will then arrange to bring them to Washington here. So that process is ongoing. And in fact, I was on a Navy SEAL podcast a couple weeks ago called the uh, the uh, Sean Ryan show, it, it's the uh, Vigilance Elite, and uh, it's had millions of views. And we've gotten another half a dozen top secret whistleblowers who've come forward just from that. So, you know, people looking at your podcast or maybe people or someone who knows someone. And it's all about networking this. Um, but they need to know we're going to keep them safe and we're going to keep their names 
confidential from the public yeah. if, unless they want to be known. I, ultimately, I wish people would just all come forward with their names, everything. But I understand people who are afraid or people who don't want to be in the public eye. Um, you know, I certainly wish I hadn't been um, pushed into the public eye on this. But um, it's ruinous to have that happen. You know, but uh, as you know, but I think that and some people like done. it. I don't like it. But um, I can't walk through an airport or go to a Starbucks without being stopped. But and I don't like that, frankly. I mean, I like my privacy, but um, my kids hate it more. But I think that my point is, is that I understand someone not wanting to come forward publicly. But the more we can do this uh, okay. publicly with their names and information, and in fact, even at this National Press Club event, uh, the better. But there's certainly this other mechanism where we, they'll be kept very confidential. And the people I'm working with here, absolutely, you can trust. They're wonderful guys. What is it that finally pushes this over the goal line? Like, what is it that will finally get everyone to go, there mm-hmm. it is, okay, mm-hmm. undeniable? I don't know if it's a singular event. I think it's a, a process. I mean, basically what we put out already should be that. But okay. what people are waiting for is an official assessment and open disclosure of this by the government and the media reporting it. Whether or not we get to that, or I don't, I, I, I honestly, here, here's what I thought. When I put all the, the, what's called the best available evidence together for the press. The best way to burn fat and get shape. It's not keto, paleo, fasting, or vegan, and it's not super intense workouts like CrossFit that you see all the time. That ain't. For the president, the CI director in 1993, or I thought, it would be over that the president would do the right thing <laughs> at the time it was Bill Clinton, that they would dig into this and it would be disclosed. They'd start bringing out these technologies. We'd have a new world. Uh, boy, how naive I was as a 30 some year old medical doctor. And, you know, I mean, in, in full disclosure, I've never worked for the government, been in the government, worked for done any of that. I'm completely a civilian person interested in this i have no official standing at all but ironically the information we've acquired in the last 33 years exceeds anything that anyone in the constitutional government has which is why i feel obligated to turn it over so warts and all i mean they're getting an enormous tranche of intelligence one Mm -hmm. i'd just be remiss to not add ask about i'm so fascinated with antarctica Mm -hmm. is there Mm -hmm. like extraterrestrial bases is there something inside like mm-hmm. underground what is the role of antarctica i basically want to know if i need to plan a trip and just put my macgyver hat on and i can suggest better places to go that are very close to where you live um <laughs> i'd love to know those too mm-hmm. south mountains we had an et craft come right over us when we were hiking out there uh, last year um, but, um, right at dusk came down. It was phenomenal. So what right are the there. hot spots? So before we get to Antarctica, then, since you're saying, you know, mm-hmm. some other spots, what are the hot spots on the planet where the most amount of extraterrestrial activity is most amount of craft sightings? Well, I, I actually think they're wherever you do the CE5 contact, uh, protocols properly. Now, 
everybody can get an app. It's called CE5 Contact. It's a whole training program and remote viewing, the protocols for making contact. You actually open up a, 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 an interdimensional vector. You have a group of people doing that. So what I've found if that if the if the consciousness and the group is coherent, the ET come no matter where you are in some form or another. Now, in terms of routine activity, there's a great deal uh, between Catalina Island and Malibu because there's an a facility there. There are ones that are certainly are out in the uh, desert near near you. Um, you go to parts of South America. Uh, there are a great deal seen happening up in Peru and those, those high Andes. Um, now, I think that there have been and are extraterrestrial facilities in many places. In the center of Joshua Tree National Park in 96, I was took a group up there, and we didn't quite know where to go. And we'd gone to a place that just didn't feel right. And then suddenly I said, let's move my intuition. And as we were leaving, there was about a 300-foot diameter green it was looked like a hershey's kiss with this green uh, trail and it went straight down like a rock and lit up all the joshua tree for just a couple seconds and it 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 was partially materialized and went in everyone saw this and it went into the desert and i noted where it went in i got my sort of gps in my brain looked and calculated it and that's where we go to make contact. But we'll be there in April if you want to come. But that's a base. I think there's. Okay, a base. Because when you said went in, it made me think, is hollow earth really a thing? I don't know that it's so much hollow earth, but there are certain places where ET uh, transdimensional mm-hmm. craft and can operate and have operated historically. Uh, way inside Mount Shasta is one. Okay. Uh, we, right. We've gone there many times and had amazing you know, these sort of like luminous light ships, or we have videos of these coming out towards us. Wow. Uh, and then we have these amazing contact events happen. So, um, yeah, there are certain places, but I don't think it's dependent okay. on that. I think that you remember, given their technologies, any point in space, you know, time, they can appear if you have a group that's synchronous, coherent, doing the consciousness part of this, and are also doing it for and altruistic. What is your intention? If you're just there to be entertained, they're not interested. I mean, ETs are not going to be dolphins at SeaWorld for people. I mean, it's, no. it's, it's humiliating. Uh, but, uh, and my view of it, what I've experienced is when people sincerely want to be part of a process of humans, uh, being sort of ambassadors from Earth to their civilization and you're willing to be in service and help as opposed to selfishly just being on a trip, then they come. Otherwise, they're not interested because they figure you're an immature soul not worth bothering with. So Antarctica, is there anything to know about Antarctica? Anything? Yes. I mean, there are a lot of covert human assets there that are this type of craft. Now, also at the South Pole, we just have a guy who worked for Raytheon, who for a year, Raytheon's a big defense contractor, and about two miles under the ice is this massive, technological array, which are neutrino light detectors, which is a type of system that detects um, very subtle energy as a craft materializes from trans-dimensional space-time into 3D. There's an energy, and there are ones on satellites in space. I know the man who invented the one, and that's how we track these craft and then triangulate them and hit them. 
with an electromagnetic weapon. So that is huge facility and it's at the South Pole. And Antarctica has other facilities. Um, so I'm not so sure that it's rich for extraterrestrial activity, but it's certainly a very dynamic area for covert deep black human okay. operations. Yeah. Okay. How long, in your opinion, do you think it will be before we have global collective agreement on the existence of extraterrestrials? I would not wager a bet. I was betting in the 90s that it would happen imminently. Um, you know, when, well, we were originally going to, originally going to do the whole disclosure event at the United Nations, but then the secretary general of the union was threatened and we had to move it to the national press club. And that's a very interesting story. And, uh, Paris, uh, you know, it was, uh, uh, after I had met with Boutrous Ghali, who was the UN secretary general in the nineties, uh, his, his successor was also very supportive. And, uh, but they were, they were sat down pretty hard and said, you will not do this or you'll lose all your funding. Uh, so, uh, you know, these guys play hardball. I mean, it's a hardball game. Um, so. You know, and, and that's, the, you know, that's the school of hard knocks I went through when I thought, well, you know, as a medical doctor and prior to that, a meditation teacher, people would do the right thing to save lives and help the planet. Huh? Then I, you know, I hate to sound cynical, but I mean, at, the, at this point I go, I'll believe it when I see it. Now it doesn't mean we give up. We have to keep pushing that. But I don't, I look all, if you look at, you know, I grew up sixties, early seventies in the South. The civil rights movement didn't happen because the Kennedys just one day woke up and decided we're going to support this. It happened because organizers like Martin Luther King and the people got behind it, a nonviolent movement. That's what we have to do with this issue, both with contact with these civilizations. And I, I was involved in that. I saw that happen. Same thing with women's rights. Uh, same thing with uh, gay rights, all these things. It didn't happen because the muckety mucks in Washington or Paris or any other place did it. They did it because we, the people, led. So I always tell people, if the people will lead, the leaders will follow. I shift the focus not on the leaders in Washington, but on us, we the people. I'm very much about we the people. And I think that once there's enough movement of the people for this, then the leaders will have to follow it. So that's why we're doing, that's one of the reasons we're doing this national press club. There are senior people in Washington, actually, I cannot name them, who have asked me to do that event to get more public and social pressure on the government to move forward. Scientists are shocked. They have found that ear ringing is shrinking your brain cells. Tinnitus is literally wearing your that's exciting. Yeah. All right. Well, then the last question I have is just why do you keep putting yourself out there? This what what is what is it? What is the vision you have? Because I think I have seen what's at stake. I, I mean, I've seen the world we're in, and I and I've seen the world it could be. And when you see how amazing this planet and humanity could be, if some of these issues could get resolved properly and nonviolently. Then, you know, this is the pearl of great price. This is the one you don't throw back. In my soul, I know where we could be and where we can be. And therefore, if we work hard, 
perchance, we'll get there. But I think it's a lot of hard work. It's much harder. I mean, it's an ultra, ultra marathon, which when I was first starting out doing this stuff in my 30s, I thought it'd be a slam dunk. But, you know, um, you know, you know, looking 33 years back, I go, well, you know, it's you learn a lot. One way or another, humanity is going to get on this uh, path where we're going to be sustainable, peaceful. All these technologies will heal, heal the planet. Poverty and disease will be forgotten, be a thing forgotten, and we'll become interstellar. So that I see that that's where we're going to go as an enlightened civilization. Therefore, if if you don't work for that, I mean, uh, I, the way I justify having left my medical career is I kind of joke. I used to take care of all the car wrecks and shootings and all that fun stuff. But uh, now I think my our patient is is the earth and her eight billion children. So that's our patient. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a pretty damn good reason. Yeah. Thank you so much. I thank you, thank you for sharing. I'm excited about all your new projects coming up and yeah. there's always going to be more to talk to you about. Well, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll send you some links so people can figure out how to come to this event in Washington and the Washington premiere of the film and, um, hope to see you there. Maybe you could do a podcast from, uh, the National Press Club. Pretty cool. I would love that. Thanks everybody for listening to the Pretty Intense podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you heard today and you want to hear more, please click on the subscribe button. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're going to jump right into this next one. We might not finish, but we'll get the substantial amount complete. This is called the Jakarta Method. This is Abby Martin. Real quick, mm. Abby Martin speaks with journalist Vincent Bevins about the hidden CIA mass murder in Indonesia. I think we all remember that, if mm. only vaguely I remember it, uh, which created the model for U.S. extermination campaigns against communists in 22 countries during the Cold War. Okay, so that's that's it. Let's, okay. let's go. This is an hour and seven minutes. But what happens is about half of the people, perhaps, that are bringing brought into custody over the next few weeks are taken out in the middle of the night and never come back. They're stabbed, strangled, thrown into rivers, and a million people remain in a concentration camp. Purely for their political beliefs, you have a concentration camp for left-wing socialists, you have a concentration camp for former communists or accused communists, and in this period of 1965 to 1966, approximately one million innocent people are killed in this manner. Vincent, thank you so much for sitting down with me today. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Talk about what the initial policy was of the Jakarta Axiom. First, say what Jakarta is and then what the Jakarta Axiom was as a policy under the Truman administration. Um, so Jakarta is the capital of Indonesia, which is now the world's fourth largest country by population, the largest Muslim majority country in the world. And in the first years after World War II, the United States finds itself as by far the most powerful country in human history. Far more powerful than the Soviet Union, which is its key rival in the emerging Cold War, um, and in a position to really shape outcomes throughout the globe in a way that is new for the United States. So at the beginning of the Cold War, the United States doesn't really know what it's going to do 
with the third world, what we now call the global south. Many parts, many parts of Asia, parts of Latin America, it was not clear to the United States government itself how to deal with anti-colonial revolutions, um, countries which were neutral, which were neither communist nor allied with the United States, but which were left-leaning and um, anti-imperialist. And Indonesia becomes the axiomatic case of a nation which is anti-colonial, um, left-leaning, but n- not communist. And it is anti-communist enough. It has repressed communism enough in the first years after World War II that it is considered as an acceptable friend for the United States in this new global order. So the Jakarta axiom is this idea that neutral countries can be acceptable to us as long as the communists are kept very far from power and they remain open to a lot of uh, interaction with the United States government. That's the Jakarta axiom. And in 1953, this changed. Um, the tolerance for these independent nations uh, shifted, right? And we saw the kind of origin of this new, very virulent anti-communist crusade that no longer accepted any sort of middle ground. Yes, exactly. So this this is a brief period where neutral countries in the Cold War could be accepted as friends. This ends in 1953 with the ascendance of Eisenhower to the presidency. And the first successful uh, CIA operation in the Global South uh, which is the coup in Iran, and then the coup in Guatemala in 1954. Uh, Iran is 53, Guatemala is 54. These two coups really signify the end of whatever the, the Jakarta axiom has stood for in U.S. foreign policy. Eisenhower um, was convinced by these successful coups that the CIA was a very useful uh, organization. The CIA had sort of been trying to find its way since being founded in the 40s until 1953. Um, they turned around and said to the president, look what we can do. We can take countries that are neutral and flip them into the pro-capitalist, pro-American, rapidly anti-communist camp. Uh, this works. Um, uh, Eisenhower loved this because it seemed like a free pass. There's no consequences. You know, Eisenhower had really had a problem with the American loss of life in the Korean War. And so he was looking for a way to affect um, the emergence of the new global system, especially in the global south, uh, without committing American troops, without committing to overt intervention. And by the beginning of the, the Eisenhower administration, the Jakarta axiom is over. Being neutral in the Cold War now means that you can be labeled an enemy. You can be labeled as a movement that needs to be crushed uh, or exterminated, depending on how um, how big of a threat you are to the nascent U.S.-led capitalist order. This anti-communist extermination program spanned 45 years to at least 22 countries. Mm-hmm. Talk about how U.S. policy can really be seen um, extending through all of these countries from Brazil to Vietnam and why this should all be seen kind of in the same lens. Right. Yes. Yeah, so my book is really about the intentional mass murder of leftists or people that are accused of being leftists. And as you said, I found that this happened in at least 22 cases in the Cold War um, from being beginning, I believe, 1954 in Guatemala is the first case that we have good evidence of until the end of the 20th century. And I think that these must be seen as interconnected, because if you look at the particular tactics that are used, the ways that this happens across the Cold War, you see an accumulation of techniques and tricks and even rhetorical devices across the entire Cold War. So one thing will work here, and then they'll apply that tactic there. One thing will not work here, they'll apply that there. 
Um, across those 22 countries, there is a variation in the level of the involvement of the United States. You have active assistance in the case of Indonesia, where there were there was material assistance offered. And then eventually the United States government passed lists of people to the Indonesian military for them to be killed. In other countries, the assistance was more indirect. It was made clear behind the scenes to a particular government that we will sort of look the other way if you do what you need to do to deal with the local threat. Now, this is not the only method that is employed by the new hegemon, the United States in the Cold War to shape outcomes in the global south to cement the leadership uh, of the United States in a global capitalist system. There are military coups, there's economic pressure, there's diplomatic pressure. But I think that this method, the intentional mass murder of communists, which happened in at least 22 countries, is fundamental to shaping the type of globalization that we got at the end of the Cold War, the type of global capitalist system that we now inhabit, and the type of governments that people, especially in the global south, still live under to this day. Let's zero in on... East Asia at the time. And, mm. and I want you to kind of set the stage for us geopolitically about what was going on that made the United States focus on that region of the world, eventually leading to set Indonesia in its crosshairs. Mm-hmm. And starting in World War II, Japan uh, occupies much of Southeast Asia during World War II, occupies Vietnam, occupies Indonesia. Vietnam, of course, having previously belonged to the French colonial power, Indonesia having previously belonged to the Dutch colonial power. Um, the anti-colonial always left leaning uh, in Southeast Asia in the first half of the 20th century to be a socialist meant that you were probably in in the anti-colonial struggle and being in the anti-colonial struggle meant that you were a socialist. So the Indonesian anti-colonial movement since the beginning of the 20th century involved an alliance between the Indonesian Communist Party, which was the oldest communist party in Asia, older than the Chinese Communist Party, uh, Muslim groups, and Indonesian nationalists. And they always worked together from the very beginning because if you were against colonialism, you were against capitalism. If you were a socialist, you were, an anti, you, were on, you were in the anti-colonial struggle. Now, in World War II, these, uh, the Japanese occupation, in a way, provides some space for the anti-colonial movements to, to, to rush in at the very end of World War II and declare independence. And this is what happens in both Vietnam and in Indonesia. The Indonesian anti-colonial, anti-colonial independence movement succeeds in repelling the Dutch in the four years from the end of World War II to 1949. And Indonesia, as it is constituted, is its very national identity is forged in the anti-colonial struggle. There's nothing that had brought these 13, 15, 17,000 islands, depending on how you count it, together other than Dutch colonialism, and the idea of an anti-colonial struggle against the Dutch, which which is ultimately successful in 1949. So Indonesia comes out of this this moment, the, this moment of decolonization in Southeast Asia, as by far a more important piece of the global puzzle than Vietnam. And Sukarno, the president who emerges as the leader of this new nation, which is formed out of the anti-colonial struggle, is really one of the most influential and most eloquent. Uh, defenders of the third world movement. And the third world movement, even though the world, the, you know, the term third world today is often pejorative because of the, the racism employed in the English language in the last 50 years. The third world movement was really a entirely optimistic, forward looking project, which said, since we are now free of formal colonization, since we are no longer formally colonized by the, the Western European powers, it is natural and right for us to emerge as equals 
alongside the first world, right? We are going to reshape the global system in a way which really undoes hundreds of years of colonial um, formulation of the world system. And Sukarno builds his movement, his new country, really along these lines, anti-colonialism, an opposition to extreme capitalism, but he's never formally, he's never a communist. And the construction of a global alliances, a global alliance of countries in the, in, in the third world to reshape the global system. It's a really incredible moment. I mean, centuries of being colonized, centuries of Dutch colonization, brief occupation by the Japanese, and then a, an attempt to recolonize on behalf of the Dutch. And then you see this armed conflict where Sukarno emerges as this independence leader. Um, and as you said, I mean, the CIA and U.S. forces basically saw him as a potential long-term ally mm-hmm. because in the midst of the, that fighting, he was able to put down some of the communist forces, but then later merged kind of a broader coalition encompassing the communists. I mean, he didn't ban the Communist Party or anything like no. that once he was uh, in power. Right. So he was never an anti-communist. The Communist Party had always been an important part of the colonial struggle sorry, the anti-colonial struggle going back to the beginning of the 20th century. There is a power struggle within the revolution in the 1940s, between 1945 and 1949. The communists lose that power struggle and there is repression that is carried out against them, not exactly by Sukarno, but Sukarno uh, ultimately takes the leadership of this movement. And that seems to be enough. Now, the Indonesian Communist Party, after this moment where they lose the power struggle within the revolution, um, re-emerges as an entirely democratic party in this new young and imperfect democracy in which Sukarno is the president, the Indonesian Communist Party participates in elections, is fully committed ideologically and tactically to participation in this new democracy and to supporting Sukarno as the president. And this works very well for them, right? So as we go into the 1950s, the Indonesian Communist Party is fully welcomed back into the the Indonesian revolution, uh, let's say, and is absolutely ideologically committed to Indonesia as a young democracy with Sukarno as the leader. And they are not, they have no theory or practice of trying to seize power. They have absolutely no armed uh, wing. They have no, they have no plans of taking power. They really believe in the development of national capitalism before a transition to socialism. Again, they're a very old communist party. They really believe in uh, developing capitalism. And then they believed sometime in the 21st century. So 50 years later, Indonesia would be right for socialism. And again, uh, Sukarno uh, looks upon the Indonesian Communist Party as, you know, it's not his party, but they're an ally in the construction of a new Indonesia. And they really begin to become quite popular throughout the country uh, as we get into the 1950s. And I want to kind of walk through the next decade, because I think it's really important to set the stage for how the CIA amasses so much power and how this mass extermination campaign is cemented and then deployed mm-hmm. uh, for the next several decades. I think another really important moment here is the Chinese Revolution in mm-hmm. 1949. Of course, this makes the United States especially paranoid about the peripheral threat about other countries being folded mm-hmm. under the influence of China, which is a enormous country. Then the next year, the Korean War, mm-hmm. which was basically a genocidal annihilation project, um, killing a million civilians, decimating the entire country of Korea. That was a three-year campaign. And then Eisenhower becomes president, 1953. Mm-hmm. The Dulles brothers, you know, as his secretary of state, of course, another heading the CIA, the newly unaccountable, very powerful CIA, very unaccountable CIA, 
Talk about how this transition really impacted the shift in policy here. Yeah, and I think it's important that the CIA is not just very unaccountable. They are, there is no accountability whatsoever. <laughs> whatsoever. They can really do anything. Right. And, and to, to explain sort of the bizarre turns that the CIA takes in the late 40s and 1950s, you have to really point to the fact that the U.S. is more powerful than any country's ever been. And there is no one to get the CIA in trouble. You know, often they get caught and it doesn't matter. So Jacobo uh, Arbenz in, in Guatemala finds out that the CIA is attempting to organize a coup to overthrow him. This is published in local newspapers. It doesn't matter mm-hmm. because who's going to, you know, there's no referee to blow the whistle on the clandestine operation of the hegemon, right? There's there's nothing that can be done to stop the CIA at this moment in, in Cold War history. So the, the, the success of the Chinese Communist Party in 1949 is, is, is hugely important for shaping U.S. politics. This is seen as a huge loss. For U.S. power, of course, McCarthyism. Um, in this McCarthyist moment, uh, which is happening around the same time, you ultimately see the purge of the State Department of a lot of the people that actually understand Asia because they're seen as too soft on communism. Um, the success of China, the Chinese Revolution really, really warps uh, U.S. approach to Asia, and then Korea is, as you rightly point out, a horrible, a horrible um, uh, humanitarian disaster. Uh, whereas we might rightly point to uh, the fact that many, many, many more Koreans have died. For Eisenhower, this was an unacceptable loss of American life. So he's really looking for a way to shape outcomes in the global south without getting American troops on the ground. And the CIA, which is founded uh, in the 1940s and given a very large uh, amount of resources and given a remit to fight communism, they um, initially try to take on the second world, the actual Soviet bloc or countries which are allied with the Soviet Union, and they fail over and over and over. They send people into Ukraine. They send people into Albania. They don't know what they're doing. Everyone is captured. They make alliances with former Nazis in Europe. They try to they, they try to set up networks to infiltrate uh, the Soviet Union or countries which uh, will soon join the Warsaw Pact. Doesn't work at all. So the CIA takes this huge amount of uh, money, this huge amount of power within the U.S. system. This uh, total lack of accountability that it that it uh, is able to enjoy at this moment in history and turns to the global south. And even the most sympathetic historians of the CIA recognize that they don't really know what they're doing. They're looking for somewhere to do something that they can turn around and say, we're fighting communism. And of course, this being the United States, a capitalist country in which large firms have a large degree of influence over the United States government. If they can believe that they are fighting communism, and if they can believe that they are also helping a U.S. business, in the case of Guatemala, United Fruit was very important. In the case of Iran, uh, English petroleum interests were very important, too. This would provide for them what they would believe to be a great opportunity to, to push forward American interests around the world. And because of the success for them, for Eisenhower of Iran 53, Guatemala 1954, the Dulles brothers really gain a huge amount of power to do what they want in the rest of the world. And then they turn their attention to Indonesia starting in 1955. I think this is a really significant moment because it shows that in places like Iran and Guatemala, the leaders were not communist. And in fact, um, Arbenz and Mosaddegh were, I mean, Arbenz, in the case of Arbenz, during his inauguration saying, we want to lift Guatemala out of feudalism and become a modern capitalist state, mm-hmm. talking about the Soviet Union in a critical way. Um, Mosaddegh certainly was no communist, but because of the tolerance right. of the Communist Party, the the option that maybe sometime in the foreseeable future 
because the Communist Party wasn't put down. Mm-hmm. That was enough. That was enough. And I think that that's it's just really crazy the extent of the operations that took place in Iran, mm-hmm. um, basically staging terrorist attacks against mosques, framing the communists, spreading propaganda uh, with the willingness, I'm sure, of many mainstream media officials mm-hmm. to basically paint Mossadegh as a communist. Mm-hmm. And then Arbenz, even though he was willing to compromise and he was willing to be friendly, mm-hmm. um, that was not enough, Vincent. And what happened in Guatemala really was a horrifying, horrifying tragedy. Mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't even call it a tragedy. I mean, it was a horrifying practice that was put in place. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure that there were many, many people on that list that were just merely peasants who mm-hmm. may be opposed to the United Fruits attempt to just take over all the land and mm-hmm. maybe Arbenz's very modest attempts at land reform at the mm-hmm. time. I mean, it's it's very troubling to think of who was actually on that list. Was that the first time that the United States, after Arbenz, uh, tried to resign and appoint the head of the armed forces, mm-hmm. which still wasn't good enough for the United they States? They wanted their own man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, then they had to put their own puppet, who was even the more rabidly anti-communist mm-hmm. and I guess was willing to carry out the mass executions of communists, mm-hmm. Was that the first time that these people were actually given lists on behalf of the United States saying, here, here's thousands of names, go kill them? And this is, yeah, so across the Cold War, this is the first evidence that I have of U.S. officials pressing local officials to carry out the execution of leftists in Guatemala in 1954. This happens later in Iraq in 63, in Asia in 1965. And it's remarkable to read these accounts because the even the people that are in charge of take carrying out a coup or know that they're going to be now participating in a, in a coup government are shocked by this. Um, they are really shocked by the U.S. turning around and saying, now here, we need to kill these people now. And very notably, Che Guevara was living in Guatemala at the time. Uh, and Che Guevara believed, looking back, that this proved that there was no democratic road to reform in Latin America. A lot of the radical armed movements that come out uh, that emerge in the Cold War emerge from this kind of a dynamic where they look somewhere and see that a democratically elected government is trying to do some very basic reforms. They all get killed. So this proves to me that the only thing that I can do is go into the mountains, uh, arm and carry out uh, a violent revolution. And this dynamic is repeated after 1965. Many left-wing movements around the world take this lesson from what happens in Indonesia in 1965. But you pointed earlier to a dynamic, to a dynamic which I think is quite important to to highlight. If you take a huge step back, and in this book that's really what I'm doing over and over, and look at outcomes across the Cold War, it doesn't tend to be armed, rigidly hierarchical Marxist-Leninist parties which get overthrown in this type of thing. They tend to defend themselves. They tend to survive. Um, Ho Chi Minh's movement in Vietnam eventually wins a war against the United States. The Chinese Communist Party still running uh, mainland China. It tends to be the reformists, the liberal uh, center-left liberal movements that want to work within uh, democratic systems that get overthrown by these types of interventions um, because they are more susceptible to that because they believe in the rules as presented to them. And Arbenz is a great example of this. The the consequences of the coup in 1954 in Guatemala, last decades, um, you mentioned that the United States insisted on their man. This man was somebody who was not even really respected within the Guatemalan armed forces. This causes huge problems of ultimately civil war, which leads to eventually the execution of hundreds of thousands of Guatemalans into the 1980s, often 
uh, along ethnic lines, often particular indigenous communities were being were marked out as communist or communist sympathetic or being sort of somehow racially inclined to support communism. Um, so the consequences, uh, the human, the human costs of the 1954, uh, coup in Guatemala are really, really shocking. And I think are with us to this day. Um, I mean, even just in this, you know, in, in this part of the United States, you feel the consequences of. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the mass migration of Guatemalans still to this day, the generational trauma that has been unresolved from so many mass disappearances and deaths. And I think as we know, left is synonymous with that anything. I mean, peasants, students, activists, communists, mm-hmm. it doesn't even matter at a certain point. You're basically targeted if you just are not what <laughs> you know the U.S. wanted you to be. As you mentioned, I mean, it, it basically became this kind of neo-feudal state as slavery was essentially reinstalled mm-hmm. after the U.S. guy was put back in power, and that had um, really profound implications the next year, there's another huge CIA counterinsurgency in the Philippines, which cemented another American kind of uh, friendly mm-hmm. regime mm-hmm. for several more years. In 1955 as well, you had a pretty significant event in Indonesia that I think shifted mm-hmm. a lot. Um, the Bandung Conference. Right. Uh, talk about the significance of this, how it kind of brought together this new non-aligned movement mm-hmm. and why that posed a threat to the United States. Yeah, so Bandung is a city on the island of Java in Indonesia, and the 1955 Afro-Asia Conference is really the moment in which the third world becomes a formal movement, in which representatives of half of the world's population come together in Bandung, on the, in, in Indonesia, under the, uh, it's Sukarno, President Sukarno, who calls this conference in, in concert with many other third world leaders. This is the first intercontinental conference of colored peoples, so-called colored peoples, in the history of mankind. I am proud that my country is your host. It is a new departure in the history of the world that leaders of Asian and African peoples can meet together in their own countries to discuss and deliberate upon matters of common concern. So he, he said this was the first time ever that the world's formerly colonized people came together without the colonizers deciding what they were going to do. And the Bandung Conference is really the, the birth of the third world movement as a movement. And as I said, the goal is to reformulate the global system along truly post-colonial lines, right? So most, uh, uh, there are huge other leaders in the third world movement, Nehru from India, Nasser in Egypt, but half of the world's population is represented. And this is something that is incredibly inspiring to the people of African Asia. And this is one of two things in 1955 about Indonesia that officials in Washington really do not like. The United States is taking leadership of a global system that they are inheriting in a sense from the Western European colonial powers. And this is a movement which wants to reshape it, which wants to challenge uh, the type of global capitalist system that the United States is, is trying to um, shepherd into existence. Uh, another thing that happens in 1955 in Indonesia, which convinces the CIA, other officials in the United States government, that 
Sukarno is no longer somebody that is a friend, but that Indonesia, as constituted under his leadership, is a threat, is that the Indonesian Communist Party starts to do better and better in elections. Um, and according to CIA and MI6 declassified documentation, which we now have access to, these agencies knew very well that the reason the Indonesian Communist Party was winning elections is because they were simply popular. They were doing outreach to peasants. They were forming cultural organizations. They were actually helping people across the country. They were seen as the, less, the least corrupt party in the country at the time, which is very important to regular people. So in 1955, the CIA tries something that they tried in, in Italy uh, just after World War II. Um, which they had successfully, uh, just after World War II in Italy, the CIA was worried that the left and the Communist Party would win elections in Italy and France. The Communist Party was very popular just after World War II. So what they did in Italy was just to fund huge amounts of money to the Christian Democrats and to pay for campaigning, essentially, against the left. Now, in 1955 in Indonesia, they try to do the same thing. Well, they do the same thing. It just doesn't work. They fund huge amounts of money into the conservative Muslim Party at the time. This does not work. Uh, the Indonesian Communist Party continues to do better and better in elections <laughs> until by 1958 they take much more radical action. And so what happens is that in Indonesia, the CIA foments, encourages, and then participates in a civil war until you have bombing campaigns carried out by American pilots dropping bombs on Indonesian civilians in, in the islands and pretending that they're not. And so you have these strange moments between the Indonesian uh, leadership, President Sukarno, and the parts of the American government which are officially, technically, supposedly still his friend, where the Indonesian government is saying, we think that you're doing this. The United States government says, that's crazy. You're not. <laughs> U.S. press criticizing very uh, uh, sharply and in a condescending manner the Indonesians for making this claim until an American pilot crash lands on the island of Ambon <laughs> with his identifying papers on him and it becomes incredibly clear that what the left has been saying is correct, that the United States has been killing civilians and trying to break apart this nation. And again, it's very important to remember, there was hundreds of years of colonization, and at this point, five years of independence. It was not clear at all to the people of Indonesia that this decolonization thing was going to stick. They were very worried about being inserted into a new global system in which they were not really going to be allowed to be sovereign. Indonesia is not that far from Vietnam, where the United States is helping France to try to reconquer the country. So this, the Indonesian left have been saying all throughout the 50s, I think the United States is not going to live up to what they say that they are. They are not going to live up to these revolutionary ideals that they claim to espouse. They're going to be another imperialist power, just like the Western Europeans, where we can't trust them. In 1958, when a CIA pilot was taken off from Singapore, crash lands on the island of Ambon, days after carrying out a murderous bombing campaign, this signifies a real rift, and it proves the left rights in Indonesia. Now, Sukarno, never adopting a communist uh, 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 position officially, he moves a little bit closer to the Soviet Union at this point. And even the U.S. ambassador, who has been in Indonesia long enough to really understand the country, writes in his memoirs that he understands why Sukarno would do this. He understands why Sukarno feels like he needs to sort of take some of his eggs and put them in this other basket to get some military and financial assistance from the other superpower because the United States is bombing and killing civilians. Now, when this strategy fails, when the CIA is exposed as bombing Indonesian civilians, trying to break up the country, participating in a civil war, the United States uh, completely flips its strategy in Indonesia. 
instead of going to war with the Indonesian military, they, again, they take something which has been a long time practice in Latin America. They form very close relationships with the Indonesian military. They take thousands of officials from the Indonesian military, bring them to Kansas for training. They wine and dine them. They treat them very nice. And they teach them what it is that we, as the new superpower, want to see in your country. These are the kinds of things that we think you should be doing. These are the ways that we think that you should be approaching development. We think that you should get more involved in the economy. We think that actually the Indonesian military should play a role in pushing uh, uh, Indonesia into the global capitalist system. So there's a total flip, you know, and, and Sukarno has no choice but to stay sort of friends with the United States because what are you going to do? This is the most powerful country that's ever existed. So from 1958 to 1963, 64, you have thousands of Indonesian military officials coming to the United States for training, being treated very well, and also a lot of, uh, Indonesian academics coming to training. It's amazing because the, the Bandung Conference was basically rejecting kind of European colonialism and the legacy of that. But then as it became crystallized that the U.S. was fomenting the civil war, I mean, it had no choice but to adopt a rejection of American imperialism and this kind of newly formed consciousness mm-hmm. that, oh, no, the United States is trying to actually subvert all of our you know, post-colonial um, movements and independence movements in order to fold us into their economic world order. And then at that moment, when this CIA agent spawned from Miami, Florida, just parachutes onto the land, I think that's when it was kind of impossible to deny Mm -hmm. that the very well-funded and well-armed rebellions that were happening were, in fact, um, completely constructed by the United States. Then you had this transition in policy. Um, Kennedy, you know, takes over and... You know, it's really significant how many soldiers actually were kind of pushed to the U.S. for funding and training and taught anti-communism. Mm-hmm. I mean, talk about the mentality of the of the armed forces under Sukarno before and after this. I mean, were they loyal to him? And mm-hmm. how did that really shift with the training here? Yeah, good. The, the, the book, The Jakarta Method, is often about global comparisons and taking a, a, a really worldwide look at how things are different from here to there. And I've been living in Brazil primarily for the last uh, 12 years. And one thing that is totally different from Latin America in Southeast Asia is that when U.S. officials in the Cold War get to South America, they realize that the elite is anti-communist. We have this shared history of settler colonialism in the Western Hemisphere. It doesn't take much convincing in South America to get the white elite to adopt radical anti-communism as its, as its guiding philosophy. Often, the United States will learn things even from the Brazilian or Chilean anti-communist uh, elite. In Southeast Asia, it's totally different. Even in 19, um, even this conservative Muslim party that is getting funding from the CIA, in 1955, an American journalist, Richard Wright, uh, an important uh, figure, literary figure in the Cold War, talks to this party. And even this CIA-funded conservative Muslim party tells him, we're not really anti-communist. No one here is really anti-communist. This basis for a relationship doesn't work. We don't think that you can construct a friendship based on the hatred of communism. We don't have this here. We all kind of fought together to kick out the Dutch. They're not, we don't see them as an internal enemy. And officially, rhetorically, the Indonesian military remained committed to revolutionary anti-colonial ideology up until the moment that they really started killing people. So it took, one way to put it, is that it took 10 years for the United States in Indonesia to construct the necessary anti-communist base in the country that would serve as 
ally in a future authoritarian capitalist state. And at the time that these soldiers were being transferred and trained here in the United States, Sukarno changed his tune as well, because internal politics shifted as well as, as you mentioned, U.S. policy. Um, internally, there was kind of more anti-American sentiment rising. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, there was actually an assassination plot, assets picked out to execute Sukarno. And there was also kind of a harebrained scheme to stage a fake pornographic tape that mm-hmm. framed Sukarno to just try to make him look bad among the population. Yeah. Talk about how bizarre this story is. It seems that they made the tape. It seems <laughs> that the CIA came to their friends in Hollywood, and the idea was to create a sex tape, which would purportedly show Sukarno having uh, intercourse with a Russian KGB agent. And the idea would be to leak this as proof that Sukarno was compromised, uh, you know, compromised by uh, the Soviet Union and also bad Muslim and a bad man. And, you know, they just wanted, you know, they wanted to destroy the reputation of the founding father of a country. So it's as ridiculous and absurd and funny as this is, it's really not funny. Apparently they never released the tape because it wasn't good enough, but right. apparently they hired a Mexican American actor because that thought, they thought that was close enough to Indonesian, put him in a bald cap, because they wanted to expose Sukarno as being bald and further humiliate him, um, but eventually it was not released. But I mean, this kind, this is the kind of thing that the CIA would just do all kinds of this stuff all the time. They had the money, they had the time, and they would come up with every plot they thought would conceivably work. It came out later that they had um, green-lighted uh, an assassination plot. They had found the person that would do it. Did they actually get that person to do it? We don't know, but they were... They were considering every type of way that they could crush the leader of this young country, including creating a sex tape to be released to the press. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good point that this is is, as absurd as it sounds. It's actually really disturbing the lengths that they would go to just completely denigrate and humiliate someone who Mm -hmm. is revered Mm -hmm. in a country um, just to lower his standing and Mm -hmm. potentially turn the population against him. I mean, it really was multifaceted. Mm -hmm. Um, At the same time, this shift in strategy of kind of you know, it was a little bit maybe too obtuse to just parachute uh, CIA agents from Miami and bomb the Indonesian people. So I think, you know, CIA memos coming out later, State Department memos coming out later to reveal that really the modus operandi was really to um, have covert involvement, you know, mm-hmm. really no overt on the ground. And, and that's why um, training the soldiers became mm-hmm. very important to this operation. Another really important thing happens is the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, this fake event that um, served as the precursor to get involved in Vietnam. And then Sukarno immediately aligns himself with North Vietnam, Mm -hmm. which further upset the United States, of course. Mm -hmm. Sukarno, well, the United States changes its its stance towards uh, Indonesia after the death of Kennedy. Uh, LBJ takes office and he doesn't have time to care about Indonesia. He doesn't, he doesn't care as much about foreign policy as Kennedy does. And he sort of seeds Southeast Asia policy, especially in Indonesia, to, to, to advisors that really want to switch policy. They want to. Because Kennedy was saying he didn't want to like ostracize this huge region of the world. Yeah, but he Kennedy, still was overseeing this policy of training the soldiers. Yes, absolutely. Kennedy had the official policy of trying to keep together this shaky friendship with Sukarno. Uh, when Kennedy won uh, his election, Sukarno was excited because Sukarno believed that Kennedy was one of the few people in the U.S. 
um, political establishment that had some kind of sympathy for the third world. From 1960 to 1963, Kennedy is trying to keep alive this friendship. Kennedy's ambassador to Indonesia is trying to keep alive this friendship. LBJ is no longer willing to spend the political or financial capital to keep alive this friendship. They bring in a new ambassador, which many people on the ground believe is an ambassador who is kind of a specialist in regime change and constructing uh, authoritarian governments. He had been in South Korea previously. Um, and overseeing the transition of that sort of uprising and re- revolutionary movement in, the, in 1962, a dictatorship soon afterwards. Um, and from 1963 to 1965, conditions deteriorate between the United States and Indonesia. Sukarno, uh, it becomes clear to Sukarno because he can read the newspaper that uh, in Congress, they're saying we should not give any more money to this person unless he does exactly what we say. He says, this is an insult to my sovereignty. He says very famously, go to hell with your aid, which is... Um, uh, was a very explosive way of saying, if you want to help me, you can help me, but we are our own country. This, you know, this causes a further deterioration in relationship uh, between the two countries. Sukarno moves towards alliances with the socialist countries in Asia, which is something they had refrained from doing for a very long time. Um, and he's seen now as, again, a real problem for officials in the United States government. So when these soldiers were being trained in the U.S., what was Sukarno thinking? I mean, he was obviously aware that they were being shipped back and forth for training. Was he like, oh, my God, this is not going to go well for me? So starting in 1958, both the CIA and MI6, we now know from declassified documents, recognized that the Indonesian Communist Party would have won elections if they were held in a free and fair manner. This has not happened. Uh, the, the group which is pushing hardest for a new political system that does not have free and fair elections is the Indonesian military. But also Sukarno occupies this kind of, this very important role in a new, less than, less democratic system from 1958 to 1965, trying to balance through force of influence, force of rhetoric, his popularity, the two real forces in the country which now exist, which is the very popular an unarmed Indonesian Communist Party and the very well-armed Indonesian military. So people that are paying attention know that this is unstable, but it appears to Sukarno at least that he's doing his best to balance these forces uh, in the new situation after 1958. Um, technically, there's still a state of emergency, which is declared during the Civil War, started by the CIA. This never ends. The Indonesian military is able to take larger share of control, not just symbolically within the state, but they're really running parts of the economy. So it doesn't seem great, but it seems like he's doing his best. And to the Indonesian Communist Party, and this is the source of huge amounts of retrospective analysis in the decades later, it appears to them that if they prove that they're very, very, very popular, if they can have huge rallies, if they can be uh, inserted into almost every part of the country, if they have huge bases of support amongst teachers, amongst work, among workers, cultural organizations, the largest feminist organization probably in the world at the time was associated with the Communist Party. If they can show through in the streets and in, in the villages that they are incredibly popular, this is the best way to shore up their power within the system. Uh, and again, they develop no theory or practice of armed struggle. They believe rallies, popularity, and being present everywhere would, would be enough. And they really were present everywhere. I mean, if you were from certain parts of Java, if you were from Bali, Bali was a very important uh, base of support for the Indonesian Communist Party. Um, and you were like into studying, you might join the Indonesian Communist Party because they 
you know, to be a teacher, they, you know, a lot of your teachers would have been in the Indonesian Communist Party. Your mayor was very often in the Indonesian Communist Party. If you were into the arts or culture, it was the Indonesian Communist Party that was putting on concerts or uh, Indonesian drama performances in your village. If you were in the, the Indonesian women's movement, the feminist movement, you were associated with the Indonesian Communist Party. And it got to the point where around 25% of the country was officially or unofficially affiliated with the Indonesian Communist Party. It was the largest communist party in the world outside of China and the Soviet Union. So the largest communist party, largest socialist party outside of the world of uh, actually existing socialism, perhaps the largest democratic socialist party in the world's history, I think, probably. So it didn't, even though if you, this instability was clear, if you looked at it from this perspective, there was a couple other perspectives from which you could look at it and think, well, Sukarno's the president. The left is clearly um, uh, supporting him. He recognizes us as an important part of the Indonesian revolution. We're building popularity. That's the way forward. And it was at this time that the U.S. plan to depose Sukarno actually did come to fruition mm-hmm. um, through the well-trained army mm-hmm. you know, and all of these military members. Talk about the coup that was led by right-wing General Suharto mm-hmm. and what his ties were to the United States. Mm-hmm. So this is a part of the story which is slightly mysterious. Um, a lot of my book, The Jakarta Method, is based on declassified State Department files. We do not have full information as to what the CIA and MI6 were doing in 1963-1964. Um, but the best evidence suggests that they began to agitate behind the scenes for a clash between this very well-armed Indonesian military and the popular but unarmed Indonesian Communist Party, knowing very well what happens when an armed and an unarmed group clash, um, using black propaganda, lying, uh, trying to whip up a, a conflict, um, uh, using media resources within and outside of Indonesia, um, spreading rumors in Indonesia. And in a mysterious way, this clash does happen. Uh, there is the kidnapping of a few generals by a group which claims to be uh, a defense of Sukarno's revolution, for reasons which we don't understand still to this day, six of these generals end up dead. Um, and then immediately in this moment of confusion, this this clash uh, of a movement which claims to be defending uh, the left-leaning uh, nature of the Indonesian um, political system, General Suharto seizes power, um, jumping uh, over the head of President Sukarno, who should still be in charge of the country, and he just starts acting as if he is the dictator of the country. Sukarno issues orders, he ignores them. Now, a lot of people on the ground do not understand why this works, but immediately the United States recognizes him as the de facto leader of Indonesia, supplies him with communications equipment, which he uses in his uh, very important propaganda effort, which which consists of shutting down every outlet in the country which the military does not control, and then on the outlets which the military do control, spreading the story that what had actually happened is that the Indonesian Communist Party had organized a coup attempt, taken these generals captive, and that the Indonesian women's movement, the feminist movement, which was very popular in Indonesia, had tortured these men to death in a tantric, sexual, satanic, communist orgy, and castrated them and thrown them into a well. This story is broadcast throughout the entire country because all of the other press is shut down. U.S. and U.K. media reproduce this story, knowing that it's a lie. We know now that the that uh, Western media 
helped to spread the story knowing that it was a lie. And this story is used to justify a nationwide crackdown on the Indonesian Communist Party. So now you have General Suharto acting like he's the dictator, though technically, legally, Sukarno's still in charge, but not in charge of any of this. And over the next few weeks, millions of communists or accused communists are rounded up and imprisoned and taken into to custody. Now, a lot of the people that I met um, researching this book, because for this book I spent a lot of time interviewing people that lived through this, this, this period, told me that they went in voluntarily because they were in the – yeah, I was in the Communist Party. I had no idea what was happening back in the Capitol. I know I didn't do anything wrong. I'm studying to be a middle school teacher. I'll go in and I'll talk to the police and I'll tell them that I don't know anything and, you know, no big deal. The whole, you know, a third of the, a third of the city is, is, is in the Communist Party. But a million, two million, three million, perhaps people are taken into custody, uh, over the next few weeks. And they get there. And again, they told me in prison, I thought it was going to be fine. I thought that they were going to talk to me and then we were going to go. But what happens is about Half of the people, perhaps, that are brought into custody over the next few weeks are taken out in the middle of the night and never come back. They're stabbed, strangled, thrown into rivers. And a million people remain in a concentration camp purely for their political beliefs. You have a concentration camp for left-wing socialists. You have a concentration camp for former communists or accused communists. And in this period of 1965 to 1966, approximately 1 million innocent people are killed in this manner. Now, why do I say approximately? Because since this time, no one has really looked into this in in a rigorous manner. This has never been something where there's been a UN investigation. There's never been a truth commission in Indonesia to find out exactly how many people were killed. Sometimes they say 500,000. Sometimes they say 1 million. One general sort of bragging said it was 3 million. But it is through this violence, and that's important to understand, it is through this violence that Suharto is able to establish a stable military dictatorship. The Indonesian Communist Party was perceived by him to be a threat to the possibility of forming a capitalist, U.S.-aligned, authoritarian uh, regime. And so it was after that he believed that enough of the left had been murdered and the rest of the country had been terrified into silence that he was able to establish um, this new this new government. It was not an act of sort of wanton revenge or something he did in an irrational manner in order to establish this regime. It was through this mass murder that the Suharto dictatorship was able to take shape. And we know now from declassified files that the Indonesian military did this, believing that they would be rewarded for it by the United States. And they were. Once they cemented this new authoritarian capitalist regime in Southeast Asia, in the largest, most important country in the region, they they were welcomed with open arms into the so-called free world. Suharto was allowed to run the country however he wanted. He was allowed to be one of the most corrupt leaders that ever existed. They were allowed to uh, receive all kinds of uh, diplomatic, financial, military aid from the United States. And in the years after this mass murder, with one million people still in um, concentration camps for being leftists and bodies still floating in rivers throughout the country. U.S. corporations came in to sort of decide in well, con- you know, air-conditioned hotel rooms in Jakarta how to piece up, how to divide the economy amongst them and who is going to run the Indonesian economy. And this is how the Indonesian economy was run for the next few decades. I mean, the sheer barbarism that was unleashed facilitated. Cond- oh, okay. 
How much more do we have, Thomas? Oh, it's at 4851. Out of uh, 20 minutes. Okay, we have 20 more minutes. Uh, thank you for listening with the purpose of really knowing what happened and how this empire has uh, expanded with violence. And blaze the violent fire. And it's time for peace. And oh. we will take a break on that note. And as we come back, we'll be, uh, uh, we'll be, uh, playing some music and our brother Richard and Tanya Gabriel Kaipacha. We will have a really thorough look at the stars. Yes, Chiron and Jupiter are in the mix. Today is a big deal. Well, we'll hear about it soon. All right. See you in, I don't know, 10 or 15. And namaste. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. That's the talking stick to you, Richard. Thank you very much. Richard. Yes, ma'am. K-Pacha is 31 minutes. And Tanya Gabrielle's 13 minutes. Thank you again. You're welcome. Okay. So Pluto is still in the last degree of Capricorn. Mm-hmm. And from there around the arc to Mars at 24 Gemini makes that arc 145 degrees. And so it's, you know, it was uh, it was a little bit narrower a couple of weeks ago, but now, uh, you know, Mars is still, you know, Mars is still moving at about a half a degree a day. So, now... We were talking last week about this major conjunction, two of them actually, the one in Pisces with Mercury, the Sun, and Neptune. They are at 17, 22, and 25, and that's trying the moon tonight at 14 Scorpio and square Mars at 24 Gemini, so major square, Mars, square Sun and Mercury, and Neptune, and that's stressful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I heard some number, I heard some number this week about how many armed conflicts are going on currently, Yeah, it was a huge number. Yeah. All right. Now the other the other conjunction. Now Saturn is at one Pisces. All right. It, it moved. It moved just itsy bitsy bitsy into Pisces. And uh, it'll uh, it'll be a while before we figure out exactly what that influence is going to be. At this time, we know it's going to 
suppress the the chaos factor in Pisces. Saturn is order, among other things, so it'll take some of the chaos out of the Pisces energy, but not for a while. Okay, now in Aries, Jupiter and Chiron are both at 15 degrees, exactly, mostly, uh, actually it's uh, 14 and 24 minutes for Jupiter, and 14 and 27 minutes for Chiron, and Venus swept across that degree this week. Venus is up to 25 degrees Aries, because Venus has been moving kind of fast at over a degree per day, and it's still still moving uh, more than a degree and 12 minutes per day. (coughs) North Node is at 5 Taurus. Uranus is at 16 Taurus. So moon opposite Taurus today and tomorrow. And uh, so moon was conjunct the the south node yesterday. And that's your layout and setup. In the middle of that arc between Pluto and Mars is right around 15 degrees of Aries. 30 Capricorn to 15 Aries is 76 degrees. And 15 Aries to 24 Gemini is 30, 60, 67 degrees. So let's see, half of that, 30, 30, 60, 75, 30, 30, 60, yeah, anyway. So the center, the center of this, of this arc is in Aries, right? and everybody knows that Aries rules divine will as the first sign. Right? The electrical, the, the the spiritual electrical side of the duad between spirit and matter. So you got spirit and matter, or you got electricity and matter. I don't care which which term you use, but anyway, it is it is a it is a new beginning, and it's gonna get even weirder in a month. Right? In a month, a little less than a month, the sun's gonna be conjunct Jupiter and Chiron. I don't know. Did I? Let's see here. I did. Pre-check, let's see here, 419 new moon is our next new moon. Oh, don't do that. 
on computer. <laughs> there it is. All right. Yeah. Before the new moon, let's see, the new moon is going to be at 30 Aries. So a week before that, all right, sun will be conjunct Jupiter on the 12th. So right around the 10th to the 12th of next month, the sun's going to conjunct Chiron and Jupiter, and they will be about 7 degrees apart. So, yeah, this next... We got a new moon to get through before then. Yeah. Yeah, because we're we're about a week out to the Pisces new moon. All right, let's go listen to Mister Kaipacha. Okay. <laughs> please. We interrupt this regularly scheduled program for a special announcement. Uh, this is from the Galactic Federation. Uh, Kaipacha will be visiting planet Earth and have a special relationship seminar this weekend. This weekend on planet Earth, March 11th and 12th, the astrology of relationships will be offered by Kaipacha Look for the link below in order to sign up. Second announcement, Kaipacha will be on the island Edipsos, where Chiron lived thousand years ago this coming May for a week at the spa, offering a workshop. Again, check the link below. And now... We go back, and you may resume your ordinary program. Oh, my God, it's Kai Pacha with the Weekly Pele Report. <laughs> March 8th? Is this March? I must be in the wrong place. Ah! <laughs> Holy cow. Mother Nature, beautiful in her own way. Moon's in Virgo. We had that full moon. She's moving into Libra for today, Thursday, and Friday, coming into a pose. Uh, Jupiter and Chiron. And uh, we had that beautiful Jupiter-Chiron uh, conjunction last week. Did you see the Venus? You could see Venus and Jupiter in the night sky. Absolutely beautiful. Just before sunset up there. Absolutely gorgeous. Anyway... The moon's going to oppose uh, uh, Jupiter and Chiron tomorrow. And then on Friday, uh, uh, depending on where you are on planet Earth, okay, she's going to oppose Venus, trine Jupiter, square Pluto, trine Saturn. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> the exact Jupiter-Chiron conjunction 
okay, is happening on Saturday. Um, but all last week, you know, all this week, you can see it. Look at these, but the birds are like happy, 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 go lucky. They don't care. (laughs) Oh my God. Anyway. Oh yeah. So on, on Friday, we have an exact Venus sextile Mars for some loving going on. That's uh, Venus over there in Aries starting new things and Mars over there talking it up <laughs> in Gemini, you know, anyway, uh, by, uh, and the other one is Mercury is sextile Uranus on Saturday. And Venus is conjunct Eris on Saturday. So I'm going to talk about what all this, you know, implies. But um, just giving the aspects here at the beginning. The other big thing that we want to be talking about today, and I want to share with you, is this Mars square Neptune. You know, it's at the third pass. And uh, I'll go into the dates. But, um, yeah, Mars is, uh, you know, been in Gemini for months, and it's doing its third square going direct now, finishing off that square to Neptune. That's exact on Tuesday. So next Wednesday, uh, the sun is going to conjunct Neptune. So I'm going to be talking about Neptune a little bit here. And uh, let me look at the camera. All right, everybody. It's, is this my, like, my first paleo report inside? Just about. <laughs> I'm not going out there for the whole freaking report, man. <laughs> I mean, I thought about it, but, um, no, I got too much to do today, too much going on. Um, but yes, uh, wow. I'm, it's bright and early. I, I just got up, but it's, Supposed to stop snowing, so I wanted to do the Paley report as soon as possible, so you could get this uh, snowfall behind me. Um, So let me gather my thoughts together. This could be a long Paley report. You know, I'm in no hurry. I've got lots of reading to do, and maybe you could uh, leave in the comments. You know, if my reading would would you like would you like prefer me to like not read and just talk or do you like it when I read from different books? I want to read to you today about the fool. Yes, the zero card of the major arcana in the tarot, the fool, because I associate the fool with Pisces. Sun, Mercury, and Neptune are in Pisces. Mars is squaring Neptune in Pisces. And I want to, and I want to be talking about this because it's, 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 there's no coincidence. In astrology, there's no accidents. There's no coincidence. There's unconsciousness. Mm-hmm. And the unconscious comes out of nowhere, comes out of the unconscious into the consciousness and blows us away. <laughs> and so, you know, this is, uh, you know, and the, and the soul is unconscious. And I associate this, uh, number one, Neptune and Pisces in the 12th house has to do with the collective unconscious. Pluto has to do with the soul. But I also associate Chiron with the soul. 
and I've watched him through transits. I've looked at him in natal chart interpretations and, uh, you know, he has so much to do with our soul. And that is what I'm talking about in this week's mantra. Jupiter conjunct Chiron is the soul of Chiron acting in a very big way. Like you can't miss it. <laughs> like it's in your face. <laughs> and I want to go back because it's no coincidence that this Jupiter, Venus, Chiron conjunction. Okay. Which Chiron has to do with a healing crisis. So we're also looking at crises. Okay. And these crises, these big crises, Jupiter, Chiron, that have to do with Venus, matters of the heart. Yes. Relationships, the physical heart, whatever, you know, it's uh, my, one of my best buddies just had a stroke. Yeah. And, and it, you know, right with this full moon in Virgo, it's got a huge stellium in Virgo. Anyway, it's crushing. And it's sudden and it's a crisis. And, and we're going to be dealing with a lot of this now as Saturn, okay, moves into Pisces. Yeah. So I should say, actually, it's Saturn, Sun, Mercury, Neptune, all in Pisces right now. Very big time having to do with the fool. And what else? Well, let's go back in time. I always feel like, you know, I know this is a weekly report. But in order to stand, understand what's going on this week, we have to have a context. We have to have, we have to look at the bigger picture. So I want to bring you a little bit of the bigger picture today. And we have to go back. If we want to look at this, you know, Jupiter Chiron conjunction, when was the last time Jupiter was conjunct Chiron? It was in May of 2009. Do you remember what you were doing then? <laughs> um, Not only that, but you can go back to the Pele report I did then. <laughs> I remember I was in Israel. I gave a talk on uh, on the Jupiter-Neptune-Chiron conjunction. All three of them came together at 26 degrees of Aquarius. Think of what planets you have at 26 degrees. And think of the cycle that began for you in 2009. That's when I moved from California out to Hawaii is in 2009. And it was chasing a dream. Neptune is the dream. And some of these dreams become reality. And some of these dreams fizzle into illusions and cause great disappointment and disillusionment. Yeah. And it's this is just like, you know, we reach. OK, this is a time of downloads. So now let's look, let's look at Mars. Let's look at this Mars square Neptune. Okay. Mars was conjunct Neptune. Okay. That's the seed. Okay. The seed was sown for us. Mars is I desire, I want, I act. Neptune is spirit, dream, fantasy, infinite love, union, and drugs. <laughs> Stop it. You know, but you know, definitely. Let's say plant medicine. You know, I'll be, I'll be, you know, kosher and uh, you know, 
hip, whatever, you know. But we're gonna we're gonna just kind of uh, understand that Neptune is this multi-dimensional world that we cannot access with our conscious ego. Okay, it is love. It is you know we can't comprehend this with just our Mercury left brain, linear logical brain and mind and ego. So that's the way it's, it has to do with the heart. It has to do with the crown chakra, and this is this infinite infinite connection. So when Mars, which is my will, I will unite, I will love, I will be one with all that is, I I will transcend and ascend and experience this great spirit, right? That conjunction, okay, was May 19th of last year. So a seed, you, you had an intention or you had a new impulse or you had a new desire to experience love in a new way or to open your crown chakra in a new way or to dance your dance of life in a new way last May. And then it came around to the first quarter square. Neptune stays in Pisces, very slow. Mars comes around to Gemini, okay, and makes that first square October 12th, okay? And that's a time to take your seed and put it into action. So last October, it was like, yeah, I really want to go for this. I want to make life a movie. <laughs> I want to, you know, reach for the stars. I want to, da, 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 da. you know, in Gemini's, I want to talk about it and I want to write about it and I want to sing about it and I, I want to dance about it. So, you know, I mean, Gemini's like, you know, all over the place, right? So and this is direct. And then, you know, Mars uh, entered Gemini, what, last October 21st, August, from August 21st to March 25th, seven months, Mars is in Gemini, (laughs) driving everybody loco, (laughs) right? So anyway, so it came through October 12th, then it went retrograde November 20th, okay? So, you know, it came through. October 12th, and you said, okay, yeah, I want to do this, you know, I want to sing this song and do this dance and reach for the stars. Well, the retrograde, when Mars went retrograde from October 30th to January 12th, Mars retrograde is, you know, clear out, clear, make space. If you want to dance your dance, clear the dance floor. You know, if, if you want to reach for the stars, get yourself a rocket. Like, you need to prepare you need to inwardly, you know, you know, remodel, you know, your life so that you know, so there's room for this dream. Yeah. So that's that that retrograde Mars. And now finally, okay, this third pass, all right, which is Tuesday, the 14th, Mars comes back for that third pass and that third pass is okay. You know, time to dance your dance if you're going to dance now. Now's the time. I mean, this is it. And if you're reaching for the stars, you know, this is the time where you're either going to get the stars or you did not get your spaceship together. <laughs> you did not clear the dance floor and you're not reaching the stars and there's no room to dance. So this, you know, this is kind of like a, a culmination time, okay, of it can be either the manifestation of the dream 
or it can be disillusionment and disappointment that I did not make. I didn't, I, I didn't realize the dream. Yeah. And it's very interesting to have this again happening at the same time as this Jupiter Chiron conjunction. Okay. I mean, I'm not really done with this Mars-Neptune because I wanted to read about the fool. I mean, this is kind of an interesting dynamic, and I screwed up the order, but that's because, you know, I just woke up, man. Gotta give me a break. (laughs) Okay. I gotta read you the fool. I mean, I I love the Thoth deck. I know everybody gives me a hard time, you know, because it's it's a Crowley and everything, but uh, this is... uh, this is so, so good, such good stuff, yeah. I, I want to read about the consciousness having to do with the fool. And it's pretty far out there. This is a time of Pisces, Neptune. I'm telling you, uh, it's far out there. It's time to maybe go far out there. But here it is. On the level of consciousness, the fool personifies the astonishment that, according to Plato, is the beginning of all knowledge. The fool is at the beginning, in the void. His entire self is still so filled with cosmic experiences that the rational basis of the material world with its functional course of action is missing. His conscious experience is influenced by dreams and the dream world. For this connection to the inconceivable still dominates. Although the wisdom of the fool symbolizes greatest maturity, this does not mean that every fool is a sage. He stands at the beginning of a journey that will lead him back to himself at the end of the path. But in the course of this journey, he must experience reality, and become mature in order to turn back to the source of his childhood. Even if we instinctively sense that the goal lies in the source itself, there are no shortcuts that would save us the arduous detours. I mean, you might want to rewind and listen to that again. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like, okay, this is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, Neptune, Pisces, you know, Mars squaring Neptune coming out of the void into Gemini, which is the here and now reality, but only to circle around and return back to source, back to the multidimensional spiritual realities. And so it's really um, it's really something that when we come into Gemini and this Mars in Gemini, there is this detours and you know the mistakes and uh, you know the smorgasbord of life that Gemini likes to taste of all these little bits and all this da, 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 da. and this is where the mantra comes in where we can go off track. Right, we can go off the path, or or we can get, uh, you know, th- this flower is so beautiful. I just want to stare at it forever, 
and we can get attached or stuck on the path. And, and this is where then the unconscious soul of Chiron comes in and gives us a kick in the butt. Yeah. You know, this, this, this soul of Chiron and Jupiter coming around through Aries says, uh, 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 uh. Uh, no more time to smell the roses. You got to keep on moving. Yeah, you have to keep on evolving. You have to keep on growing. You have to keep on maturing. And you can't hold on to that relationship or that position or that job or that situation, you know, longer. It's time to go on. But the ego, you know, are, you know, we can be stubborn, right? We can. <laughs> We can say, no, this feels good, or I'm comfortable, or I want this, you know, to stay, and it's not never end. <laughs> and this is where crisis comes in. Yeah, this is where you get a health crisis, a financial crisis, a job crisis, a housing crisis. What? All these crises can come in that say, you know, guess what? You know, yes, your ego gets attached to things. Because the ego is the source of fear, the ego is the source of separation, and the soul wants union. So the ego can seek this union in, you know, temporary time-space. The ego exists within the time-space continuum of the third dimension. This is where that, you know, that trip comes in. Now, what I want to do is uh, let's look at the Sabian symbol for the degree of this Jupiter-Chiron conjunction that's going on, like I said, all last week, all this week, all next week, you know, at, at least. And, of course, Venus was there. Venus is kind of still hanging out there. I tend to use really tight orbs. <clears throat> I'm going to try to work on that because these these influences, especially if you're sensitive, you can feel them coming a lot sooner and you can still feel them after they've passed. A lot longer, and that is the uh, the orb of separation. But this uh, Sabian symbol for this Jupiter Chiron conjunction is the fifteenth degree of Aries, and it is an Indian weaving a ceremonial blanket. The keynote is projecting into everyday living the realization of wholeness and fulfillment. So here's Mars, Neptune, Sun, and Pisces looking for this wholeness and fulfillment and wanting to project it into everyday reality. This is like the successful manifestation of Mars square Neptune in Gemini, of Jupiter Chiron. This healing that can happen is that we can have a soul experience and we can inject our soul spirit into this mundane world. Let's look at this, what the Sabian symbol says. If this symbol comes to the consciousness of the inquirer after meaning, deliberately, or through, well, an astrological conjunction, <laughs> an act of revelation, yeah. Imply is the profound fact that every individual has as his ultimate conscious task 
the weaving of his immortal body, his Gnostic robe of glory. It may sound very mystical and far out, but there is a moment in every cycle when, in however small a degree, every individual may be confronted with the potentiality of a fulfilling act of self-realization and may, ever so relatively, find himself clothed in light for an instant. (laughs) We are told by it that the fulfillment of desire is a possibility at whatever level and in however incomplete a manner it may be experienced. So this is what I really want to stress for us today and what this mantra is really all about, right? Is, let me read the mantra once, right? Just bring us back to the mantra for the week. Repeating this over as, you know, you go through your daily uh, uh, world, you know, this week can kind of bring this back into consciousness. But most often a crisis erupts in my life when I have veered off track and chased an illusion or got so attached that my soul had to bring me back. Yeah. If we, if you're having a hard time or you know someone who's having a hard time or someone is in crisis or you are in crisis, this is a time of going in. This is a time of connecting to the heart force. This is a time of connecting to the love force. This is a time of connecting to spirit. And maybe asking why, if you want to satisfy your mind, But even beyond the why, it's to sit with what is. And it's to receive and listen to what the soul, it's like this is a reminder, a crisis is a reminder. It's like, hey, you know, what is really most valuable in life? What are you really here for? What is your deepest soul intention for being born and this is this is also where I just want to say um, how can I put this it's sad it's there's a sad situation that I feel grief in my heart that the expansion of materialism occurring these days, in this materialistic, particularly the Western world, but it seems to have gotten even over into the East, and the entire planet is sinking down into materialism, where they have lost communion, lost touch with the soul. They don't believe in the soul. The soul reincarnates. The soul is timeless. It's outside time and space. So we have such big egos running the show these days and writing the script. Yeah, you know, speaking the narrative out to our children and out to the masses that so many people are not even listening 
looking for or trying to <laughs> experience their soul nature. So, you know, if you're listening to this Pele report, if you're, uh, you know, familiar with my work and what I'm doing, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's a soul astrology. Yeah. And we're looking at this, what reincarnates, what is more timeless, what is more eternal and not getting lost in the temporal, not getting lost in this material third dimension. So. If you are in crisis or you know someone or that it is like go beyond your temporal physical experience, go into a meditative state. Okay. You know, you know, do some microdosing or whatever it takes you to break out of just your ego left brain thought patterns that take this kind of you know, what's going on is the reality. This is one reality existing within a much greater reality. And the more that we tap into this greater reality, the less trauma, the less uh, grief, the, you know, the, the, the less confusion we will experience in this daily reality. So that is this, the soul bringing us back. Crisis is the soul bringing us back saying, you've gone off track. <laughs> you've, you've, you've got lost. You've been distracted by this material illusion of Maya. So whether it's a hospital bed or, you know, your physical therapy office or <laughs> your yoga room or whatever, it's like, you know what? You, Center yourself, breathe, meditate, and and reconnect to the core of who you are. See what I'm saying? That's what I'm talking about. That's what this mantra is about. Yeah. Most often a crisis erupts in my life when I have veered off track and chased an illusion or got so attached that my soul had to bring me back. May you come back. May you return. May you do the fool's journey. May you weave your robe, your, your robe of glory. You know, may you do this with the least amount of crisis. May you not veer so far off track that you, that you, you know, that it requires a massive crisis, but that we maybe have little mini crises, like, you know, I have to get out of bed and it's cold. <laughs> ah! Oh my God. Uh, anyway, there's mini crises and there's big crises and, and hopefully there's just little ones all along the way. A lot of times, if we don't have any for a long period of time, they explode like that volcanic eruption uh, that I spoke of uh, last week with the full moon, right? So I think some of us have had a volcanic eruption. So this week is a time of letting the ashes settle and to look at the deeper intention, the soul intention behind our ego experience. Namaste, aloha, so.
much love.
you know, it's got troublesome indicators. All right. So that's that's your new moon chart here. <sighs> so that's all I've got to say for this week. <laughs> Well, let's okay. see what Tanya has to top it off with. How about that, Richard? Yeah. Let's go so, do that. Oh, let's do that. Here we go. Welcome to Star Codes. This is the podcast where we look at an upcoming event in the stars and numbers, the astrology and numerology. They are sister divination arts. They work together and every event we look at each week is helping us to navigate the incredible and intense awakening happening on earth at this time. So today we are going to look at mid-March, because there's a lot happening, we have Mars and Neptune in a square. And this is going to be quite momentous because Mars will be coming out of its shadow from the retrograde that began October 30th and ended January 12th of this year. Well, there's a shadow period where Mars revisits all the degrees that it navigated through when it went retrograde backwards. So the day after Mars squares Neptune, which is on March 14th, on March 15th, Mars has moved through its complete shadow period. Mars usually stays about six weeks in a sign. And it takes around two years for Mars to move through the 12 signs including a retrograde. And during the retrograde, Mars stays months in a sign. So it really intensifies the meaning of that sign, in this case, Gemini. Mars entered Gemini in August of 2022, went retrograde October 30th, ended the retrograde on January 12th of 2023, now is moving forward through Gemini again and will be at 25 degrees and I believe 37 minutes on March 15th, having gone back to the point where the retrograde began on October 30th of 2022. So this is big because it's happening at the very same time that the sun is in Pisces and that the ruler of Pisces, Neptune, is squaring Mars exactly, literally hours before the whole retrograde experience ends. And so Neptune square to Mars in Gemini activates your desire, your passionate interest in discovering the true mysteries, especially with Mars in Gemini, words, and with Neptune in Pisces, sound. In the beginning, there was the word, and the word was sound. In a square, words and the energy behind the voice are the sound that you hear are really going to be noticed. They will be front and center. So we're going to be listening a lot more closely as to the integrity of words that we hear, of 
communication that's coming through. And let's add one more piece of the puzzle to the equation. On March 7th, the day of the Virgo full moon, Saturn entered Pisces. And Saturn has been in Aquarius for two and a half, three years. Now it's entering Pisces for two and a half, three years. And Saturn in Pisces is adding to taking responsibility for all that we are not seeing and hearing clearly. So things we have idealized or things we have brushed under the rug or just things that have been kept hidden from us. With Mars squaring Neptune, we are really looking closely at what words we're using, what we're hearing, and whether they literally make sense. Are they true? Mars represents the warrior energy, and the warrior energy is either a warrior of light, a sacred warrior, or an actual warrior going to war. When confronted with conflict, what do you do? Do you run from it? Do you try to attack it? Or do you ask for awareness, ask for guidance? So this square means what are you truly carrying into each moment? Is it love? Is it wisdom? Is it is seeking of clarity? Or is it fear? Is it avoidance? Is it limitation? So you want to look at the quality of the frequency that you're focused on. And that means that you're conscious. And if there's any square that is asking you to be conscious about illusion, it is Mars square Neptune, about what is not real. And a square that brings things to the surface, especially since Saturn just entered Pisces and wants you to see, wants us all to see reality right away. So this is a spiritual commitment, right? This is a a commitment to your own self-empowerment, getting out of victimization. And so opportunities for spiritual growth, Pisces, expanded awareness and being self-empowered, Mars, and Pluto entering Aquarius this month as well. Are you being a conduit to help and assist and release all the dense energies on the planet? Not making things personal, not personalizing. That's really the main key here. We tend to take things personally when we get frustrated. We are learning to step out of, oh, you attacked me. Oh, that offends me. The individual versus the unique person. And this is what I teach in my free webinar spiritualmasteryclass.com because it's so important the difference between individuality and uniqueness and so we're learning how to step out of individualizing personalizing and instead stepping into being a unique expression of energy and that unique expression is not personal it is to surrender our individuality and allow the natural the that part of us that innately 
speaks, that innately comes forth and exclaims and shares and, and, and is and takes action from that place. That is the key. That is the awakening. So we've lived in a society that has used personality as the main focal point. And that's why personality cults are such big drivers. We forget to turn in and we give our power away to a personality. Or we ourselves use our personality and not our an inner innate to make decisions. And we personalize everything that comes to us. So free will then has been mostly limited to being about serving that individual, that personality, right? And so we need to see that being in a state of free will is the key because it's not about whether we have it or not. Of course we have free will, but are you in a state, an innate state of freedom? It is literally only about are you doing it? Are you acting on it? And that's where Mars comes in. Mars is the passion planet. And Mars square Neptune is takes a concept like free will and brings it into being through action. Mars, you know, it, it inspires us from within through passion. So we need to look at any challenges that come up because squares are inevitably going to bring up situations that challenge us so we can grow. And, you know, the reason we have challenges is to know what needs to be addressed so we can clear it, right? So then we deal with it. We have amazing growth opportunities as a result. And the square between Mars and Neptune is literally exposing those illusions we have about ourselves, especially personality-wise or others. And what do those illusions result in? Well, having an opinion, (laughs) about everything and those opinions are created through assumptions we jump to conclusions we have our personal way of seeing things and that results in my way or the highway and those opinions create a lot of division and inevitably a battle a war and our individual self wants to go to war to defend itself right so That's how it works. And this is all coming to the surface now because anything that's hiding behind that mask of personality, opinions, Neptune can mask things, Pisces can mask things, is coming to the surface. And remember, Pluto is also moving into Aquarius this month. So Pluto will empower by helping us look at any story that is masked by thoughts that personalize or that try to dominate. The takeaway really is what messages are you sending? What are you hearing? Notice how you're thinking about life, about others, how you speak, how you write, the energy behind it. Can you let the past go? Can you be forgiving? Can you extend forgiveness to yourself? for all those things that you may be judging others for, because it begins here. Those are really the questions. The Mars in Gemini ending its retrograde shadow, square Neptune in Pisces questions. 
And we look at all of this in that free masterclass at spiritualmasteryclass.com, the secrets to spiritual mastery, the importance of your natal chart, which I create for you. And we look at your rising sign, the moon and sun's profound impact on you. Everything is revealed in that birth chart. And we look at the really critical difference between individuality and uniqueness. Really, the way to connect with spirit is to surrender the personality, the ego. And lots of secret tools are going to be revealed to you in that free masterclass. So have a look at that at spiritualmasteryclass.com and have an amazing week as we build into mid-March. And remember the equinox is coming too and there's an Aries new moon at zero degrees. This is so exciting this month. So I hope you enjoy the free class and I wish you a wonderful week and I'll see you in next week's Star Codes podcast. Lots of single night in January and February. Yeah. Yeah. At night though. I've got a little bit better during the day, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, happy week and uh, namaste. Happy week namaste. to you too. Namaste. All right. So 
Rama, how about you give the phone numbers for our hour of consulting in our conference call? Uh, 720-716-7301. And the PIN code is 353-863-POW. All right. 720-716-7301. PIN code 353-863-POUND. So we will see you there. And then we'll be right back here at the top of the next hour for another session three of BBS Radio. Best radio in the universe. And... uh See you on the conference, everyone. Namaste for now. Welcome back, everyone. What was that called, that last song, Ron? Oh, that was a hymn to Pan, calling in the great horned one to bring in the spring with his flute and all the the fairies, the elves, the dwarves that bring the warmth and the light to the soils so that um, the plants can uh, sprout again. Mm. All right. That sounds good. And we're going to have to find some good Irish music coming up here somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about you know, fairies and elves and all of that. Yes. Um, so we're going to finish this story, the CIA stories, uh, with the focus on the Jakarta method. Ugh. Uh, with Abby Martin and uh, her friend there. Um, what was his name? Mommy's. Vincent Bevins. Yeah. Vincent Bevins. We've got 20 minutes to to complete. And then we'll do something called Buried Secrets of Stonehenge. That's coming up after this. All right. Let's finish this. Complete this story. Here we go. And put it in the circle. Blaze the violet fire. Blaze the violet fire. Only peace. Only peace now. Advocated by United States forces seems so egregious even for the time because of how popular the Communist Party was, because of how many millions of communists were everywhere in the country. To actually follow through with an extermination campaign like that is... Hmm. Commercials. I, I didn't expect it. Why does every outdoor brand think I want to look like this? I know I don't. Gear today is getting out of control, especially the pain. (laughs) So unbelievably cruel and evil, it's really hard to wrap your mind around. Yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, I feel always very, like, embarrassed to say this because what I went through is absolutely nothing compared to what these people went through. But just to hear them tell the story in that way, and to tell them that, to, to tell me that we never thought that we were opposed to the country. We never saw ourselves as rebels. 
We never thought that anything like this could happen to us. We thought that we were part of the Indonesian revolution alongside the military. And I went in thinking that we were just going to clear this up and nothing was going to happen. And for them to have realized later that it was precisely because they believed that their popularity made them safe, that they were not. It was precisely because that they believed that because we have 25, 30% of the country that we would clearly win elections, that we don't need to worry about self-defense because we're part of this together, that they were so vulnerable. I mean, it would be impossible to kill approximately 1 million people in this period of time if they had been violent or preparing for some kind of a, a conflict with the military. They weren't. They simply weren't. The, the rank and file of the Indonesian Communist Party had never imagined that this could be possible. But this was something that, to this day, you can feel the way that it traumatized Indonesia. And at the time, it sent ripples across the entire Cold War. I mean, we've forgotten about this event in the English-speaking world. But for the people that were paying attention to the Cold War in 1965, this was a huge deal. I mean, this was the largest socialist party outside of the Soviet Union in China that went from being in a position to really influence the situation in the country in the fall to decimated by the spring. And as I said earlier, uh, left-wing movements around the world, some of them took the lesson that, again, there is no democratic route to reform in the global south in a world of U.S. hegemony, that they will always come for you. You must be uh, armed and ready for self-defense because they are coming for you sooner or later. Um, the, the, Philipp- the, the Communist Party of the Philippines, which was founded um, around this time, took uh, an explicitly militant view as a result of this. The Chinese Cultural Revolution happens um, soon after the decimation of the Indonesian Communist Party, and this event is is a major theme in the Chinese Cultural Revolution. In Latin America, there are all kind of splits within the left as to how to interpret what happens in Indonesia, but this absolutely sends a shockwave across the entire global system, and it is meant to, right? It, it, it The way in which the Indonesian Communist Party is decimated is meant to terrify the rest of the country into silence. Because as I said, there was 25 million people that were somehow or another affiliated with the party. You weren't going to kill that many. But you could kill so many in such a way that everybody else was too afraid to speak up. And this is where the dynamic of disappearances becomes important. Because they didn't just come into a village and kill everyone in the streets. As horrible as that sounds, that would have been less effective than what they did. Because what they did is they took everybody into prison. And some of those people are killed. Now, the natural human response for a mother or a sister or a friend of someone that's been taken into prison is to assume that my, the person that I know might still be alive. alive. I don't want to do anything that can jeopardize my friend or my son or my comrade that's in jail. So this dynamic of disappearance becomes really important for the terrorism that is inflicted upon the population. And to this day, it is very difficult to find somebody that is old enough that will admit what they were really doing in 1963, even if they were only sort of sympathetic Mm. to the left, or maybe if they really were on the left. To this day, people don't want to talk about what they were doing before 1965. And again, this dynamic of disappearances, which is so effective, horribly effective in Indonesia in 1965, pops up in Latin America in the Cold War one year later in Guatemala and Venezuela, And there has been uh, a trading of U.S. officials from Southeast Asia to those countries in that time. So it is possible, though I don't have the proof, that disappearances were so effective in Indonesia in 1965 that they were brought to Latin America in 1966 
of course, disappearance becomes a very famous uh, tactic of uh, repression in, in the rest of the Cold War. One really incredible thing about your book, as you mentioned, is that it crystallizes these points with the State Department's own cables and documents themselves. Mm-hmm. And one that documented the effects of these U.S. operations admits that the PKI, the Communist Party in Indonesia, had basically seized for the foreseeable future to be a power element. Mm-hmm. Very effective, it says, totally disrupting the party's organizational apparatus and basically saying here estimates of the number of killed several hundred mm-hmm. thousand to see that. It's kind of bone chilling to just see that just callously, casually written up mm-hmm. in a State Department cable mm-hmm. like this, um, kind of flippantly. Then following up, crystallizing this point, and I think this really says it all, Vincent, without becoming directly involved, promote arrangements between Suharto and American oil companies. Yes, yeah. This is only, I mean, so <laughs> it's a cliche, but it, you know, it's, it tends to be the case that if you want to explain U.S. foreign policy, U.S. oil companies are often involved. And there was a very fascinating dynamic during the transition, during the mass killings, uh, and during the moment in which Suharto was unofficially the president or unofficially leaving the country, but had not been cemented as the actual president, that parts of the Indonesian military, even the military, wanted to go forward with a program which would have nationalized Indonesian oil and would have put Indonesians in control of Indonesian oil resources. This uh, elicits an immediate and, and, and very aggressive response from the United States. They make it very clear, you're not going to do this. Uh, activating all kinds of diplomatic resources this is not going to be acceptable and Suharto backs off. I always think about this time, well, I mean, I think about, <laughs> I think about the corporate media in general and just think about the compliance, the imperial stenography, the willingness to go along with these campaigns and projects. I mean, you worked for the Washington Post. Mm-hmm. I, I don't understand how the international press was undeterred mm-hmm. by this mass murder mm-hmm. and actually covering for it, just unquestioningly mm-hmm. printing whatever the United States and its allies wanted to. I mean, famously, James Reston in the New York Times calling what happened in Indonesia a gleam of light. Mm-hmm. Generally speaking, the response of the mainstream liberal media in the United States, uh, 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 in the English speaking world in general, was to celebrate very clearly, very openly this flip that Indonesia goes from the anti-colonial left-leaning uh, camp to a radically anti-communist pro-capitalist and pro-American camp um, and being open about the fact that mass violence has been uh, employed to make this flip possible they sort of muddy the waters as to who carries out the violence they sort of blame it in a very racist way on well the the Asians have sort of they they, they exploded into violence in a way which is very typical in that part of the world but they're very open about the fact that there's mass violence that makes this this transition possible, and then they stop talking about it. It's basically Western press celebrate publicly that this is a success for the West, and then they stop talking about exactly how it happened. Now, they played another role in making it happen in the first place. Right. And I think in a dynamic that is important to understand is that from 1945 to about 1975, the CIA was seen by much of the U.S. press as an ally in the Cold War. They... If the CIA called you and said, please, can you say this? Often they would. I mean, this, this, this happened very famously in Guatemala in 1954. The New York Times had a reporter that was a little bit too good in Central America. 
and the CIA got in contact with the owners of the New York Times and said, can you please take him off of uh, off of this this story? Um, we need this to go unreported. And they did because they believed that the CIA was part of this patriotic effort to fight communism. I mean, these were people that were coming out of World War II. They believed it was kind of the same thing. Now, by 1975, the Church Commission, all the publications about all of the insane things that the CIA had been doing, this changes. Now, after 1975, I think you see a more subtle mechanism through which U.S. Uh, ideology is reproduced in mainstream uh, liberal uh, publications. But back then, you could really ask the New York Times to tell the story this way or that way. And we know from declassified files that, that uh, I reproduced in the book that many of the mainstream media knew that they were being lied to and they decided to reproduce the lies because they thought it was a good cause. <laughs> I mean, yeah, Operation Mockingbird, there was definitely like overt tentacles of the CIA being fed into the mainstream institutional media. Absolutely. But it does feel like there are echoes of that still today. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it's just the doctrine of anti-communism that is kind of the unofficial religion that carries on. It's kind of like you have to believe in capitalism and U.S. imperialism in order to like kind of rise in the ranks of these institutions. But it does seem like it is very difficult to believe what is being written about U.S. foreign policy today mm-hmm. from the corporate media. I think that Noam Chomsky points to a dynamic uh, that is very important in his book, Manufacturing Consent, even though it came out a long time ago. It's more true now that as journalists have less resources, we rely we'll rely upon big, well-funded organizations to do the basic work of fact collecting and sort of pass that off to us. So whether, you know, whether it's NGOs or governments or corporations, those are the types of institutions that tend to have the resources to do basic fact collecting, which we can't really do anymore. Um, and then I think there are sets of subtle consequences for people that get in the way of what is perceived by owners and advertisers as the U.S. national interest. But I think it is precisely because of this, the subtlety at work uh, in the 21st century that you do see the reproduction of a certain ideology in mainstream English language uh, journalism. I still think it's much better to have good mainstream journalism than not to have it. I've spent my whole life working in this tradition mm-hmm. and every every um, everything that I do in the Jakarta method is really just sort of an application of almost in an intentionally naive way. Like, let's be really serious about objectivity. Let's let's take serious the idea that we're supposed to tell the whole truth and let's just do it and see what happens in this case of Indonesia. And it happens to contradict a lot of the stories that we tell about ourselves. But if we're going to do real serious journalism, this is what comes out of it. And I've always worked in that tradition. But um, the the 1950s, 1960s method of just calling up the, the publication and telling them to be different, I don't think happens. At least I don't have evidence for that happening in the way that it used to. <laughs> But you still you don't see a change in the way that we speak about U.S. foreign policy. So, yeah, I do think that the same sort of ideology is reproduced, but through a wider, more subtle and I think uh, as a result, more effective set of mechanisms. This is also constructed through the rehabilitation of the CIA and kind of the retransformation of how the CIA does its operations Mm -hmm. around the world. It was much more overt in the era that we're talking about. But even in 1991, you had the co-founder of the National Endowment for Democracy, Alan Weinstein, saying, we do a lot of the things that the CIA used to do 25 years ago today. 
with the NGOs that we implement uh, in these regions of the world. And now you have, you know, the post 9-11 era, which has completely rehabilitated the image of the CIA, yeah. where now they go out there almost, dare I say, progressively saying, you know, we <laughs> we really care about these marginalized communities. It's fascinating because I hear this all the time, as I'm sure you do, that no, the CIA doesn't do that anymore. Yeah, that was a really dark, sinister past, but that chapter is closed. And now it's a completely new agency that actually does good in the world. It has been strange to watch the everybody sort of know that the U.S. government does bad things. And then just to sort of have that be forgotten about when it comes to nowadays, because if there was a moment when the United States government got together and said, we're not going to do any more of the things that we used to do and we can prove to you that that's true, I missed it. Right. So I don't I don't you know, this book is based on declassified information, things that we can really prove about what happened in the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s. I can't make the same kind of claims with the same certainty about the the recent about recent years. But I never saw a big conference where they dissolved all of the parts of the U.S. government that used to be doing those things and declared in a credible way that we're not going to do them again. And again, just as I said that the mass murder in Indonesia was necessary for the construction of the regime that came later, a lot of the things that the the CIA did in the 20th century worked. If you have a particular set of ideas about what the United States should be, if you want to make possible the accumulation of capital on a global scale, certain things that we, the United States government, did in the 20th century were effective. I don't see any reason why rational actors in the U.S. state would throw those in the trash. I think that they prefer other mechanisms, which which are more subtle, which are less obvious. But I don't see any any method ever being discarded, including the, the Jakarta, what I call the Jakarta method, the mass murder of leftists or people accused of being leftists, being thrown away forever if it worked. And, 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 and that's why I think it's, it makes sense to be skeptical of a government that lied in the past and lied recently um, when they speak in the present. Mm-hmm. Especially when we know that there were death squads in Afghanistan as well. And I mean, the operations being carried out today still are implementing this kind of global economic injustice, I would say. I want to address, lastly, mm-hmm. I want to address the ramifications of this program because mm-hmm. sometimes I just sit back as I'm sure you do and just wonder what could the world have been like? Hundreds of millions of people were robbed of their futures, right. of their sovereignty, of their lives, of their families, of their friends. It's very overwhelming to think about the possibilities if this did not happen. Um, 45 years, 22 countries I mean, just the sheer horror and, and terror campaign and trauma of the victims. Mm-hmm. The lasting ramifications of the political and economic mm-hmm. impacts of this campaign, Vincent. Mm-hmm. And, and this was some of the most emotional territory that I covered while speaking to the people that lived through these, these mass murder programs, the people that lived through the Third World Movement and how it was ultimately crushed. Because when I would ask them about the third world movement and what they believed in the 50s and 60s, that the world would be like now, their eyes would light up and, and, you, and they would tell you this story about what they believed to be natural and obvious that, okay, well, formal colonization is over. We're going to take our rightful place alongside the first world. We're going to 
create a new global order, which is more just, more based on solidarity, less exploitative. We're no longer even going to be a country that just ships natural resources for rich people in the global north to use and throw in the trash. Um, and they really believed it. And it was clear that this was something they believed. You could see them get excited just thinking about it again. And so that is, I think, what is most important about this investigation, what I try to drive home in the book, is that lots of other worlds were possible. The people that were building those worlds believed that they were coming, and it was through a very specific type of intervention that these movements were crushed. And I also say the Third World Movement was trying to do something very, very difficult. There was going to be problems. There were going to be internal contradictions. It was going to be difficult to reformulate the global system in this way. It certainly did not help to have the most powerful country in human history violently crushing what you were trying to do. And um, because that particular method, because that type of state formation was employed to create the global system that we now occupy, I believe it is in its very essence. And it also means that other global systems are possible, which are not built through anti-democratic violence, which are not built through crushing movements which seek to build alliances across the global south and uh, build a more just global order. Concluded the way they did, Ramo. Mm-hmm. There's something to uh, transform inside, inside, as we are and we have a voice in the direction that this world takes. And Rama decided he wants to do this one next. Introducing the Galactic Federation. And this is, says, is humankind on the verge of open extraterrestrial contact? Top defense experts from around the world discuss the role of a Galactic Federation in relation to recent UAP public disclosures. In session four of Deep Space, we examine the relationships between ET species and humanity's place in the Galactic Federation, explore advanced technologies and the hidden collaborations between multiple species, bringing forth an agenda to advance a cosmic community. This season features episodes on Andromedans, Arcturians, Syrians, Pleiadians, Felinus. Felinus? Do you know about them, Emma? Mm. F-E-L-L No, F-E-L Felines. Right, okay, got the it. Lion the lion Felines and many more. Okay. And we recognize these folks here. This is featuring William Henry, John Enoch, 
Tim Tactical Advisor, Caroline Corey, Matthias DeStefano, J.J. Hurtak, Desiree Hurtak, Marina Jake Jacoby, Kadrick Olson, uh, Debbie Solanis, Solaris, excuse me, Debbie Solaris, and Matt LaCroix. And this is 29 minutes. Let's do this. I think this is going to be packed full of information. Is humankind on the verge of open extraterrestrial contact? And if so, is the current disclosure movement a first step towards revealing a collective of non-terrestrial intelligences working together within a galactic federation? For more than 60 years, alternative media has explored the idea of a galactic federation. From popular sci-fi shows, to individuals who claim to be in communication with extraterrestrial intelligences. The possibility of a galactic federation as reality has been made more significant with its acknowledgement by the former general and head of Israel's Defense Ministry's Space Directorate, Chaim Eshed, when he publicly proclaimed, Earthlings have been in contact with extraterrestrials from a galactic federation, in December 2020, Haim Ashed, who was a retired Israeli security chief, talked to the Jerusalem Post and said, ah, there is a galactic federation and they've been involved with human affairs, but they're staying hidden right now because we're not ready for them. And they want us to know they're, they're here to observe us and they're very interested in the fabric of the universe and we need to know more about the fabric of the universe. Well, that's pretty extraordinary. Former Canadian Minister of National Defense and longtime member of parliament, the late Honorable Paul Hellyer was the first and only cabinet-ranking official from a G8 nation to publicly state his belief in extraterrestrials and the alleged Galactic Federation of Aliens. Well, I, I only know about the Galactic Federation, but they are concerned about what's going on in the world, and they have been working um, through individuals they say, you clean up your act. You're in charge. It's your planet. And if it comes to a dead end, it will be because you let it or made it a dead end. Even in my conversations I had with the late Paul Hellyer, he told me that we had extraterrestrials helping our scientists on Earth at bases, and there was full cooperation with them. Paul would say that these were part of a galactic federation. Tim, a tactical advisor to covert analysts in Germany, trying to understand the missions and strategies of non-terrestrial intelligences on Earth, 
recalls information from a collective of beings in the sixth density that Tim refers to as being six. I also have heard being six talk about some of its members being part of a galactic federation. So there seems to be a lot of truth to it. One of the first things in a dualistic universe that, you know, comes up within species is allyship, which means um, finding people who support your own position, which um, I would say is a truth um, all over the place in the universe. You have like many alliances. The greys are setting up their own alliance, so to speak, but different other species as well. You know, have contracts which, with, with each other. And being six directly spoke about a galactic federation, yes. Which basically makes sense because you have so many cultures and so many different planets and so many different standpoints going on in the universe that it totally makes sense to have some kind of regulatory system that might balance that out. And this is the way I understand a galactic federation. It seems to be quite a complicated situation because you have so many different agendas going on. While no one can say with certainty when the Galactic Federation was first created, some experts suggest it may have been as much as hundreds of thousands of years ago. My understanding is that this is the time where there has been a sort of competition, some sort of conflict that started to happen within this galaxy. Most researchers agree that the Galactic Federation started as a defense treaty from reptilian expansion into our galaxy. At that time, it was decided or decreed, if you will, uh, that a kind of a neutral organization be put in place to be able to supervise and maintain the order within this galaxy. You have to remember, this galaxy is part of a larger conglomerate of galaxies and then the universe. So there are larger organizations that are also in charge of maintaining order across the universe. And so when one particular area is struggling with any sort of conflict or issues between species, then that larger organization is going to say, we need some local organization that will supervise this area of the universe and make sure it maintains the order that is necessary. Through his role as a tactical advisor in the German equivalent of unacknowledged special access programs, Tim has had more than 100 face-to-face encounters with the extraterrestrial species referred to as the greys, which he describes as having an artificially created body into which they download their individual consciousness. Tim believes they're a benevolent race who have an influence on the Galactic Federation. The way I understand it um, is that there's not only one singular galactic federation and it definitely has not, um, you know, influence over every single part of the universe. It seems to be a construct um, which seems to be set up for uh, more and more species and planets. Um, But there are also like... um, different federations and different interest groups and 
very strong boundings or loose boundings uh, all over the place in the universe. So I have in-depth knowledge about the federation that the Greys are in, where human military personnel is also engaged and different other warrior type species. I personally think that this is different than what pop culture and media portrays as Galactic Federation or even that Galactic Federation that um, Israel was speaking about. I think they have a different mindset, but I mean, there still seems to be some overlapping influences here and there. While one might assume that there are ongoing contact scenarios between Federation members and various governmental, military and interest groups on Earth, countless individuals worldwide also claim contact with Galactic Federation members. Since the 1950s, we have seen just a sort of a parade, if you will, of people that maintain that they have had encounters with representatives of the Galactic Federation, that they themselves are agents of the Federation, and that they are now bringing forward this message. So what is the role of the individual in this scenario? And part of it is to say, well, if you are receiving that information, to make sure you are the best representative of that information, that you're not just saying things that are coming off the top of your head, that there is some kind of backup for what you're saying. I mean, if you're going to put yourself on a, out like that, you're willing to be put on a stand and tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And so we have to be sure that what the individuals are bringing forward does have some connection to reality, let's say. And that, to, to me, is, is sort of tricky because individuals don't carry the clout that a government does. And so it's a sort of a David versus Goliath scenario. But if you put together multiple individuals, multiple eyewitnesses that have all seen the same thing and are carrying essentially the same message, now that's a whole different story. And that's what's happening today. Matthias de Stefano expands on the idea of the Galactic Federation as a group of species who share the same ideals to include entire planets as one consciousness. He calls this the Confederation. The word Confederation actually comes from the Latin and means those who share a faith together, that they trust to one another. So a Confederation is basically a group of planets that trust each other and their agenda is basically to help those planets that are willing or in process of evolution towards consciousness to find their own way of acknowledging themselves. So what they started to do was to work with these planets uh, that were in the path of evolution so they could share much more data. So it's not that they are having this agenda of helping humans because they love humans or because we are the good ones or whatever. It's just because they see that our planet, like many others, has the potential of sharing a lot of data, a lot of information. Sometimes when you think about the Galactic Federation, you have to try to think about uh, about it like if you are talking about your own brain, trying to figure out something and connecting neurons, data, and, and improving the way in which you understand the reality around. According to researchers, the Galactic Federation is comprised of countless species and civilizations. The ones most familiar to humanity are the Andromedans, Arcturians, 
Syrians, Pleiadians, and Felines. While other councils, alliances, and associations exist to work together on various projects and agendas, which may also include Galactic Federation members, the core members of the Peaceful Inner Circle include these five. The Galactic Federation includes tens of thousands of different categories. In my work, the Arcturians would be one category as being the midway intelligence between the planetary systems of the third dimension and those of the higher dimensions. Another would be the Andromedans. There would be those who create amazing spacecraft that would require them to do the building out of space because they're dealing with molecular relationships on multiple levels going through electromagnetic spectrums. Another, of course, would be the Pleiadians that come from what we would call in the indigenous tradition, the Seven Sisters or the Planetary Association of emphasizing the artistic and the holistic realm of creation. The Galactic Federation is made up of all those beings trying to help humanity right now. They're not designed just for us, but that's the ones that are focusing right now on our development. And the Arcturians are a key part to that. There's other races as well that are part of that. Those connected with Sirius, for example, the star system Sirius, those connected with the Pleiadians. These are all intelligences that are here now influencing our technology, our consciousness, so we can grow. Another major player in the Galactic Federation is the Pleiadians. The Pleiadians also play a very important role in the galaxy. The Pleiades have a very, very large mixture of species right there. I feel like the Pleiadians are uh, the most knowledgeable about the galaxy. There are many members of this confederation, but each one of them has a very different way to relate to each other. For example, one of the main members are the Pleiadians that were basically the ones that moved uh, everyone to, to create it. For example, the Pleiadians saying, we need to download this information. The Arturians saying, okay, we know how to make a package for this information. And the Syrians saying, okay, we know how to build a reality around that package. So it could be improved. So basically, they are the main ones that designed this idea of putting together many of those concepts and information that came from other worlds and other solar systems. In an unexpected spontaneous download from extraterrestrial intelligences with whom Marina Jacoby is in contact, she shares information regarding the prominent species of the Galactic Federation. When you say Galactic Federation, understand that in the evolutionary moment, every single perspective of reality has a representative. Each family, so-called galactic family, realizes that you cannot be off disengaged with consciousness itself. And in order to continue your evolutionary process of expansion, you must go in the next level of understanding. Once you connect to that frequency, so you shall see that reality for yourself. If humanity has the chance 
to utilize their biological bodies and to utilize their dualistic way of perceiving reality, then they can grow from that. So what they did, and they meaning higher frequential beings, being six if you want to name it, they had an embargo, a frequential embargo surrounding Earth, meaning this planet, this planetary life sphere that we are on right now, is only capable of displaying life forms and uh, data that comes from level one, two, three, and four consciousness, but is not able to um, capable of uh, receiving direct influence from level five, six, and seven. And that, you know, is the chance, the opportunity that uh, life on this planet needed in order to to grow individually. That being said, um, the Earth is now heading towards a situation in in the universe where higher frequencies are allowed and directly influencing this planet and its its vibrational field, which makes it possible for having direct influences by higher frequencies in the upcoming time. The Galactic Federation has been in contact with humanity longer than anyone truly knows. Consensus amongst experts suggests that their agenda is to aid in our conscious evolution. But will humanity ever become aware of our galactic family through some kind of public disclosure? Or is it possible that hints of a galactic federation have already made their way into mainstream media via TV and film? We know that intelligence agencies like to use movies and television to disseminate certain truths and ideas that might be unknown to the public. Is it possible that they use shows like Star Trek to convey the concept of a galactic federation? In the 1970s, through colleagues of mine working with Andre Puharich in New York, we had the opportunity to have Gene Roddenberry, the famous Gene Roddenberry, part of one of our study groups. And he heard the terminology used frequently by one of my colleagues, Phyllis Schlemmer. And uh, at that time, uh, he was so intrigued by the paraphysical phenomena that happened in the rooms that we were being used for telepathic communication. That he went on, I am told, to expand this later in life into what is called Deep Space Nine, utilizing the terminology of the Nine or the higher cosmic entities behind, shall we say, the thoughts and the efforts of the Galactic Federation to guide humanity into a higher level. And it is through Phyllis that we gain some of these little tidbits and these little elements that Gene Roddenberry was able to incorporate into Star Trek, into Deep Space Nine, to help prime the human mind to this evolutionary concept, to this growth, that we are not alone in this galaxy, that there is this greater council watching over us and protecting us, but they can't interfere with us until we are ready to be joining them, until we're ready to have our evolutionary shift in technology to grow into this higher state of being and join the Galactic Federation at large. Now, it may be that the reason why we see this logo popping up in all of the world space agency is that it is a salute to this original Andromedan Council in the Galactic Federation that we learned about from the Council of Nine through the medium Phyllis Schlemmer in these various meetings with Gene Roddenberry and other folks. And it just kind of made its way and dispersed itself throughout the world so that we can be aware of it. 
Since space agencies' logos worldwide integrate the A-shaped symbol, one might question why our current cylindrical rocket-shaped technology isn't depicted instead. If we look at the logos of many different space organizations on Earth, we notice that there's this A-shape to it. And it's interesting to find out that this A-shape may actually refer back to this Andromedan Council. It's just a hint to all of us that the Andromedan Council still has a place and a role in the development of human technologies and human civilizations as we're growing into the new age. What's really interesting is that the shape of this particular logo regardless of the language that these countries represent, because, you know, a lot of language have different characters. You know, for instance, the Chinese characters don't look anything like the Russian characters that don't look anything like English. But they all use the same A symbol. My understanding with this is that I think this is a direct correlation of this A symbol coming from a higher extraterrestrial language. So a lot of people don't realize this, but language here on Earth didn't originate here on Earth. Language here on Earth originated from extraterrestrial beings that came to Earth, you know, maybe hundreds of thousands of years ago to teach Earth people, you know, civilization, you know, and that included language. More than seeing the A-shaped symbol here on official space agency logos, Researchers suggest that there's a potential connection between these logos and our closest neighboring constellations. Might there be significance to the specific star clusters appearing on government's insignias? It's interesting when we look at some of the space agencies version of the symbol. It differs slightly from the Star Trek logo in that there are many different stars depicted. And having these constellations on this symbol for space travel and space agencies can't be just a coincidence. When we look at the Space Force logo, they're essentially telling us with the symbology that they're getting help, that they have outside influences. And so you might say that this similarity in these logos are telling you that at the highest levels of government, they're working in unison together. When we look at these logos for the space agencies and we see the three stars that are on them, our contactees give us a different perspective of what those three stars could mean. They suggest that those three stars are for Andromeda, Arcturus, and Lyra, which are three of the big players of the Galactic Federation that have a big part in the role of humanity and our evolution and protecting us here on our planet. I think because the Galactic Federation, who is representing the Andromeda Council, they're kind of like an arm of the Andromeda Council. They've been in contact with certain Earth agencies. Earth agencies have had access to this logo, and so they adopted it as their own logo, um, maybe in the hopes that Monday they'll be a member of the Galactic Federation. But it's that there's definitely a connection there. Regarding why... Uh, an A like for Andromeda or that connection would be in many agencies. The information brings me to a much more human concept regarding Andromeda. Basically, Andromeda, Andros, it's basically the divine being that protected men. And when you see the skies, you see this soft light when it's very clear, which is Andromeda far away. So it's like a spirit flying in between the stars, protecting our realities. If anyone is trying to protect the skies from something that is coming, 
they would use the symbol of Andromeda to say they are the ones taking care of men. As humankind moves closer to understanding our place within the greater galactic community, our own readiness on both an individual and collective level may be the determining factor for success. As the open contact scenario unfolds, I, I really believe that there's two paths that it could potentially take. One is the path of humanity joining a, what I refer to as the dragon, where we merge with technology and we all become a single hive mind. That's something talked about by the U.S. government and promoted by the U.S. government, that you lose your individuality, that there is one human being on this planet, one race, that is it, subservient to the dragon and the technology. The other path is where we retain our organic and spiritual selves, and we plug into a spiritual hierarchy, a spiritually motivated galactic federation that assists us in becoming more like an angelic species, maintaining our biology, but at the same time merging more with higher frequencies of light rather than technology. I don't think they coexist. I think they could possibly intersect slightly, but I don't think they coexist. I think it's an either or situation. And we are right now in the next five years deciding which that is going to be. And there they will find the Federation waiting. It's not only the Galactic Federation that's coming here. It's also those who are doing their own thing, checking us out, doing their own medical experiments on our biology. It's complex. They're different intelligences. But thank goodness there is a greater galactic whole who's also watching us, part of the Galactic Federation who's here to help. And we're all part of that greater holism in terms of the consciousness ability to understand our own development. Some of us are still believing we're alone in the universe. So it is going to take some time and unfortunately to unfold very gradually, I would say even from now moving forward. We are now closing a whole history from the first time that we got in contact with the Confederation. So it means that we have gone through a whole process of inner process and now we are ready to go out. This is the first time that people are willing to go to the moon, to Mars. And so the planet is kind of ready to go beyond. Uh, and I don't say humans, is the planet. is the planet, the awareness of the planet that is saying, I am bigger than this. So that's why humans are trying to leave the planet, not because we don't like it, but because it's moment to spread. This means that the whole planet is getting ready to open themselves to other realities, to something bigger. But I wouldn't say that would happen in our lifetime. I think we have a lot of things to do before we can get in touch with them. We have problems with our neighbors and our families. We cannot deal with others. Everyone everywhere that makes a willingful decision to be part of a galactic federation in a harmonious uh, and peacemaking and balancing way uh, contributes something to this community, everyone. Basically, everyone watching this can grow and, and be together. Just this singular thought 
contributes something to this galactic federation in the way that higher frequentials understand it. Everyone can contact the species or any other species and ask for help or even ask for a positive outcome, which is basically the all shift happening now concept that we're, we're doing. The Galactic Federation exists because the nature of life is one of cooperative help, the ability of brotherly and sisterly love. And so our understanding of the Galactic Federation would be like looking at brothers and sisters who are cosmic cousins on the other side of the pond of space and brothers and sisters who have learned to achieve results by going through the quagmire that we find ourselves in. We're part of humanity wants new science and part of it wants old spirituality. Ultimately, science and spirituality do merge together, requires a upgrade of our consciousness. And so the Galactic Federation is here to provide the ways and means for the upgrade of our consciousness that we can be, should we see, using more of that great talent that is in our brain, to be using more of that powerful spirit vibration of our heart, and ultimately to having the vision that we're all one species growing up as homo universalis, which means universal humanity in the fullest sense of exploring the universe and being citizens in this greater universe. As citizens of this greater universe, we may not see an official disclosure regarding the Galactic Federation from our governments just yet. Still, evidence suggests that a Galactic Federation and the various species within it have been influencing and continue to influence individuals and a greater humanity on Earth to this day. As we look to our galactic family amongst the stars, there are many people who find comfort knowing that they are looking back. Next time on Deep Space, we explore one of the most controversial species in history, the greys. <laughs> the greys. <laughs> well, we're going to explore something here next. This is called Power of Shamanic Sound Healing. Mm. Can we awaken the very core of our being to align with our purpose in the universe? Zachariah Blackburn, the director of the Institute of Sound Healing and Shamanic Studies, helps unlock the secrets of consciousness through the practices of meditation and sound healing. His extensive knowledge of ancient mysticism brings the power of the human experience to new levels. And the host here is for this show is George Nury, and Zachariah Blackburn is, as we just heard, the guest. So this is 46 minutes starting now. Here we go. Mm. Now, when we talk
talk about sound healing, how does it work? Well, it depends on the individual. For me, it's all about intention and awareness. Sound is the nature, one of the principles of consciousness and the cosmos. Sound is one of the elemental forces of creation as spoken through the mythos or history of most wisdom cultures of the world. But for me, mysticism is about generating consciousness in the, the higher states of our being. It's about coming into an inner state of clarity and purity and connection with the whole or different greater aspects of the whole. What, what are the three inner jewels the, the three hearts uh, three inner jewels are stillness silence and space well welcome to beyond belief we've got a fascinating program for you today zakiah blackbird is with us an international educator of sound healing a sacred sound channel and a shamanic practitioner he is the founder and director of the center of light institute of sound healing and shamanic studies. Zakiah, yes. welcome to the program. Thank you so much, George. I'm very grateful. What to a be fascinating here. first name you have, too, but Yes, yes. How long have you had that? Well, as a young man, I had uh, guides from the inner worlds come in and start speaking to me and directing me in a new direction in my life. And the, that first guide that came was with me for about four years. And on his departure, a very critical moment of self identity he gave me the name i was literally calling to the universe who am i what does it mean well it means um the purity of god and zakai is one of the protectors of the higher levels of the throne of god according to the kabbalistic teachings that i've studied with how did you get involved in sound healing as a young man i was given a bamboo flute and i became a flute maker making simple flutes like bansri of india shakwachi of Japan, and I started studying with master teachers and musicians of those cultures, learning their inherent ways of wisdom mixed with music, contemplative, meditative, and healing exercises. And that coupled with um, working with contemporary teachers and elders of other traditions, I fused uh, a practice that is part of the sound healing culture, which has a wide array of methodologies in the world now. Sound is the nature, one of the principles of consciousness and the cosmos. Most most wisdom cultures of the world understand this and utilize emerging the sound and consciousness to bring forward intention. We have tremendous creative potential within us. Sound is one of the elemental forces of creation as spoken through the mythos or history of most right. wisdom cultures of the world. Now, when we talk about sound healing, how does it work? Well, it depends on the individual. For me, it's all about intention and awareness. It's about coming into an inner state of clarity and purity and connection with the whole or different greater aspects of the whole and bringing that forward with the voice while creating an elemental field of sound with a simple tool like a crystal bowl or a native drum or We're something We're going to get like into some of this later on, too. Yes. The principles of sound healing mm -hmm. are what? Well, it depends on who's working. Some people will just play crystal balls and say relax, and they have beautiful tones and harmonies that create neurological pathways of relaxation. Is it like, I go a, into, is it like a tuning fork? Tuning forks are part of it, and there's a lot of studies about tuning forks, and their work with mood disorders, with uh, MIT is doing studies on particular binaural beat patterns and the potential for healing Alzheimer's, and people are working with tuning forks for that. But I... Don't go the scientific route. I studied with master elders of different traditions, and I use a more intuitive way of connecting to inner guidance and bring forward the sounds that they help generate. 
um, mostly with my voice. And it's coupled with intention. Like, what is it we want to do? What is healing in the first place? Exactly. And, if, you know, if I'm with a class of 20 students and I ask, what is healing? I may have 20 different responses. To me, healing, when you follow it back to the root origin, it's about establishing a connection with our wholeness. And that follows back further to an establishing a connection with our holiness. And that works with many traditions from the East that talk about our pure states of consciousness, our pure nature. Um, to the West. And that's really the guiding principles for myself. Zakaya, how long does it take to heal somebody with sound, generally? Well, we have to start with what is healing and what the intended outcome is. I consider myself more a facilitator in a practice, and I try to empower people to discover their own innate self and bring that forward in their lives in ways that help them integrate and find meaning and fulfillment within their life. How important is the brain to all of this? I think it's more at a soul or spiritual level than the brain, but certainly the brain interacts. And it's been shown through science that different sound practices calm the frontal lobes and activate um, different aspects of other parts of the brain that are more intuitive or more spacious oriented, the occipital regions, for instance, and you become more receptive and it's more easy to enter into a more meditative or intuitive state to work with the sound and the intentions involved. Do you do sound with your voice too? The voice, my voice is a primary tool of my work. I use tools like this to create what I call a field of sound. It's like creates an envelope in which we can work with. And then I call upon my inner guides and ask for help and guidance in the work that we're doing, what the intention is. And my voice is hopefully connected to those um, relationships that I have in the inner world. What is a mystical experience? What's that mean? Well, I think that depends on who you ask. But for me, mysticism is about generating consciousness in the, the higher states of our being. You know, we, in our daily lives, we tend to overlook the greater aspects of self, whereas in mystical or world spiritual traditions, working with the nature of the true aspects of the self in relationship to the greater aspects of the cosmos is fundamental to the work that we do. Interesting. And sound and mystical experiences go hand well, in hand? Well, yes. I mean, what culture can you think of, whether it's Tibetan Buddhism or Native American shamanism or Christian mysticism that are not using sacred chant, sacred instruments with their rituals and their ceremonies to heighten the experience for the people working. Well, exactly as you've said, Gaia's program Sound of Creation discusses how sound can facilitate this kind of altered states of consciousness. That is a beautiful program, and it's one of the few programs that I've watched in which the teachers are really giving the great instructions and information regarding sound. I really appreciate it. Various brain states can be achieved by stimulating the entire brain using a technique called brain entrainment. I can expose you to a sound that's pulsing at a brainwave speed and your brainwaves will try to time themselves to this drum beat because it's the most dominant one in my environment. And that's called brainwave entrainment. Ancient spiritual leaders likely used brain entrainment to guide individuals into expanded states of consciousness. In ancient shamanic cultures, they used to have the drumming 
or the didgeridoo. The shaman would create a certain rhythm with the drum, like a heartbeat rhythm, for example. You'll see that the speed of that drumbeat is about five hertz. It's sort of like... That is about five hertz right there. And that means that I'm tapping the drum at a brainwave speed called theta. Theta is where your brainwaves go when you're dreaming in sleep. And that means that if I start pounding this drum, your brainwaves, which are awake in beta function, will slow down and cross over the borderline into alpha at about 13 hertz, 12 11, 10, 9, and finally get down to this 5 hertz and theta and lock onto it. And this would then take them into an altered state and they would go on a shamanic journey, for example. And if I speed the drum beat up, my brainwaves will follow. If I slow it down, my brainwaves will follow. And we can see all this on EEG. a fascinating science isn't well, it? absolutely and as i said there's a great deal of science around it and brain state technology is one of the most researched sciences in the field of sound healing that's more than 50 or 60 years of researching exactly what they were sharing with us and the shamanic beat pattern of four to seven hertz the cycle is a standard method used in contemporary shamanism but the elders I studied with never spoke of beat patterns or anything like this outside of a couple of basic beats, but not like the five beats a second or seven beats a second. Um, it's been, there's probably more science on drum patterning, um, and brain states than in my, most of the other areas of sound healing. But again, my, my expertise comes more from direct lineage transmission. Um, oral teachings with um, master elders and so forth of various cultures. And the science wasn't really there when I began either. Um, and I was drawn so into the experiences I was having with the fundamental technologies of shamanic mm-hmm. cultures that I never really advanced my knowledge as well as I might have in the scientific fields. Science is now caught up and is doing tremendous things with sound and healing I mentioned MIT and their studies with binaural patterning that seems to enhance learning and memory in mice and and build up a a protein in the brain that eats the plaque that is causative to Alzheimer's. I love that research, but it's beyond my expertise. You brought some instruments and some sound-creating devices. Let's go through each one. Let's start with this one. Sure. Well, this is a Native American-style drum. This particular drum is a modern drum uh, made by Remo, and I brought it. Hold up. I, I brought it because it um, it will hold its same sound no matter what the environment is. Natural drums will get uh, loose or sharp according to the humidity, and I didn't know what conditions I would be in. Mm-hmm. So this drum has a specific sound. I wanted to be sure I had that sound. Um, but in the mystical traditions of the elders I studied with, the drum itself represents the wheel of life. This is the great mother. I'm holding it in my hand. And this is the masculine principle of life. We can see from the, from its form that we can imagine that as such. And when you wield the two together, you literally are engaging in an act of creation. Do you chant with this or anything like I that? I do. Do it. Go ahead. Okay. Okay.
that sounded Native American. I'm influenced a great deal by Native teachings, but it depends on what I'm working with, who I'm working with in the inner world is what types of sounds come out. Now, by doing what you've just done, yes. what is that supposed to do? Well, again, it depends on your intentions, but my intentions are to connect with the holy ones of the other worlds that I work with and just be a vessel, a channel for their voices and their energies. Let me try this. Sure. Just like that? It's, yes, it's a beautiful voice. If someone's sick, they just do this by them? Yes. You can feel the vibration. Yes. It's an extraordinary instrument. And I, I wouldn't know a culture around the world that did not use a frame drum as a foundation of, of their work. What else did you bring us here? Well, I'd like to end with this one if I could. But this is a Tibetan bell and Vajra. And these also represent the divine masculine and feminine aspects of spaciousness, which the bell, if you were to just listen to it and follow the sound, it tends to just draw you out, just to open you and go into yeah, open space. Sound so too. And this is considered, um, the Vajra is considered the diamond light, the fundamental principle that cuts through all obstacles. And, and what do you do with that one? Well, you just spend it in prayers for the benefit of others, just to ask for those obstacles. Does it make a sound? No. Well, some people have struck the bell. I've even seen people, this one won't do it because it's too small, but you can ring the bell this way also Okay. by going around it. And then the rattle is um, a very beautiful one. And elders in the Cherokee tradition taught one of my dear friends who makes rattles that this also represents the great feminine. This is the whole of life. And this is the masculine principle. And when you shake, you're, you're seeding the principles of life into creation. So it requires the practitioner who understands this to go into a great quality of integrity and responsibility. What is it that I want to create? What is it that I want to bring forward in the world? If I understand that every sound is is making a sound of creation. I'm working with it literally with the voices. It's got a different sound to it. Yes. And so what's what's an elder doing when he's working there, whether it's one that's sick or in ceremony with the with the community? Could I do a simple sound here also, perhaps? Just voice for a moment. Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. And if those listening, I would just ask you to go into this inner spaciousness in your own heart and imagine that the Holy Ones are just bringing blessings into your life. Were you speaking words? No, I'm connecting with sounds of the feeling states that are generated in relationship with the unseen beings that I work with. Now, you would use that for ailments and things like that? I don't tend to work with physiology. I tend to work with spiritual development. What's the difference? That's a very good question. And um, we could talk about the interrelationship of mind, body, spirit, certainly. But from the earliest aspects of my own work, I was taken into altered states of seeing the greater whole of universal consciousness and wanting to develop ways and methods of understanding what Mm -hmm. I was experiencing and how to enter and sustain those states of wholeness and well-being. 
And again, that's spoken about by culture upon culture, whether I'm speaking Tibetan Buddhism and the nature of self-realization, or I'm talking about Peruvian mysticism and the nature of awakening the seed of our potential to become a flower of blossoming joy in service to the garden of creation. Culture upon culture speaks about a similar understanding of the nature of reality that's far more than what most of us fix our attention upon. And we tend to get lost and confused and in doubt and so forth because we're not paying attention to the greater potential within us and our connection to the greater cosmos. Tibetan monks use this a lot, don't they? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there's not a chant that they do that doesn't. I mean, I've, I've been in, in a ceremony where there are 20 or 30 monks playing the bell, another 20 playing drums. Another five or ten playing Tibetan horns and anywhere from three to 18 feet long. And they're all joining together in the sound ceremony. But then all of the monks in the chamber are chanting, you know, the some of their great chants that are aligning with the holy ones and inviting their blessings for the benefit of all beings. And now do they chant when they use this? Absolutely. Do they om? Om is, is there are three sacred sounds that I was taught that are associated with enlightened states of mind, heart, and and um, speech, pure body, pure speech, pure mind, and Om Ahum are those. So I was taught practices known as the three lights practice that brings in awareness into the pure states of the third eye, the pure states of the throat or pure speech, and the pure states of the heart of compassion or the body. And you would just sit there moving your awareness through these light principles emanating out of these centers of consciousness and just chanting. It's about developing an understanding of the innate states that are already there. You have a soothing voice, by the way. Thank you. I appreciate that. So the innate states of goodness and what's known as the three inner jewels of spaciousness, stillness and silence, that if we just rest in those are self-nourishing, self-liberating, self-luminous. They bring out the luminous nature of ourself. Modern science is showing us how at a cellular level that we are luminous beings and that when we enter states of coherence, that builds that luminosity. The ancients understood this by direct experience. And they teach methods that have been around for thousands of years that have enhanced the lives of thousands upon thousands of people. In one of your own programs, I heard someone talking about um, 180,000 or 300,000 people who are, had entered the rainbow body experience right, through William the sacred Henry. practices yeah. of Tibetan Buddhism. Why would we not want to understand the nature of fulfillment of ourself, our true purpose in being here? Um, and attain to that the best that we can. What is your definition, Zakaya, of well-being? What is a well-being person? Well, to me, well-being takes me right into that state of wholeness, which demands of us to understand the principles of the nature of self in relationship to the principles of the cosmos. It's about self and cosmos, but self is capital S. And wellness and well-being, most of us focus on the little s, the little self, and we're out diving into trying to find the best relationship, the best housing, the best job. We're expending our energy in these horizontal directions in our life when we should be developing techniques to grow and blossom in relationship to the greater whole. 
And that follows the principles of energy, whether we're looking at yoga or other cultures, right. like the Shoshumna, the central channel, uh, the Jid and Egyptian mysticism, the way in which we build life force connecting to the earth, building it up through our chakra system, though that has different names in different cultures, and bridging up into the cosmos, making that connection and being a sacred channel. In Peruvian mysticism, it's called a Sane Chakwe, becoming a pure channel of light. I remember back in the 60s and 70s, the Hare Krishnas would sing and chant. And for a long time, Zakaya, I thought there was something wrong with these people. Yes. Now, <laughs> the older I get, I realize they were tuned in, weren't they? Well, they definitely have something going. And I remember very early in my time when I had a simple bag of bamboo flutes walking around the streets of a city and they would grab me and say, come on, we're going to do Kirtan. And I'd go, what's Kirtan? They wanted me to play with them. They didn't know how well I could play a flute, sure. but I had no idea at the time what Kirtan was. I bet you're was, good with a flute, huh? I Flute is one of my primary instruments. That's fantastic. Now, how do we perceive something that may be part of reality? Well, just the three states of what's called the inner jewels I just spoke of from Tibet Buddhism are amazing practices to do. And all you do is go into the heart or third eye and you just go into a state of feeling spaciousness, stillness or silence. And we all can do that. If, if we have trouble experiencing the felt sense, we can recall a time in which we felt it. Like imagine yourself out in one of the fields here on one of the mountains during the daytime, certainly, but at night with the vast field of stars around you. And you can feel the beauty of that. Imagine that those are, are principles of light of the cosmos and you just expand out into them. So you go into a deep feeling sense of vast spaciousness and you just rest there. The masters will tell you that just by resting in one of these three principles of stillness, silence, or space, that it creates a nest that you can rest in that is self-nourishing, self-liberating, and self-luminous. What we've discovered is that it's far more than that. First of all, if you're in open spaciousness, you can't be in stress. You can't, right, the two can't right. commingle. So physiologically, it can help us with that. But space science will tell us is the only thing that connects all things. And the Bettans will tell us that it's the fundamental nature of the great mother of all life from which all life springs. So just by being in space, all of this is occurring. What I found is that mystically, shamanically, that you're literally connecting through the doorway to that great mother of life. And so great potentials can come. You literally can enter into other dimensional states just by resting in, in vast space in the heart. Let's take a look at our friend Greg Braden from Gaia's Missing Links as he talks about a lot of this. Beautiful. Fractal patterns repeat again and again on different scales. You and I already know that. You know that when you have a pattern in your life, when you have a pattern in your relationships, and you are with one person in one job, with one company in one city, and things aren't working well, how many times have you seen people that say, okay, I need a change? So they go to another city, they find another partner, another job, another company, but they find that the same patterns are showing up in their lives again and again and again. And they say, well, I didn't choose well. Let me make another change. Another city, another job, another company, another partner. How many times do we do this before we realize that no matter where we go, the same patterns are going to show up in our lives again and again and again? Now you know the reason. The reason is because... We are living fractal patterns in our biology. We're living fractal patterns in our emotions. 
We're living fractal patterns in our relationships because the energy of our simulation, the information of our simulation is governed by the fractal code, that fractal formula. And the beauty of knowing this is once we change that variable, once we shift the way we think, the way we solve our problems, the way we think of ourselves, once we change our self-esteem, once we change the way we value our lives or the way we value other people, that's the equivalent of changing the variable in the code. Now we're writing a new code and the new patterns are going to repeat again and again and again. If they're healthy patterns, it's a really good thing. So I'm illustrating how our experience is actually following the code that governs the energy and the information of our entire simulation. It's a very, very powerful way to think about our lives and our world, what we're experiencing in our virtual reality. Now that we understand the simple mechanism that allows our simulation to sustain itself, the fractal code, it makes perfect sense that we would have the inner tools to master our simulation in order to live the best lives and to create the best world possible. He's right on. Absolutely. Beautifully spoken. And he's the master teacher with great knowledge about all of this. If I could speak a moment on a practical application about what I was just saying, if we just go back to experiencing spaciousness in the heart, what we are doing is creating the state of what's known as clear view. So we're dissolving those patterns that he's talking about. We're dissolving the entangled emotions and belief systems that are not based in reality. Just resting in space, we develop a sense of clear view. And so we can see everything more clearly, including our own lives. And we can use that in practical application just by going into clear view. It helps us to make clear choices followed by clear actions. Mm -hmm. But if we have a confusing state of something going on in our life, should I move to Chicago? What should I do with my next job? We can go into clear view through just entering spaciousness and draw that life situation in and now see it clearly and ask the question, What's my best choice here? How can I best be of service to my own higher purpose? And it's stunning that part of the wisdom of the teachings is that self-wisdom is generated through this. And you see that you hold much more wisdom than you might give yourself value for. And this allows us um, to truly see how to take steps in our lives that will better it. That's interesting. Yes. When we realize what's happening in our lives, Mm -hmm. does it make us better people? Well, I think so, because that's our inherent nature. And, you know, we have learned as a society, and that's worldwide, to fix our attention on a very narrow sense of values, a very narrow sense of purpose, and a very narrow sense of reality. Mm -hmm. You know, reality functions at multi-levels of dimension and frequency. And if I were thinking scientifically, we're looking at a very small frequency of reality. It's not that what we see isn't real, but there's such a vast amount of reality around us that we're not paying attention to. And so, you know, it's beyond our belief because we haven't experienced it. And we've grown up in this very limited sense of belief and emotion, et cetera, and, and life purpose. And definition of who we are most of us define ourselves by oh i live here these are my children this is what i do for work and this is my family 
But who we are goes far beyond this time and space. It connects actually to a much deeper dimensional state of all time and space. We've been here many lives before. We bring much wisdom to us from those other lives. Many of us will meet a set of teachings or a teacher and something will, a pattern will open in us. We're like, what is that? Why am I called to this? It freaks us out. It can freak us out, but there are key codes of patterning awakeness from the teachings of, of different lineages and things like that, that, hey, I, you know, perhaps I was a master teacher in, in Tibet or Greece or um, Egypt some time ago, and I hear teachings from that lineage, and it awakens something in me that I'm carrying, and I don't realize that it's part of me, mm-hmm. and I don't value that I've been here before, and I carry much wisdom within me. It appears to me that the sound healing is a small facet of what's going on. Well, the rest is up to us, isn't it? Well, what's up to us is very important. I mean, sound healing is a small part of our culture and it's not necessary. I I by no means promote it as a necessity. I have found great value when we understand the principles of sound in relation to the principles of creation to generate greater states of fulfillment and well-being. But um really developing a sense of who we are, whatever methodology we use, whatever path we follow is what's foremost. So we need to really understand who we truly are as a spiritual being and really have a sense of our connection to the greater place than just this local place that our small self lives in. What does reality mean to you, Zakaya? Well, reality is beyond our imagination. I, I listen to the Tibetan teachings of this and they, they have a beautiful way of expressing it. And they talk about the text and the teachings that they say are the, the attempt to articulate that which is not articulable. But true reality is that which is not articulable. It can only right. be experienced directly. And then they give you practices like spaciousness in which you can go into deep, direct experience. And then that brings you an understanding of the nature of reality. Dr. Bruce Lipton is a genius when it comes to this. And he talks about how your state of consciousness can affect your physical health and life. Yes. A spontaneous remission is a change in the belief system, a change in the consciousness. And this is profoundly important because this is where we have to understand the control of life comes from. What is your consciousness? Are you visioning? A healthy, happy life? Or are you concerned that running in your family is cardiovascular disease or diabetes? Point is very simple. What image you hold in your consciousness is translated into a physical expression. You can absolutely change your life by changing your consciousness because this is the foundation behind epigenetics. And this is the story of how vibration will also select our genes and the character of that genetic expression. The insights offered by quantum physics really reveal the whole story about how our consciousness is creating our life experiences. If I go back to 1930, just after quantum physics came into the world of science, I want to leave you with a quote from Sir James Jeans. The stream of knowledge is heading towards a non-mechanical reality. The universe begins to look more like a great thought than like a great machine. Mind 
no longer appears to be an accidental intruder into the realm of matter. We ought rather hail it as the creator and the governor of the realm of matter. And to follow that up, at the same time, Sir Arthur Eddington, another physicist, wrote, it is difficult for the matter-of-fact physicist to accept the view that the substratum of everything is a mental character. These two physicists are actually giving us the most important conclusions of quantum physics, that mind and consciousness and energy fields are what shape our life experiences. And when we understand that, then we says, well, if you want to change your life, you don't have to do anything physical, but you do have to do something in regard to your consciousness. So in conclusion, what does this mean for you? The quality of life is profoundly influenced by energy. When energy waves interfere with each other, they may express constructive interference that enhances life energy or destructive interference that actually cancels life energy. To learn how we can control our consciousness and manifest the life we desire, it is first necessary to understand how cells manage environmental signals in controlling behavior and genetics. Well, he's spot on too. Beautifully spoken, absolutely. My God. Absolutely, you've chosen some great spots to put in there about it all. Um, They're good people too. Yes. So he was talking about consciousness and energy and in my own world understanding, these are the two primary forces of male and female uh, reality that merge like the Sri Yantra, the Shiva Shakti union from the Hindu culture shows this merging of consciousness, which is exhibited through the nature of Shiva, the male principle and Shakti, the female principle of life force. And when they merge, um, all life um, is manifest. And of course, in the Hindu tradition, it's manifest through the sound of Om, which mm-hmm. represents the that um, expression of all creative manifestation. What what are the three inner jewels and the, the three hearts? Uh, three inner jewels are stillness, silence, and space. And I've learned practices that fundamentally put them usually with either space or stillness in the heart, silence in the throat center, and either um, stillness or spaciousness in the third eye. I've done practices going both from the third eye down. Is it supposed to make you feel better? Well, it's not about feeling better. It's about getting into states that, that bring about our inherent nature, that allow us to really experience our connection to life and the inherent good qualities of ourself that arise when we still the mind, when we let go of the um, abhorrent beliefs that are not based in reality that we've been mm. taught about ourselves, and the entangled emotions that get in our way that from all of our life experiences, all of the woundings and doubt and other things. I mean, Buddha said that doubt is one of the largest forces that keeps us from self-realization and feeling the connection to life. Um, there are so many confusing emotions that we get into. We look at world today and it's especially confusing. It's important to find ways to establish a sense of stillness and stability within the self. And these three jewels are part of that. How have you learned all this? Most of it has come about from, I, I've been blessed in three ways. I've had incredible inner guides that first came to me at a very early age mm-hmm. and have evolved over time. 
And that brought me to working with luminous teachers of different traditions from native elders of North, South and Central America to Tibetan, Hindu and Christian mysticism. And they were all willing to help, weren't they? Well, they're, they're teachers that are there for anyone who wants to come to them for the most sure. part. And I graduated to each one of them and learned different principles from each of them. But I also, ha- I also bring a great deal of this from, from who I am as a spiritual being. And I find it important to find value in all three of those aspects, but I honor the many teachers I've had. I've been very blessed with incredible wisdom brought through their blessings. You seem very enlightened. Well, I, I don't think of myself as any different than anyone else on the planet. I see us really as all the same and yet unique. Um, indeed, the, the word individual, um, means, um, indivisible. We tend to think of it as some, somebody who is different when they're in, in an individual, mm-hmm. but it actually is the individual, indivisible component of ourselves that is connecting from and to all life. And yet each of us have a unique pattern or imprint and potential that we bring into this life and that we work on that potential to discover it if we have not and find a path that will help us come into realization of that potential is, is our ultimate goal and purpose in being here. And I've been blessed in that path, but I don't see it as any different than any other, at least not the potential we all hold. Where do you take this next, Sakaya? I continue as long as I can. My intention is to be of service to others, to do the best I can. I, my intention, my primary intention when I'm in practice is to be a vessel for those who work with me. If I can be an empty channel, I'm, I'm, I'm doing great. I remember very early in my practice, I was doing a one-on-one healing with somebody on a massage table, doing sound practices over them. And my guys came in and said, oh, Kaya, you, you know, you do really good work, but if you just open the door and get out of the way, we'd really appreciate Please. it. Please. Yeah. And that's pretty much been my practice ever huh. since. Just open the door and get out of the way. What is the power of nature? And how does that tie in? Well, nature, nature, we are part of nature. And that's part of our lost universe is that we don't realize that we are birthed from nature and that nature is a direct expression of creation. And by going into nature, nature is exuding all of these forces and principles of creation all the time. So when we go into nature, which you have a vast resource here right outside the door in Boulder, when you go into nature, you feel the resonance and you entrain to that resonance. It's very easy to go into altered states, which are really our true state of pure resonance that nature is always exuding, at least where it's been left alone to do its own thing. Nature just exudes its beauty and joy. And we go there and we feel that. And if we'll just kind of surrender to the quality of resonance we feel there, it will help us come into our own unique resonance, which is part of nature and should be connected to nature. What does right relationship have to do with this? Right relationship is a principle understood by most cultures, whether it's the Tibetan Buddhists who might define Dharma as uh, the nature of the greater self mm-hmm. in relationship to the principles of the cosmos, or the Peruvian mystics who would say that um, we will all awaken when enough of us come into right relationship with the living energies of earth and sky, or my Cherokee elders who would say that by entering into right relationship with the giving and taking of all life, we will enter into harmony with all life. This is culture upon culture, really speaking about right relationship. And I could say that it's an intuitive understanding, and yet there are principles that abide 
uh, within the cosmos that it is our purpose to come into alignment with. And when we come into right alignment with the principles of creation, then we're in right relationship. Do you deal with sacred sites at all, Sakai? Oh, absolutely. And what makes them so sacred? Well, sacred is a word that actually means that which we make as holy. It's, but to me, everything is sacred. And I'm thinking of one of the, my Tibetan teachers who would say, once you honor everything as sacred, you will be in that right relationship. But sacred sites to me are sites that, um, are either natural earth sites that hold profound power and potential for transformation or sites built by different cultures, mostly ancient cultures, but modern cultures as well, that are regarded as sacred or holy by those cultures and have very special energy. The ancient peoples, as Greg very well knows, um, understood this and had a felt sense of how to find and locate natural earth sites of tremendous power for transformation and build their temple complexes there. And then they added to it with their own consciousness. Right. Um, and, and their own creativity. Absolutely. And their wisdom. And many of those cultures understood the technology of fusing their wisdom and knowledge into the stones. Stones hold memory. They, they receive, store and transmit energy and information. That's almost a direct quote from my Peruvian mystical teachers. Well, stones receive, store and transmit energy and information. And that's exactly how our modern culture works with those little stones in our phones and computers and so forth. Several experts on Gaia's ancient civilization show talked exactly about what you just brought up. Yes. Adam's calendar, it is just another example of ancient advanced technology and knowledge of the ancient civilizations that we know very little about and their capacity to create machines. Uh, And this is what people need to comprehend. When we're talking about these ancient sites, all of these ancient sites, literally without exception, all of them were originally constructed as machines. They are not dwellings for people or animals or cows. All these ancient sites, when you look at them and you understand sound, resonance and frequency, you understand cymatics, it is very, very obvious that all these ancient sites have one thing in common. Their original purpose was to generate energy. And so there's not really a difference. It's just a different way or a different means of construction. Having the knowledge of sound resonance and frequency, how to use the natural frequencies of the earth, the vibration of the earth, and turning it into a very powerful energy generating device. If the knowledge of sound had the power to transform the currents of the earth within these circles, how did it work? Greg Braden explains an important finding at most of these sites. When we look at the materials that are used to build some of the most sacred sites in the world, there's a common thread that weaves all of these sites together. And that is that the stones that are used often hold properties that influence the human body in the presence of those properties. One of the most prolific is quartz. Uh, and the use of quartz either in sandstone or in granite. What we see is a kind of quartz that is called piezo quartz or piezoelectric quartz. And this quartz has the property that when it is stressed, when it is put under pressure, it emits an electrical charge. This is the kind of quartz that is often used in what's called a quartz watch. 
So when the the spring in the quartz watch presses against that little quartz crystal, it emits enough of electrical charge that it powers the watch. This is what's used in these sacred sites because there is an energy in the pressure of the earth pushing against the quartz grains, releasing that electrical charge in a way that can be felt when a human walks into the site. It's truly remarkable, isn't it? It, it really is. And what Greg says also, in the science of it, some in some parts of it is beyond my my experience, but my experience is directly with the sites that here again, if we come into right relationship, if we come into resonance, into a reverential state in resonance with the site, we can actually come into communion with the wisdom keepers of the site, the unseen beings still there holding the wisdom of these ancient cultures. And they will collaborate with you if you understand how to enter in right relationship. And those stones hold the memory and wisdom of the teachers. They've literally taught me how to do, how to work with the stones to access those libraries of knowledge, which are infused in many of these ancient temple complexes. Zakaya, how do people get a hold of you? Well, the best way is to look at one of my websites, thecenteroflight.net is our educational site, and sunread.com is our instrument site where we help people find the best instruments for them for the practices they may want to do. As we wrap up, would you give us one final chance? Sure, absolutely. Thanks for watching Beyond Belief. Wow. That's really powerful, everyone. The power of singing sounds of nature. Yep. All right. We're going to continue some more with Greg Braden. A New World at the Speed of Love with Greg Braden. Be sure to check out Greg Braden's free 60-minute video training called From Surviving to Thriving. Uh, and then um, The Speed of Love, The Foundation for Life, Healing, and Innovation From Climate Change to Social Change. From increasing levels of human conflict to collapsing national economies, it's heartening to know that we already have the technological solutions to the greatest challenges of our lives today. Rama's ready. Here we go. This is uh, 52 minutes.
Welcome to Module 1, Five-Year Guide to Your Future. I'm going to begin this module by addressing a phenomenon that I'm seeing in my community. I'm sure you're seeing it in yours as well. In psychological terms, it's called normalcy bias. And what normalcy bias is, pretty much what, what it says, it's when we are faced with so much change happening so quickly in such a brief period of time, there's a tendency to discount the change, to discount the fact that it's even happening. And when we do that, it helps us to uh, to move easier through our lives because we're essentially denying the fact that our world and our uh, our security, our financial security, our emotional security, uh, our our health security, all of these things are, are changing. It's it's easier for us to kind of put our head into the sand and and play like it's not happening. Uh, I'm seeing this happening with a lot of people. And when I began talking about this course, that topic came up because they said, why would you want to build a course when everything is just fine? Why would you want to build a course like that? So I'm just going to begin with uh, a few facts about where we are in our lives today in answer to a simple question that I ask myself all the time. How can we solve our problems if we're not honest about our problems? This is true in our personal lives and our our most intimate relationships. It's true in business. It's true in education. It's true in health. And it's true in the, the big picture of uh, where we are in our, our world today. So I think it's we owe it to ourselves to be honest with ourselves about what's happening. And it gives us a context uh, and a launch point as to why this course is so relevant in our lives. So with that, let's take a look at how this course is going to unfold. And and let's be honest with ourselves about where we are in the world today. Each module of this course is based upon a system, a holistic learning system uh, that is called D-I-K-W. It's Data Information, Knowledge, and Wisdom. Now, you don't have to think about this, but if you're like me, you'd like to know where we're going, and I just want you to know this is uh, a method that I'm developing for each module uh, it is based on the pyramid that you're seeing here. We're going to begin by sharing discoveries, peer-reviewed scientific discoveries that help us think differently about our lives and our world. It's not enough just to know how do we apply that in our lives. Then we will take those discoveries and apply it with actions or applications or techniques uh, that we can use uh, immediately. Uh, and that will round out that module, and then we'll go back to the next module and do it all over again. So... So this is uh, how we're going to address these topics. And I'm going to begin with a simple question that I asked in the introduction. How can we solve our problems if we're not honest about the problems? Well, I want you to know it's not your imagination that the world is very different now. Now is not business as usual, that we are living a time of extremes, not just random extremes. They are converging extremes. And discovery number one. I want to take a look at what these extremes are and what they mean in our lives. So they include things like fi financial extremes, economic extremes, energy extremes, climate extremes, health extremes. Let's take a look at financial extremes just quickly. What I want you to know is that now is so very different because more dollars have been infused into the United States economy, into the money supply in the last two years than have been put in since the first dollars were printed by the Federal Reserve in the year 1913. This has to change. 
the way that we live our lives, the prices that we pay at the fuel pump and for food and education. It has to. Here's a, a little graphic, and I didn't make this up. This comes directly from the, the Federal Reserve System. What you can see from 1980s on the left-hand side, this is the, the money supply. It's called M2. So I think many of you are aware that um, there are different kinds of money that are put into the system. M1 is all the money that circulates. So this is the money, you know, the cash you've got in your in your billfold, in your home safe, and uh, in your bank deposits. That's the M1 supply. M2 uh, is M1 plus uh, savings and money markets and mutual funds less than a hundred thousand dollars. So this, in other words, it's it's money that we can get to pretty easy. This is the, called the M2 supply. So if you look from 1980s. Uh, up until the year uh, 2020, what you can see is it was pretty, I mean, there were some ups and downs, but all of a sudden in the year 2020, we just went exponential and you can see that. And for greater context, I'm going to show all the way back, look at this, back into the year 1920, you can see where that money supply is. Now, what does that mean? Why is it important? Here's the reason it's important. Every dollar that is printed by the Federal Reserve and put into circulation, it means that there are more dollars out there. Of course, what that does is it lessens the value of every dollar in existence. It dilutes the money supply, decreases the purchasing power, and that means we've got the highest inflation rate that we've had in in 41 years. Uh, In June of 2022, that inflation rate was at 9.1%. We haven't seen that in over 40 years. We have a generation of young people that have never seen anything like this before. They don't know that this is something that can happen uh, when money is uh, is managed in the way that we're seeing it managed in our lives right now. So I'm not uh, going to talk about why the money is being managed the way it is. What I want you to know is that financially, this is no uh, no, no time where this is business as usual. We are living something extraordinary and it's only beginning right now. One of the reasons we're seeing this problem is because of the debt. Right now, America has the highest debt in the history of our nation. Uh, we actually owe $31.24 trillion. This is the U.S. debt clock that you're seeing on your, your screen right now. And, uh, between the time this image was captured. And when I'm putting this together, you can see the discrepancy. It was it was 30 trillion, 30.8 trillion when the screen capture happened. It's now $31.2 trillion. That number is so big. And what does that even mean? You know, and, and why do we even care? Well, here's another chart from the Fed showing uh, what the this debt looks like. And what this means right now, you can see it's just under $32 trillion. What that means when you look at this is when you take that debt and you compare it to the money that's produced, what's called the GDP or gross domestic product, if we were break even, we'd be 100%. We're now at 124.45%. The debt is 124.45% of the GDP. What that means is we owe more than we're making. If that were you and me, in a company that we had, or if you were balancing your checkbook, that means you'd be overdrawn by that amount. So the the economy is in a place right now uh, that we've never seen, where we owe so much money and so much is being printed, diluting the value of what's already out there, 
that it changes the way that we live and plan our lives. It changes the way that we plan for our retirement, for our future, for education funds. It changes the, the monthly household budget uh, in terms of the money that we are able to spend on food and on medical care and insurance that's skyrocketing, medical insurance uh, and energy. And uh, and so I want to acknowledge that because I've had people say to me, oh, Greg, you know, we've had problems with the economy before. It'll always go back to where it was because it always does. Something is broken right now. And honestly, I don't know how we can walk this back. Uh, I don't think we can. And I think that's why we're looking at the doorway to a new financial system and a new economy. Energy is part of this. You cannot separate the energy that runs the world from everything else that is happening right now. At present, our energy for the last 150 years or so has been dependent upon fossil fuels. Now, there are other methods of producing the energy, but I want you to see exactly what, what this means. What the world needs is a reliable source of base load energy. Base load means it's constant no matter what the temperature, no matter what the weather, no matter what's happening. All right. So the global consumption in the year 2020, I want you to look at what we're seeing here. Renewables were only uh, about 12.6% of that. Coal is still 27%, oil 31%, natural gas 24.7%, and a little bit of nuclear in there at 4.3%. So we can, we can dream of renewables replacing these things, and I'm, I'm going to show you in this course why that is not a realistic dream and what our options are for things that are realistic that we're simply not being told about. But I want you to know, that the energy extremes that we're seeing right now, uh, the world depends upon fossil fuels. Right now, 83.1% of our global energy supply presently is, is from fossil fuels. And uh, you can see the renewables that are there when you break those down, that 12.6%, most of it's hydro, only 10%, almost 11% is solar, almost 20% or a little over 20% is wind. Those are not reliable sources of base load energy, and we'll talk about that in, in an upcoming module. I want to talk to you about the climate extremes. Climate is important. I'm a geologist, and I've been talking about this for over 40 years, that we can expect climate change because climate change is cyclic. Humans did not cause it. Humans have contributed to it, and we need to stop burning fossil fuels, and we have the technology to do that. But here's what I want you to see. We're being told that this is like the biggest the biggest issue focusing only on climate. Look at this. This is a, a study that was done in, uh, this was put out in 2009. So what I'm saying to you is no secret, is that climate is only one of nine parameters that must be held in place, that must be honored. The boundaries of these parameters must be honored for us to have life on earth. Climate is one, and look at this. Look at this. We've already crossed three of the boundaries and climate is not one of the ones that is uh, off the chart. Now, climate, if you look at, at this chart, what you're seeing right here, and I'm going to go through all these in one of the modules. But what you're seeing here, the green zone that you're seeing, that that's the, the healthy, the safe zone. We have two boundaries or three boundaries that have been crossed with biodiversity, the loss of biodiversity and some of the uh, the chemical compounds that are now inundating the environment, the phosphates, for example. Climate is in the red. It is not one that has exceeded uh, these other boundaries. And we're not talking about these in our schools. We're not talking about them in our uh, in mainstream media. We've got to think 
of our world from a holistic point of view. It's not just climate. We have a living a network of systems that must be honored. And the way that we live our lives reflects the way that we've been taught to think about our relationship to the world. In this course, I'm going to give you reasons to think very differently based upon science and the new discoveries. Health extremes. We've got a global decline in life expectancy right now. And this surprises a lot of people. Globally, if you look uh, beginning in the year 2020, look at the drop for the, the global average. The U.S. is even a little bit sharper in decline. We've got a module coming up in this course talking about global population. And I'll tell you right now, population is not the problem that we've been led to believe that it is. That's important because we're being asked to make drastic choices that actually cause tremendous suffering in people's lives based upon the thinking that population is going to continue increasing. I'll just give you a heads up right now. Uh, we are in trouble in terms of the species because fertility rates are dropping, sperm counts are dropping, pregnancies are declining, and what is called the replacement rate of humans, the number of people we have to birth every year to offset the number of people dying, uh, that replacement rate is uh, we are under the curve on that replacement rate. More people are dying than are, are being born because the fertility rate is dropping so quickly. The question is, are we going to be able to even maintain any kind of, uh, of a global balance? And as I said, I've got a whole module coming up on that. So the whole point, these extremes and others. They are real. It's not your imagination. And the normalcy bias in our neighbors and, and a lot of my friends and certainly in, in the media tend to discount how important and how connected these things are. The extremes are creating uncertainty in our lives and chaos in our lives. And it's it's happening in America. It's happening all over the world. I just came back from a tour uh, in Europe and I, many European cities were having Protests, uh, stopping transportation, shutting down the cities to let their leaders know they're not happy with what it is that's going on. That's chaos. So the extremes are causing uncertainty and chaos. And here's why that's important, because that uncertainty and chaos keeps us in fear. If you're shown a world of uncertainty and chaos and no way to remedy that, your nervous system is kicked into high gear in fight or flight. And this is being reflected in the healthcare system of the increases in inflammatory conditions, uh, hypertension, high blood pressure, heart conditions, all those things. It keeps us in fear. Fear actually programs our biology. It programs our bodies, the way our bodies and our body systems function, our psychology. It programs our DNA at the very core of life. So this is why this course is so important. Because we respond to the fear based upon the way we've been taught to think about ourselves and our relationship to the world. What we have been taught is that we are powerless victims of a world that we have no control over. The whole thing comes down to what we call our story. So I want you just to really think about how important the way you think of yourself really is the power of your story. You live your life every moment of your life. You live based upon the way you've been taught to think of yourself. Every problem that comes to you, it comes to your family, whether it's a little problem, you're taking the kids to soccer, there's a, a, a road is blocked and you have to find a detour. The way you find that detour is based upon the way you think about yourself and your relationship to the world, to, to the big problems of, of health and finance. Every relationship that you've ever had or you ever will have 
is based upon your story, the way that you think about yourself, your self-worth, your value, your esteem, the way you heal your body in the presence of a pandemic, in the presence of aging, in the presence of toxins in the environment. It all comes down to your story, the way you've been taught to think. Your political choices, who you support, how you vote, based upon the way you've been taught to think. Your very power, the power that you're going to see from this course that you have at your fingertips, more accurately, that you have in your heart, and the ability of your heart to transcend the physics that have governed so much of your body in the past. Your ability to embrace, acknowledge, and accept that power, it's all based on your story, the way you've been taught to think. So you can see, if you change your story, you're going to change your life. But if you change our collective story, what do you think is going to happen? And if you say you're going to change the world, you're right on, and we're thinking we're thinking along the same lines. We're going to change the world based upon the way that we have thought of ourselves and our relationship to that world. So the question becomes, how have we been taught to think about our world? I'm going to identify the discoveries in each module uh, with a slide like this so that you can take notes. And then if you have questions, when we do the mentoring sessions, you can ask me, you know, Greg, discovery number one, module one, you know, however you want to do this. So discovery number one, the traditional story, let's start at the very beginning, says that we live in a world of competition and conflict, that we live in a world of scarcity, and that somebody's got to lose in this world for other people to win. It's called zero-sum thinking in game theory. Now, we're conditioned to believe this. I'm not saying that these words were used to teach us, and I'm not saying we we think about this or talk about the dinner table every night, but this is the underlying vibe. This is prevailing thinking in our lives today that someone must suffer for others to thrive because there's not enough to go around. I'm going to tell you right now that's not true, absolutely not true, and you'll see why through the modules that we're exploring. But let me give you a couple of examples. In zero-sum thinking, in negotiation, for example, it's the belief that, that two people cannot come out as winners, that mutual gain is not possible. In society, it's the belief that more resources for one group means less for others. In relationships, it's the belief that there can only be a winner and a loser. None of these are true. Uh, none of these have to be true. They can be true, depending upon the choices we make, but they don't have to be true. And I'm just, again, I'm going to tell you right now, I believe as a scientist and the evidence supports it's possible to raise the standard of life and living for every human living on the earth today without attempting to eliminate or control populations, without depleting the resources that are vital to us using new thinking and new technologies and implementing them and implementing them in, in our lives. Where does this old thinking come from that says somebody's got to suffer? Well, it's based upon an obsolete story uh, that begins discovery number two, the thinking of Charles Darwin, that we are the product of random mutations, lucky biology, uh, that we just happen to have been the, the species that has triumphed over all other species. I have to show the chart that you're seeing on the screen because people ask me about it if I don't. We've all seen this, the evolutionary tree of life. We as modern humans are in the upper left-hand corner of the red circle. The green lines connect us to other forms of life that we have been taught, we descended from or evolved from. The problem is the evidence no longer supports this story. The evidence doesn't support it. You can see the lines aren't solid. They're broken lines because they are inferred 
or speculative relationships. There is no physical evidence, no fossil evidence to support these relationships. Uh, but here's the implication. If you believe that we're the product of these random processes, then where is the specialness of life? It becomes uh, uh, acceptable to think that human life is ours to exploit. Human life is ours to dominate, to control Human life is ours to give and human life is ours to take. And we live in a world where this thinking is pervasive right now. And you see where it is led. So the fundamental rule of nature in this thinking is what Darwin called survival of the strongest. And I'm, I'm going to be very clear. He actually used the word survival of the strongest originally. Later, he changed those words to survival of the fittest. But the original word survival of the strongest, this is important because it tells us, it gives us insight into his thinking, all right? In his book, Origin of Species, he tells us uh, in his own words, I'm just going to read this to you, of what he believes is the underlying principle in nature, the fundamental rule of nature. So he acknowledges, he says, it may not be a logical deduction, but it is far more satisfactory to look at the instincts, such as ants making slaves of other ants, as small examples of one general law leading to the advancement of all beings. That law is multiply, vary, let the strongest live and the weakest die. This is Darwin's thinking, and it was adapted uh, into some of the most horrific thinking and social policies in the 20th century, including uh, Chairman Mao's thinking, including what happened in, uh, in Cambodia, including what happened in the, the Holocaust in uh, in Europe in the middle of the, the 20th century, they all reference Darwin's thinking in their papers, saying, let the strongest live and the weakest die. The problem with this, the problem is that the evidence does not support this. The new human story says that cooperation is the fundamental rule of nature. In his book, No Contest, The Case Against Competition, Alfie Kahn, he says, quote, the ideal amount of violent competition in any environment in the classroom, the workplace, the family, the playing field is none. Violent competition is always destructive. He goes on to say, uh, or the, the, the papers go on to say, that what we see in nature is not every animal for itself. Cooperation is an incredibly successful survival strategy. This is from Michael LePage, uh, published in the, in the peer-reviewed journal New Science, or New Scientists. He goes on to say that when cooperation breaks down, the results can be disastrous. And we have seen that. We've seen that in the world. So the new human story is that nature, the fundamental rule of nature, is based upon cooperation, not competition. The new human story tells us that Darwin's idea of evolution is not and cannot be our story. It cannot be the, the story because the evidence doesn't support it. And when I say the evidence, I mean the physical evidence, the fossil evidence, the cultural, the genetic, the archaeological evidence. None of them support Darwin's theory of evolution, yet it's still being taught in our schools. It's still being taught to our young people today. What the new story is showing is that the DNA extracted from the fossilized remains of ancient forms of life it's blowing the door off of the, the story of our origin, who we are, and where we've come from. Now, when I say DNA, a lot of people think it looks like what you're seeing on the screen right now. We now have the ability to extract DNA from the fossilized remains of ancient forms of life, 
including those that we used to believe were our ancestors. It doesn't look like DNA buried in rock like you're seeing here. I'm going to show you. This is an actual image of the DNA, fossilized DNA. And what this means is that we can compare the genome of ancient forms of life to ours today to look for the similarities and that, or the differences. And that's how we know we are not the descendants of Neanderthal, for example. We didn't descend from Neanderthal. We share the earth with Neanderthal, interbred with Neanderthal. That's why we still have some Neanderthal DNA in our, our genome today, but we didn't descend from them, nor do we descend from the other forms of life that we're looking at. Now, what we do know is that we appeared on Earth, modern humans, what are called anatomically modern humans, appeared on Earth about 200,000 years BP before present. That's accepted in the scientific community. We haven't changed. The genome tells us that we haven't changed in 200,000 years. We look pretty much today like we would have looked 200,000 years ago, what are called anatomically modern humans, or AMH, when we emerged. This is a very, very different way of thinking. Uh, it means that we emerged with everything in our DNA then that we have today, that we emerged with this extraordinary potential that we're only beginning to realize, we're only beginning to understand. So the question is, what gives us our humanness? What happened 200,000 years ago that set us apart from all other forms of life? Well, discovery number three gives us one of the answers. There are many answers uh, that I could offer here describing the extraordinary mutations that uh, that were in our genome when we appeared 200,000 years ago. I'm going to zero in on one of the most profound. Some of you have heard me speak about this before, maybe human chromosome number two. Chromosome number two, it's the second largest uh, chromosome in our, in our uh, DNA. It's about 8% of the DNA in, in uh, the nucleus of every cell of our bodies. It has about uh, 12, little over 1,200 genes. One of those genes is responsible for our brain size. We emerge with a brain 50% larger than our nearest primate relatives. And the, the neocortex that you're seeing in blue, uh, there's a gene called TBR1 that is responsible for about uh, almost 80% of that neocortex volume. And that neocortex is what's important because the neocortex is what gives us our capacity, our human capacities of emotion and sympathy and empathy and compassion, the ability to self-regulate our biology that we'll explore through this course, as well as the ability to access deep states of intuition on demand. All that's possible because of human chromosome number two and more. So we wouldn't be who we are without it. Where did it come from? Scientists know the answer, and it's... Uh, it is difficult in the scientific community to really talk about this because this is peer-reviewed uh, paper, Proceedings National Academy of Sciences from the USA. The volume is called Genetics. And what it says is our chromosome 2 is the result of a, an ancient fusion, a mysterious fusion of pre-existing chromosomes. You can see it on your screen right now. I'm circling the pinch point where that fusion actually happened. A fusion of two pre-existing chromosomes with genes that were added and deleted and silenced after that fusion happened to stabilize that fusion. The point is all of this happened in a way that cannot happen naturally. Something intervened. There was some kind of an intervention that uh, is responsible for this and other mutations that I'm not even talking about here. 
they all happened at 200,000 years ago, and they cannot happen under natural processes. Today, the only way we know about this kind of uh, fusion is through what's called gene editing, and it looks like human chromosome 2 was gene edited. Now, if you're not familiar with gene editing, I want to just give you a quick idea. What you're seeing on the screen is actually a gene editor. It's like a, a word processor where you bring the DNA up on the screen. You can cut and paste genes into different parts of the DNA to accomplish different outcomes, different colors of eyes or hair or bone density or muscle, uh, fast muscle, slow muscle, eye color, all kinds of things that now we can do through gene editing. What you're going to see on the screen, I just wanted to make this real, is the first time that the uh, the first image of gene editing was captured from a technology called CRISPR gene editing. It was introduced in the year 2012. So what you're going to see here, this is CRISPR gene editing. When the circle this, there you're seeing that bright spot. It's there. Now it's gone. I'm going to run this through the loop again so you can see it. It's there. It's there, it's there. Now watch, it's going, to, it's going to disappear. Right there, it's gone. That was a gene that was just edited out of the genome sequence. So human chromosome number two appears to be the result of something that accomplished that. I don't know that it was CRISPR, but something like that. And the question is, who or what is responsible for that and for chromosome seven that gives us the ability for complex speech and the ability to sing uh, and other chromosomes in our, our, our bodies. Who or what is responsible for these extraordinary mutations that occurred 200,000 years ago that, that give us, literally give us our humanness? Well, we have to say there's strong evidence for ancient intervention. As a scientist, I have to say that. The evidence supports that. I cannot say who or what because the science has not reached that point yet. But the science is at a point where scientists can say this did not happen under natural conditions. So now I'm going to shift gears a little bit. And this, this module is going to be a little longer than uh, the other modules. I don't want you to think everyone will, will be as long as this one. But I think it's important here. If we're talking about our story, we've got to get the big picture. When we look at the DNA that gives us our extraordinary potentials, our, our humanness, and these these qualities of, of sympathy and empathy and compassion and the ability to, to make judgments based upon our values of, of love and forgiveness. To the best of our knowledge, no other form of life has those. So where do they come from? Who is responsible for these extraordinary genetic interventions? Well, if in fact, there is an intelligence underlying these interventions, and I personally believe that there are, or there is an intelligence, and the evidence suggests that. Where would the secret of our origin be kept? You know, where, if something happened 200,000 years ago, some record would be kept somewhere. Do you, do you think it would be in a book that could be destroyed, that could be burned, uh, or, or disintegrate over time, or lost in a flood, or an earthquake, or a fire, or, or would that secret be etched into a temple wall that could crumble over time or could be inundated by rising sea levels? Do you really think that a, a secret that is so powerful would be left uh, in places that would be so vulnerable? Or is it possible that the secret to our origin could be within the code of life itself? Is it possible 
that the secret of our origin and who or whatever is responsible for those genetic editing sequences could be within us. Are we carrying a message from who or whatever is responsible for that? Well, this is discovery number four. It opens the door to a question, how, how could you even store information in DNA? How can data be stored in DNA? So I'm going to go through this really quickly because I, I want you to see how it's possible and how it can apply to us. In the year 2004, I released a book called The God Code where I detailed my work as a computer scientist specializing in software that uh, that uses pattern recognition to, to look for patterns in nature. So that was my job uh, in 1980s when I was working in the industries. I was uh, a senior computer systems designer building pattern recognition software. I took those principles, applied it to the human genome, released a book in 2004. I'm going to detail what was found in just a moment. What I want you to know, that was 04. 2007, Japanese scientists released this study saying that it was possible to store information in DNA, in genetic sequences. This is uh, uh, Professor Masaru Tomita. Uh, he headed up a team at Keough University. And what they did, I'll just, I'll just encapsulate it here. What they did was they stored a small amount of information in DNA and bacteria, and then they allowed that bacteria to go through a number of generations, approximately 60 generations, then pulled the information out to see if, number one, it was preserved, number two, if it was intact. So here's, here's what he did. The first message that they encoded was Einstein's theory of relativity equals MC squared, and the year that his paper was released, 1905, they encoded that into the DNA of the bacteria, allowed the bacteria to live and reproduce through many generations, approximately 60. And then they pulled that information out. It was preserved. It was intact. Now many papers are out there talking about DNA as, uh, as a medium of storage. So first, how is it possible? I just wanted you to see this. It's very simple. You take a digital file like you have on your computer. Uh, you know, a, a Word document, MS Word or something like that. That document, the letters of those words actually are shorthand representing information that the computer recognizes in binary code. These are longer sequ sequences of information. So when you type the letter A, B, or C, you're doing a shorthand for a longer code. That code uh, has been adopted universally. And there's a standard called ASCII, A-S-C-I-I, -I, the ASCII standard. So these codes are, are universal across uh, all computer platforms. Well, that binary code then can be converted into chemical code uh, that makes up the DNA of, of the human body or of any carbon-based life. So we are made of hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, carbon, and that is a, a chemical code. So that chemical code is then inserted into... The, the DNA of the bacteria. So this is how information can be stored in bacteria. When you want to read the information, what you do is you just reverse the process. You go into the DNA, find out what the sequence is, convert it back to binary code using ASCII uh, uh, standards. Then you, you have the, the letters that you read like you read the letters on, uh, on the pages of a book. So this is how it happens. So the question is, has it happened with us? Could this be what has happened with us? Discovery number five, 
The answer is yes. And I'm going to walk you through this very, very quickly uh, so that you can see, because what this tells us is a way to think of ourselves that is so profound when it comes to our story. Remember, this is what we're doing in this module. The way we respond to life, it's based on our story. This is a very, very powerful piece of our story. When you think of the cell traditionally as a uh, from from a biological perspective, what we're told is is here's a cell, and in the nucleus of the cell uh, is the the chromosomes, and the chromosomes are made up of long strands of DNA that you can see there. There's the DNA, and the DNA is made up of genes. There you're seeing all the genes. Uh, this is the way we've been taught to think about life. So this is from a biological perspective. Now I'm going to invite you, and this is where uh, I really appreciate your your trust, and I appreciate your willingness to cross those traditional boundaries, because I'm going to invite you to think of this from an IT perspective, an information uh, storage technology perspective. What if, what if every cell, instead of thinking of it as this uh, this gooey, you know, sticky, mushy stuff that makes up our bodies. What if that cell is really a library of information? Mm-hmm. And in a library, what you store in a library are books. So what if the chromosomes in every cell are books? And what if those books, the chromosomes, are made of, of the DNA? What if the DNA is the chapters of the book And what if the genes that make up the DNA are the paragraphs and the sentences? Mm. Well, I know this is a very different way of thinking. Mm. This is the way I was thinking uh, when I began the research project 20 years ago. As a computer scientist, thinking about life from an IT perspective. Now, I personally believe that this is precisely what's happening. And that personal belief was what drove me to use the science to to see how this could be possible. So uh, so what I'm going to invite you to do now is to think of this. If, if this is true, if the cells in our bodies are libraries containing books, every book before the first chapter of the book is typically a preface or a foreword or an introduction. And it would make sense that the same thing would happen with the DNA and, and our bodies. The average human body is about 50 trillion cells. Every one of those cells holds a component of DNA. It means that within each cell of our bodies, we have the introduction to the information that we're about to, uh, we're about to explore. What would that introduction look like? This is where I had to cross the traditional boundaries of ancient knowledge, ancient texts, the best science of the modern world to decode that message in our cells. So discovery number six. It's going to look kind of like uh, biology 101 just for a second. All the DNA in our bodies is made of what are called four DNA bases. Those bases are abbreviated as C, T, A, and G. They stand for the chemical bases uh, that we see uh, often in, uh, in movies. For example, there's a movie called Gattaca a few years ago about a, a, a genetic sequence that some people had. And uh, in this very dystopian, futuristic film, there was a lot of uh, a lot of controversy about what capabilities those people had and whether they were desirable or not. But it was all based on what you're seeing right here, the computer code that you're seeing. Uh, 
CTAG and different combinations of that is what makes up our bodies. Well, the CTA and G stand for the basis. C is cytosine, uh, T is thymine, A is adenine, G is guanine. And when you begin looking at these from a chemical perspective, so what is it that makes thymine? Thymine is made of hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, carbon. Guanine, same thing. Cytosine, the same thing. Adenine, the same thing. They're all made from hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, carbon. But look at this. They're different numbers of hydrogen atoms. Six hydrogens in thymine, but five in guanine. Two nitrogens in thymine, but five nitrogens uh, in guanine. So you can see it's different amounts of hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, carbon that, that make these DNA bases. So it's fair to say that all life is made from these elements of the periodic table, hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, and carbon. So we can go to the periodic table, and here they are. No mystery, no secret here. So what we can say from a scientific perspective is that all life is made through these elements, and these elements are expressed as words and as numbers. Okay, words, hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, carbon, numbers, got all kinds of numbers, atomic weight, atomic mass, uh, valence numbers, all kinds of numbers we can use to express these. Now, here's where it gets interesting and where you've got to cross those traditional boundaries because ancient traditions tell us the same thing in a different language. In one of the most mysterious uh, of the ancient books, a book called Sefer Yitzhak, that is literally called the Book of Creation. It's Mysterious book. It's only about a thousand lines in length. It's been translated once into English. Uh, it is a mysterious book in even in the the, uh, the ancient Hebrew tradition. It says the same thing that all life is created through words and through numbers. Everything is created. So what I began to do as a as a physicist, a mathematician, is go back and look at what this means. Every alphabet that is known to exist throughout human civilization, from ancient Sanskrit and cuneiform uh, to the Greek and even the English alphabet, they've always had numeric equivalents linked to every letter. Numbers that represent the letters, we don't know where those numbers came from. They are consistent. They never change. Uh, and they, they give a deeper meaning to what, what those letters can actually mean. So as a scientist, and I'm going to invite you to, to look at this, the common link between the modern elements and the ancient words. The ancient text says human creation was described as word and number. Modern science periodic table says creation is described as words and numbers. We're talking about thousands of years separating us from these ancient texts, and the words can change over time. But guess what doesn't change? Guess what is stable? The words can change, but the numbers don't. So as a computer scientist, this was my cue to find the link. What numbers link the ancient text with the periodic table? Well, <laughs> there are lots of numbers that represent every element. And you're seeing some of them here. Atomic radius, weight, boiling point, oxidation state, specific heat, atomic number. Uh, all of these represent Every one of those elements you can describe through these numbers. And, and it took me a number of years to go through these manually. Again, this was back in the 80s is when I was doing this. And the bottom line is there's only one number, one number in the periodic table that links the elements to those ancient texts. 
and it is a property that's called atomic mass. So atomic mass uh, is a very interesting property. It's not about weight. It's about how much space something occupies. So if you take the atomic mass of the elements that make up our DNA, the atomic mass of hydrogen is 1.0. You can reduce that to one using the ancient uh, numeric principles. Nitrogen, 14.1, you can reduce that to a 5 using those principles. Oxygen, 15.9, becomes a 6. Carbon, 12.0, becomes a 3. So what we're doing is we're treating the periodic table through the rules that govern the ancient text, and we're treating the letters of the ancient text through the rules that govern the periodic table. We're calling them equivalents. When you do that, you can create an equivalent chart. And as a scientist, I love charts. So here on the left, we see hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, carbon. The atomic mass we just derived was one, five, six, and three. Now, if we go to the mysterious numbers on the ancient alphabets and we take the equivalent of one, five, six, and three, they will give us letters that we can read like you read the pages of a book. Now, I want to be very clear about this. Uh, these numbers work in all of the core alphabets. There were six root alphabets in human civilization. Two of them have disappeared. The four that are still known and still we still use are cuneiform, ancient cuneiform, ancient Sanskrit, ancient Arabic, and ancient Hebrew. What I'm going to show you works in every one of those languages. I'm going to use Hebrew right now because it is the oldest continuously used. It's still used. And it is the most stable of all of those languages. The letters between now and uh, when they were uh, emerged 3,000 years ago, very few, only 23 changes in the text. Uh, the, the most important of those texts over that period of time. And I'm hesitating because I'm, I don't want to go too deep. And I want you to really get the essence of what's happening here. So what I'm going to do in the Hebrew language, I could do in cuneiform Sanskrit or Arabic, and I have as well. But here's what happens. When you take the equivalent of the letters right there numerically, and then you link them to the numbers, you have letters that now we can replace hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, carbon with the letters you're seeing on the right-hand side of your screen. And if you read Hebrew, you probably already can see what it is that's happening. So here is the cytosine made of hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, carbon, different numbers of that. When you take this chart and you replace hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, and carbon, what you have are the letters YHVG. And you continue that through the cytosine and you have YHVG, YH, YH. What does this mean? YHVG, in the Hebrew language, there are no vowels. In biblical Hebrew, this is actually two words, YH, many of you I think are very familiar with. It literally means God eternal. It is the one of the ancient names of God in the text that's written into the DNA of your cells. God eternal. VG literally means within the body. When you put these together, the introduction to the DNA, the first level in every cell of your body literally reads God eternal within the body. God eternal within the body. Who are you? You are God eternal within the body. And if you doubt that, you have 50 trillion replications of this message 
in the cells of your body telling you this. So literally, when we look at the DNA bases, we're looking at different combinations of God eternal, God eternal, God eternal within the body, God eternal within the body. What are the odds that this is a fluke? Well, I asked uh, my statistician friends to run the numbers on this. It is 0.00042% chance that this is a fluke. This is an intentional code in encoded in the mystery of life. It makes perfect sense to me that if we are the product of some intervention that is responsible for human chromosome 2, for our empathy, sympathy, compassion, self-regulation, for our ability to love and forgive, that who or whatever gave us those abilities would have left a code telling us who we are. And when our technology and our thinking reached a point where we could decode, decipher that code, that we would then open the door to that knowing. So the great mystery, who are we, who are you for the estimated 50 trillion cells in your body beyond any differences of belief or lifestyle or heritage or bloodline, no matter what you think or believe, the message is the same, precisely the same. Mm. When we believe our differences are so great that there is no way to bring us back together, this code holds the key because it's the same in all humans. We are God eternal within the body, God eternal within the body. What does that mean for us today? This module, again, it's a longer module. The other modules won't be this long. But I wanted you to have this because it changes the way we think about our story. Mm-hmm. All right. It means that long ago we were given the gift of our humanness and our human potential. And that we were imbued with these extraordinary qualities that we have talked about. In a world that is changing faster than we have been conditioned to accept in ways that we've never been prepared for, if we can bear in mind that we are God eternal within the body, that changes the story, that changes how we respond to the world around us. So what I'm going to invite you to do is I close out this module. Number one, how do you feel about this evidence? When you see this, God eternal within the body, how does that make you feel? about you and about your relationship to the world around you and your relationship to yourself. When you're faced with a challenge, whether it's a financial challenge or a relationship challenge or a challenge of healing in your body, I'm going to invite you to take what I've shared with you today, change your story if it fits, if it feels right, and ask the question, how would God eternal within the body solve this issue? And I think you'll be amazed at how empowered you feel to approach the challenges in your life in new and healthy and life-affirming ways. So with that, I'm going to close this module. Next module will be module number two, how we're going to thrive in our world of extremes. It's about thinking and shifting that thinking from polarity and fear to unity thinking. So with that, I want to thank you for the opportunity to to share just the power of this message. Uh, it's so extraordinary. Every time I share it, uh, I am changed in the presence of this message. And I believe that you will be as well if you allow that message into your heart. Thank you so much for sharing module number one. And I look forward to seeing you in module number two.
Oh, okay, one more, everybody. How are we going to thrive in our world of extremes? Mm. <laughs> All right, well, this is, might give us a little bit of a mm. access to something to bring us into a state that's like a bridge to that um, story and going beyond. So it's called accessing the power of flow states. How are trans channelers able to communicate in languages foreign to them? The answer could lie in a flow in flow states or the states of bliss that promote evidence of a unified field of consciousness. Explore how concepts such as interdimensional awareness and quantum design take on new meanings as supplemented with channeled works and paranormal experiences. Uh, this is Matthias De Stefano's in here. Uh, um, Margarita Rigioloso, uh, Sheila Gillette, Aaron Abke, Mitch Horace, Laura Alden, Com, Bree Melanson, Daryl Anka, Jude Curavon, Helena Wabe, and so and so on. So, let's just start. There's another one, Shaman Direct. I like that. Mm. All right, here we go. This is um, 26 minutes. 26 minutes. The flow state. Most define this powerful feeling as being in the zone, fully connected to the present moment. When humans reach this state of oneness, that allows the power of the universe to flow freely through us, to animate us, to guide and inspire us, to share our unique gifts with all on this planet. The question remains, is this flow state a form of channeling? That connection with what's arising in the moment allows us to drop out of the finite sense of self and more into the universal self. And that's why everyone describes the flow state as a state of bliss and joy and freedom. It feels like one is the most alive in a flow state. What people sometimes call flow state or inspiration, I refer to as enthusiasm. I think enthusiasm, although we hear that term all the time, has mysterious qualities. I find that when I'm experiencing enthusiasm at my back, I can write for eight hours at a stretch. I can sit down on a sofa with my laptop and the hours just melt away. 
when I write, because I love to write and I'm called to write, it just comes through me. So whether you call it automatic writing or I'm in the flow, I'm in the zone, they're all the same thing. And it's that inspiration that's inside of us that's either coming from our own experience, our own destined words that come out on the page for the benefit of other people and for ourselves. Or you've been inspired by something you've run into that day, a person or an environment, and you just want to share it, and it just comes through you. There are many ways to get into the flow state, and it occurs when we are not operating from the intellect any longer, but we're in a state of openness and surrender to the present moment. And so people get into the flow state without even knowing it, just through doing things that they enjoy. We have to create a larger space for that part of ourselves. So that could be a walk in nature or, you know, meditation or writing or dance or anything that gets you into your most natural state. The language of physical reality is not words, is not energy, it's actions. And when you act on the passion that the higher mind sends you, you're demonstrating to the higher mind that you heard it. You understand what it's telling you, that this is your next step. Follow it. And you start that dialogue then going between you and the higher mind. Because once you're willing to act on what the higher mind has already sent you, it will send you more opportunities to act on your passion. If you don't act on your passion, the higher mind will simply not send you any more opportunities until you act what it's already sent. Because why should it? Because you're not acting on anything anyway. So it's a real relationship, even though it's another part of you. Because we've created this illusion of separation, you have to develop this relationship with your non-physical higher mind. Pay attention to the messages that it sends through the auspices of excitement, curiosity, passion, love, creativity. And be willing to act on it. Take that step. As we become more connected to those from all areas of this planet, we are reminded that no matter what shape size, or color of skin. All human bodies are supremely sophisticated in design and structure. As science searches for answers to explain the human design and our physical connection to the cosmos, there's a powerful spiritual principle about the grand design of the separate forms in this physical reality. Everything happens in spirit first. So anything that's in physical reality starts with a template in spirit, so to speak. Adjustments in that spiritual template, when done in a certain way, will make adjustments in the physical version of it. It's as simple as that. As ultimately spiritual beings having a human experience, our perception of ourselves as human beings, is very physical in the main. And the appearance of our physical selves seems to be separate from each other, separate from our planetary home, separate from the wider universe. That perception of separation, as long as it helps us to have an Earth experience of joy, of relationship, is wonderful. It's when we misunderstand that appearance 
of individuation as separation. And in that sense of separation, that illusion of separation, we progressively cut ourselves off from the wider nature of, of reality. Edgar Mitchell was an engineer. He was also an Apollo 14 astronaut and the sixth person to walk on the moon. He was on his way home. The capsule was rotating 360 degrees. He saw the sun, the earth, the stars, and he was rotating over and over again on his way back to the beautiful blue planet. All of a sudden, he went into this transcendent oneness state. Some people call that samadhi. Edgar was no longer there. He completely dissolved into oneness, felt that he was intrinsically connected to the sun, the moon, the stars, the earth, and that they were part of him as well. This transformative experience of oneness hasn't just been experienced by Edgar. Many people around the world have had these transcendent experiences. You think about all the different practices that incorporate breath work. You think about our physical body and this idea of little c and big c consciousness that when we're contained in this physical body, we feel separate. But somehow through meditation, through other altered states of consciousness, we can experience that big c consciousness where we are ourselves, but also so much more than ourselves. When we undertake practices such as mindfulness or meditation or just being in nature, all of those help us to remember our innate wholeness with the whole of creation, with the whole of our universe. Ra even says that meditation is the most helpful practice to give the adept a foundation upon which to listen to the creator. And so meditation and, and channeling are inseparable in that way. That until one can learn to quiet the noisy mind through meditation, one isn't going to be able to receive contact of higher information that the intellect may disagree with. And that's one of the challenges of channeling is that a lot of what comes through is completely unknown to the human mind or to our conception of how reality works. So not only does there need to be a lot of stillness in the mind, but a lot of openness to be willing to see reality differently. And so I think beings who are looking to contact the human race at this time and deliver us higher consciousness are needing to find people who've built this foundation. So for anyone interested in channeling, the absolute preliminary prerequisite would be a meditative practice. And the more we regularly undertake those practices, whatever they may be. I mean, I dance around the kitchen table to Abba. That is my meditation practice. I grow vegetables. That's another meditation practice. But whatever it may be, when it brings a song to our hearts, when it literally brings us into that remembered wholeness, then that enables us to not only understand this emergent perspective 
of unified reality, but crucially, vitally to experience it and embody it. We all need to dig in and open up these abilities. And it's it's here and now. These old oracle sites that were shut down, cleared out, the portals were closed. Okay, we can't really access that high-level information in those places, but we can in this place. So we want you to first acknowledge you are channeling. You are channeling the miraculous through you right now. When you feel love in your heart, when you extend it to others, where as you are in co-creation in each moment, you are channeling divine force through you. This is what you are doing. The philosophy to me of being a channel in the way I am is simply that some people for whatever reason, have made an agreement on some level to bring through information in this particular way as a vocal channel. It is one way of expressing the art of channeling. But I want to demystify the idea so that everyone understands that this is not some strange, mysterious phenomenon. It is something that is natural to humanity. And really, without even knowing it, a lot of people do it when they're in the zone different forms of channeling might require a different focus, a different dedication. It just depends on what you choose to do, what you're attracted to. But if you are attracted to a specific expression of channeling, by following it, by acting on it to the best you can, it will attract the synchronicity that will bring into your life the elements, the tools, the techniques, the knowledge, the information, the people that need to be there to help you move forward on that path. So it's kind of self-expanding, self-guiding, self-correcting. And if you just act on it, that's what starts the ball rolling. And the way you apply that signature frequency through passion is to act on your highest excitement to the best of your ability with no insistence or assumption as to what the outcome ought to be, as to what to come to fruition but to allow the synchronicity in your life to present to you the opportunities that contain that excitement so you can recognize it because excitement is the compass needle that points to your magnetic north. As a dancer flows to the rhythm of a song or a direct voice trance channel speaks of the power of love and unity, Connecting our hearts with our minds and allowing spirit in all forms to flow through us is a natural gift. When a medium or a trance channeler is getting into a channeling state, they usually have to do some kind of breath work practice to get them out of the thinking mind, out of the identity of the limited self and into the universal self. The trans-channeler's mind and mental capacity is used as a tool. So their education, their vocabulary, the language they used is the filter through which the channeling comes through. So this term, the library of the channeler's mind, denotes that. Now, can a channeler, when they're not trans-channeling, be able to access 
the psychic reservoir outside of the library of their mind, many people believe that they can. There's unique cases of channeling where people actually speak a language that they don't know. So my language is English. If I trans-channel, I might be able to speak French or Spanish or Italian when I don't actually know it. And there's numerous verified cases of this. So in that case, the trans-channeler was going beyond their library of the mind to be able to speak a different language. I actually asked about this during our focus group at Mount Shasta. How can that be possible if you're using the mind as a tool? The answer was, if the person had a past life in one of those countries, then the memory of that is actually in their DNA and they're more easily able to speak in that language. They also said that there is a type of channeling that doesn't go through the library of the mind, where it is a complete incorporation, if you will. The supposed being, if they are of a strong enough nature and high enough frequency, they just move the body and communicate without having to go through the mental Every time that we went to Egypt and I started to channel, I used to say to the people, what I'm channeling is not the person that is living in the temple, but the spirit, the code of the information that those people have pronounced, said, and resound between the walls of that temple, that just by opening yourself is like if you are living it and you are able to become it. I used to compare channeling with trying to be a, an actor or an actress. It's like allowing yourself not to be yourself. So you can allow another data of someone else to, to act through you. As more receive messages and guidance from the beyond, will it be love? or fear that leads us through this journey to share our gifts and powerful messages to help each other. As you can imagine, making this transition from being a teacher of the Bible to a teacher of extraterrestrial channeled information was not a transition that my religious family and friends were very privy to. And it was something that I knew was inevitable that if I, if I make this transition, I'm probably going to lose most relationships in my life. But I think anytime we feel so much inner conflict in, in a, a way we're living in authentically, we become more and more willing to take those risks and to be willing to give up anything for authenticity and being in, in an integrity and in alignment with our own truth. And so after many years of wrestling with that fear of, Everyone's going to hate me, call me a heretic, a cult leader, which they did. Um, I just decided there isn't anything more important than waking up every morning with peace of mind that I'm being true to myself. I'm following the inner calling that has been placed upon me. And although it was the toughest decision I've ever made in my life, it was also hands down the best decision I've ever made. For the first time in my life, 
my personal and my professional are aligned in such a beautiful way. I'm grateful every single day for the work that I do. I feel like I'm so blessed and lucky to be able to do this work and bring it into the world in a profound way. Channeling Bashar has definitely changed my life in profound ways. Now, again, not everyone has to believe that Bashar is real, but the information can be proven to work because he's delivering it like a kit. He understands we're physical and he understands we need practical applications that work in physical reality. So he delivers information, which he sometimes calls an instruction manual or the formula. And when people follow it as precisely as possible with an open mind, they usually find that profound changes will happen in their lives and they can prove to themselves that the information works regardless of whether it's coming from an alien entity or a part of my higher self or my own subconscious mind. That doesn't matter. What matters is that the information helps people live better lives. It's very important for us at this time in our evolution for human beings to understand that evolution is not just about being on planet Earth and watching things change around you. It is about you being able to access your abilities. The human being has to evolve into these higher levels of consciousness. The intellect of where we have been to where we are going requires us to tap into our extra senses so that we're able to move into a different dynamic relationship with everything around us. Spirituality means that you are choosing to evolve yourself. So that is why it's so important for us to be inspired and feel amazing about opening ourselves up to these knowledges and these informations and this wisdom so that we and our species can go higher in our evolution so that we can one day not have war on planet Earth where we understand each other, appreciate each other, no matter what sex you are, no matter what color you are, no matter who you are, whatever culture you are, we're not just in harmony with each other. But we're in harmony with the animal kingdom. We're in harmony with nature. We're in harmony with everything. And at that point in evolution, that's when other beings will make themselves known to us and they will share their technology and they will share their resources. But until then, we have to make that choice for our maturity and for our existence. I just invite anybody and everybody who is willing to step on this path, this adventure, to realize that you don't, we don't have to have these fine-tuned sensibilities to be able to receive and, and, and channel at depth. That may come, it may not. It's innate to all of us, but the degree to which it comes is, is unique to all of us. The beautiful thing about moving through your fears when if you do want to connect and you have reservations is that's going to transfer into your life. You're going to become more empowered in your physical living world as well as within this aspect of the unknown. And if we're honest with ourselves, we are living in the unknown all the time. And it's where we dance with source and it's where we create and it's how we fall in love and it's why we laugh. So working through those years in the metaphysical 
is only going to make your life more expansive. It's the awakening. It's the shift of consciousness. The shift of limiting beliefs, the old ways of being that have been passed along generation to generation. These old found the old ways of thinking do not work. The old structures and foundations of the old are crumbling away and new will be formed for a better world yet. It's really time for us to connect together and feel a part of this awakening community. We have to participate in this bigger picture and really be part of this awakening for ourselves and for humanity. I believe that that that's why we're all here to do just that, to open up to the greater us, the greater God self, if you would, which will help the whole planet. Because Theo says, if we recognize who we are, the divine beings that we are, we'll have peace on our planet. That's why we've chosen to be here now in this transformation of consciousness. That's why we're seeing such a greater awakening because so many people have an interest in this. So many people are having some of their own personal experiencing of opening and they want to understand it. There are many parts of our world that people don't have access to to friends or family that can believe in what they're experiencing and they're seeking community, they're seeking connectivity and understanding of self. So our message is to trust. She would say you inherent self. We are saying that your feeling nature can take you home to what you might call you, your euphoria, yes. Your being is important. The fact that you are, my friend, infixes the universe and that infection is never known. Each and every one has an important role, an important gift that is unique to them to share with all. And now is the time. No one can do what you can do. They might do something similar, but they can't do what you do. Know that to be true. We appreciate the opportunity to serve. God's love unto you. Good day. Our deepest appreciation to all of you. Our deepest gratitude for the co-creation of this interaction. Our unconditional love to you all. 
And in our own language, we say, Aveo, in service to you. Good day. Good day, everyone. Good evening. It's already the new timeline. We are in the And I'm going to shift the energy. We're going to play a little bit of James Taylor from Stephen Colbert. So here we go. It's changing now. Please welcome back to The Late Show, our friend and yours, Mr. James Taylor. residency at the show, had a wonderful time, did a wonderful time with James over with the band. And, Great work on uh, Lewis, too. It was terrific. Yeah. And it wasn't lost on me that you played Pat Bethany's James. Now now I understand that you're you're gonna you're you're gonna this summer you're doing a week residency in Las Vegas. Now I don't necessarily associate Sweet Baby James with the strip, Daddy O. Are you a Vegas guy? Do you enjoy do you enjoy the bright lights, the big city, the the, the rolling the dice, the showgirls, the tigers, that kind of stuff? You, you know, it, it's true that that particularly in the beginning, um, uh, there was sort of a, a line of demarcation between what we considered our music, you know, uh, the music post Beatles, post Dylan, uh, and and sort of what had gone before, and that 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 line. Uh, Vegas was on the other side of that line. Yes. And, yeah. And, you didn't spend and, a lot of time in Vegas when well, you were young, when you were a young artist. No, no, I, uh, I, I, I didn't. I, I, I pretty much, uh, uh, avoided the place for, for quite a few years. But, um, you know, uh, it's sort of like that character that Bill Murray used to have, the lounge wizard kind sure, of Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Star Wars. Talking about Star Wars. Here, okay. yeah. If they should. Bar Wars. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, yeah, so uh, to begin with, there was this sort of uh, Vegas phobia, and uh, uh, but you know, I, as time passes, uh, things change. Um, I think we get politically. <laughs> time passes, passes, things. What do you say? Things do change. There you go, James Taylor. <laughs> Uh, you know, you, you sort of get dragged to the middle politically and culturally and, and as time passes. So, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I, I did a residency a couple of years ago in, in Las Vegas and, and it was great. So, yeah. Um, what kind of show do you do? Is there, are there, are there like, is a lot of glitz? Are there white tigers? Anything like that? <laughs> you know, whatever we can scare up, you know, we'll, we'll definitely use, but, 
No, uh, uh, it, it's it's pretty much uh, we just take the show that we're touring that year, the set that we're playing, and uh, and and just park it in Vegas for for about ten days, which is a great relief for for the band and and crew not to have to break it down and then set it up once a day mm. uh, and to be able to stay in one place. What yeah. about you though? Do you do you like being in one place or do you like the circus life? Uh, no, I I like uh, I, I like the one-offs. I like. Uh, having a, a feel of a different region or a different population uh, each each day. I, I like. I'm like, sure not the one breaking down the speakers. That's right. That's right. <laughs> that's right. I, I I go I go somewhere else and, and fall asleep. So this summer you got you got a tour, 16 shows around the U.S. Uh, you have a favorite city to play in the states. No one will be offended if you don't name their city. I, you know, I, I do tend to, uh, 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 every year I play uh, in my own hometown uh, in western Massachusetts, I, I play the Tanglewood Musical Fest. Tanglewood has been called the Vegas of the Berkshires. <laughs> this Thursday, you're headlining the Love Rocks NYC concert at the Beacon Theater, and this is benefiting... Uh, well, it, Love Rocks is the, is the organization, and it's uh, uh, it's a yearly benefit that's uh, mostly for homeless relief in, in New York City. Yeah. And also performing, also performing uh, John Mayer, Mavis Staples, Cheryl Crow, St. Vincent, and some others. Are these all friends of yours, or are you excited to meet Somebody's for like first have you someone you've never performed with before or never seen before. I'm excited to to meet and, and perform with uh, St. Vincent, but uh, <laughs> but uh, I know Mavis and I, I know John Mayer. I, I yeah, these it'll be good to see old friends too. And the and the, the band uh, it's a great band. Uh, my drummer Steve Gadd, mine. Uh, Steve Gadd. Know, I'm his singer. Steve actually. Gadd. Oh yeah. my God, the drum solo on Asia alone is the reason to go see James. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or Fifty ways to to uh, leave the yeah. yeah, yeah. But but uh, uh, Steve will be playing drums, and it's actually Steve who, who brought me into the gig, and uh, uh, Will Lee, who used to play uh, uh, on the on the late show uh, band with Paul Schaefer. Oh, of course, yeah. Will, Will's gonna gonna play uh, cool. play bass, and uh, so it'll the, the, it'll be a, a sort of a reunion. Of sorts. I'll see you there. I'll see you there. Yeah, I'll be there. We have to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more James Taylor. Everybody, stick around. Everybody. There. Well, this this weekend, you uh, are turning seventy five. Your seventy fifth birthday is this weekend. Congratulations, Nate. 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 Seventy five. Are you? Are you? How, how are you planning to celebrate? I'm astonished. I'm just amazed. <laughs> <laughs> are you celebrate birthdays? Uh, no, not really. Uh, I mean. Um, you know, people around me remind me that another year has passed and, and, and bring it up. And I say, why bring it up? Yes. yes. Well, my understanding is time passes, things change. That's right. God is not, you know, I thought you wanted that down. Time passes. Now, um, this year marks another milestone for you, and that is 40 years of sobriety. What is that anniversary going to be like? Well, 
35 to 75. Yes, that's true. That means I can pretty much remember the last three years. <laughs> and it's been good. So oh, good. Yeah. yeah. Now, it, it, you know, uh, a funny thing about this life is that, uh, you know, if you're successful at something, there's a, there's a big tendency to, to keep doing it, you know, uh, you know. Yeah. So, you know, the big wheel rolls and it wants to keep rolling. So, uh, uh, really, uh, what's surprising is how, how little has changed in my life, um, and how, how familiar and how similar what I do today is to what I was doing when I was 17. But, uh, uh, um, recovery, getting to recovery from addiction was the, the main, aside from my, my marriage, uh, to my wife, that was my, my main, uh, event really in my, in my adult life and that and my kids. Um, the song you're doing tonight is a song that not a lot of people talk about, but it's one of my favorite songs of yours and it's called Mona. And, and for those, for those people who don't know, oh, quite a few Mona fans, people who don't know, can you explain who Mona is and what the song's about? Well, Mona was a pet pig, and and uh, here's a photo. Here's a photo. Here's a photo. This is this isn't her fully grown, right? This is. Well, that's really she's both of us are quite young in that picture. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, how did you get a pet pig? Well, my brother and I were uh, having cocktails one afternoon, and and enjoying uh, a refreshing beverage. That's correct. And uh, and and he and I were having the classic argument about which was more intelligent, the dog or the pig. And uh, he took the dog and I took the pig. And a friend of mine overheard my sort of uh, uh, enthusiastic uh, defense of pigs and uh, and how intelligent they were. And she said, well, his birthday's coming up, you know, 21st birthday. I'm going to buy him a pig. 21st birthday? That's right. 21st birthday, a pig is the tradition. So... You recommend that to young men everywhere? Well, you know, it's, uh, it, it's, it's time tested. Um, but the, the, so the, 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 you know, she, she gave me this little football. It was so cute. You know, a little black stripe across its shoulders, and little high heeled shoes on all four feet. Just the cutest little thing. It lived in a cardboard box at the foot of my bed for, for that winter. And then when the spring came, uh, I, I moved her out into a sort of an enclosure. I was, I was building myself a house uh, in the woods and, um, and I, I made her a pen. And, uh, and moved her in there and she started to, uh, to put on weight. She put on about uh, 500 pounds and, <laughs> and a little over a year. Wow, in a year. Yeah, wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. See, we, we yeah. might have been, we might have overfed her, but, uh, but she, she was a, she was a, a prize pig. She, she actually, uh, won a blue ribbon at the agricultural fair. Uh, wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, let me ask you the, let me ask you the, the critical question here, which is, was she smart? Yes, she was smart, but she was very single-minded. Oh, yeah. strong-headed pig. Strong-headed, focused on food. Focused on food, okay. Yeah, and, and, and a couple of times a year sex, but yeah. I want to move on. I better move on. I'll move on from we'll that bet. subject right there. Well, um, James, lovely to see you. I'm so glad you're going to do the song. Just one second here. We're going to jump to the performance. <laughs> okay.
Okay, now I'm going to pass this talking to stick to you, Rainbird. I know you can tell us something good for the evening. Pass the talking stick and that Excalibur Quetzalcoatl and Michael Sword of Truth is with you. Here it comes. All right. I got that talking stick. Yeah, and it's already 325, so. <laughs> wow. I know. It's my, it's the shortest day of the year. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Because they take an hour away, but the longest day of the year is that two hours longer. Right. Well, we're just going to get an extra double dose for every hour we sleep tonight. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we're going to get the double dose of sleep. I think I got it already started. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Rama's got a few things to serenade, serenade us out of here tonight. Oh, good. Well, okay, so thank you very much for tonight. We're getting there, and it was very enjoyable. So I'm passing this talking stick over to you, Rama. Here it comes. What you got here, Rama? Oh, this is, um, (laughs) since we're talking about going to sleep, this is the Sandman. (laughs) Okay, let's do it. Unicorns are with this beautiful uh, scenery and forest, and the young lady gets to reach her hand out, and the unicorn comes close enough for her to touch the unicorn's nose. We're that close, everybody. That unicorn, that oneness, that world peace. Uh, time on the planet peace to everybody tonight see you in your dreams on the bridge Satnam Satnam G 13 thank yous honey in the heart no evil live long and prosper everyone until we meet again aloha aloha namaste namaste